if you only are judging your trip by fulfilling your expectations, then that becomes the standard for um, want to talk to you about expectations. What, what, what works in your travels that basically you have won the title of best consumer that you've made a plan the plan has delivered um, you get the gold star and, and you get to go home whereas if you're if you're bleeding outside of your plan then suddenly you're getting the gift of what you had never dreamt was out there to begin with right yeah um, yeah and and then also we have no idea and you're fucking up and it's like is this the only toilet in the village and then suddenly <laughs> you, you know you're 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 thinking about things you're not just you're not just fulfilling consumer expectations. You're trying to figure out if you can actually take a shit, you know, bend your six foot three frame over this hole in the floor, and and then suddenly it's it's more interesting in many ways. I'm a traveling man, made a lot of stops all over the world, and in every port I own the heart of at least one lovely girl. Okay, picture this. I'm on an island. I'm on an island in Cambodia called Koh Rong. My friend had told me about it. My friend and I went to a uh, full moon party in Thailand two years before. She told me about this island, Koh Rong. She said it was pretty much untouched. Just a few small little bars in like a central area, two hostels, and that's it. She was like, let's meet you, me, Sam, this other guy that went to the full moon party with, all from Hong Kong. We'll go. We'll do a bunch of drugs. We'll have a great time. And I'm like, Sarah, you got my number. I'm in. I'm in. And so I left Thailand a little early. I met a girl in Thailand I liked, left her. Man, what would have happened if I just went back to Pai with that girl? That lady from New Zealand. Huh. Anyway, I didn't. I left. I went to Cambodia. Uh, met them in Phnom Penh. Uh, met them in Siem Reap. Then went to Phnom Penh and then went to this island. Turns out, in the interim of making these plans and meeting them, Sam and Sarah decided to start dating. So suddenly, where once I was going to have a great fucking drug party with my drug friends, turned into suddenly, out of nowhere, Ari's the third wheel. I'm the third wheel. So... I don't know. I entertained myself. I went to this hostel in the main part of the island, and then I was like, ah, I wasn't liking it. It was a little starting to be built up, and I just took a walk. Took a rock around over to 4K Beach. And on 4K, it was like you have to walk around. So you walk along this long, long beach, and you go through this with some woods. And you come out of the other side of this woods, and there's another beach. And there's way fewer people on there. And then you keep walking on that beach. I mean, keep walking for like 45 minutes. And you get to a dock. And then past a dock, the, the beach ends on uh, these rocks. And in between the dock and where these, this beach ends and the rocks, probably another 15, no, maybe even 20, 20 minutes of walking. There was a couple bungalows right on the beach. 
And so I walked to the very, very end, sat there on the rocks for a while, and then made my way back. And I stopped at these bungalows, and I was like, "Hey, man, I, st- I, I, I got there was this like bar area, like a, like a, like a, I don't know, like a, like a, I don't know, an open air sort of entry area to this to these bungalows, the main cap, main part of the main cabin in these bungalows." And I talked, I said, "Hey." do you have any bungalows? And he goes, not right now. And I'm like, how about tomorrow? He goes, yeah, tomorrow. I'm like, I want that one. I want number two. It was right on the beach. I mean, it was right where the ocean is. Like it was, It's 30 seconds from the actual water to this bungalow with the window that faced out. And he goes, yeah, okay, give me a deposit. I'm like, fuck yeah, man, here. And I went and I got my shit. I spent one more day at this hostel and then I went to this fucking bungalow. And within a day, Sam and Sarah were like, hey, we're going to do our own thing today. And I'm like, yeah, fear, we're going to fucking do your own thing. Every day I'm fucking calling you guys saying, what's up? What are we doing? You're going to sleep early like goddamn punks. We're going to do our own thing. Fine. Great. Now I know I'm the third wheel. I'm out. So there was this fire festival, this fire dance festival. I went to that one day, got some weed. It was the first time I got weed. My whole trip, over a month, all of January off, half of February. No marijuana. Found it there. Found it there. Sarah found it for me, to be honest. She found it for me. <laughs> I'll tell the story about it later. Um, I have this other podcast I'm going to do. One more travel podcast and then we're done. Then we're done with travel for a long time after this one. By the way, why aren't you guys watching my special right now? My special's out on Netflix right now. Why? Turn this off. Go watch my double special. Double At least watch half of it. At least watch half of it and then come back to this. I'm so proud of this episode, you guys. This is good. I mean, I'm not talking about the special. I mean, this episode. I got to go. Okay, well, I'll tell you about it. I'll tell you about it. I'll tell you about it. But first, go watch the special. It's on Netflix right now. If you don't have Netflix, come on. Who, who doesn't have Netflix? Steal your friend's account. Obviously, that's what everybody did. I stole Big J's account for so long. He brought me on stage once for a, this is not, a, not this is not happening, a, a, a what's your fucking deal show for CISO. And he goes, man, this guy's helped me so much. He was real nice, effusive. He's helped me so much in my career. He got me through with Comedy Central. He got them to pay attention to me. He fucking did all this stuff for me. Um one of my best friends, Ari Shafir. And I was like, well, thanks, Jay. I really appreciate it. But in fairness, I've been stealing a Netflix account for the last seven years. So let's call it even. Um, my special's out right now. Double negative. Get it. And do me a favor, you guys. Please do me a favor. Tweet about it. I mean, every one of you. Today. Tweet about it. Tweet about it. Make an Instagram post about it. Put it on Facebook. Blast it out to the world. I mean, seriously, every single one of you. Can you do that for me, please? That'll really help me get the word out. It'll really help me have everyone watch it. I want everyone to watch it. I work so fucking hard on this. Two years of no life. Two years of no life whatsoever. Of course I had to leave the country after that. Of course. I was totally burned working that hard. Fucking four sets a day. Going on the road nonstop. Going to Edinburgh for a month. Running it there. Running it in Scandinavia. Doing all the work. Anyway. Now it's out. It's out now. Watch it. Um, and t- yeah, tell everybody. Tweet to the world. Go wa- Everybody, go watch Ari Shafir's special, Double Negative, on Netflix right now. However you want to say it. 
do me that favor. I want it going crazy. Trend, I don't know, whatever. Please. That's the way you'll be paying me back. No sponsors this, this episode. No sponsors. You're my sponsor. All I want from you is some tweets and some Instagram posts. For from every one of you. Come on. I'm done asking. Do it. I'm not done asking. I'll ask one more time in the introduction and probably one more time in the outroduction. Anyway, I'm on this beach. They're like, we're hanging out by ourselves. Fine. I'm on my own. And then I finally settled in to this no, this life of like no, like no chores, nowhere to be. I'm on a beach alone. There's no one around me. I'll post a picture on ariashapir.com. I'll post a picture of this beach. And it looked out in this little island out there that I wanted to take a kayak to go row out to. Never made it. I got to go back to Korang. I got to find that little island. I heard this little temple out there, like a Buddhist or something temple. I got to go back and I got to take that kayak and I got to go out there. I'm going to do that someday. Should have done it when I was right there. But um, so I'm sitting there and I finished off the one book I was reading. I talked about it on the, on the, on the uh, Myanmar podcast, Jesuit Sinbade, episode like 294, 3, 2, with William Childress. I read this book about uh, uh, a conversation with, with uh, what's her name? Ansang Suu Kyi from, from, from Myanmar, this, the leader. I finished it. And then I'm like, what do I do now? And I had been carrying in my bag. Took with me a couple books. The Goldfinch, uh, Donna Tartt, some novel. And I brought a hardcover book with me. I abandoned that real fast. I abandoned that in Myanmar and picked up that Ansan Suu Kyi book. And I had this other book with me called Vagabonding. I had this book called Vagabonding. My friend Justin sent it to me. He said, I think you really like this when you're going traveling. I was like, yeah? He goes, yeah. It's about travel. I was like, all right. And he mailed it to me, Amazoned it to me. And uh, see that? Didn't even do a drop from my Amazon link. It's not the right time. This sponsor, this podcast is sponsored by you for posting on social media about my special. Double negative on Netflix now. Two specials for the price of one. Well, you don't pay anything really. Um, and so I had this other book, Vagabonding, that I carried around with me to two different countries, three now in Cambodia, three countries, never cracked it. There's not as much time as you think there'd be for reading out there. You're doing stuff, you're moving. So you have time on like, what, overnight buses? No way. You know, some ferries? Sure, okay. There's not that much time for doing nothing, but this was the beach and I'm settled into fucking doing fuck all. And so I finished that Ansan Suu Kyi book and uh, I'm just pronouncing her name wrong, Kyi maybe, I don't know. And I was like, let me crack this vagabonding. And you should know, I am a slow reader. That Goldfinch book, I've been reading that for about six months. Uh, um, the book I probably talked about a bunch on this podcast, The Fountainhead, it took me almost two years to read that. It's a heavy book. It's a heavy reading book. But it took me almost two years to get through it. Do it, I put it down for a month. I don't read fast. I mean, I read fast when I'm reading, but I don't read fast, fast. By the way, if you want a recommendation right now, I'm reading How to Set a Fire and Why, book I picked up in Costa Rica. There's something great about the fucking book exchange in these hostels. Drop one, pick one. And if you don't have one, just pick one. Drop it off at another hostel. So this book, Vagabonding, I was like, let me crack it. And I'm telling you, I read half of it 
um, within a day. I read three quarters of it within two days. I just sat there. I got some beers. What's the Cambodian beer? Oh, what's that Cambodian beer? What was it called? There was one called Angkor. Yeah, one called Angkor and one called Cambodia. I think called Cambodia. There, you know, there's a different garbage beer in every country. Thailand has the Changs. Um, Chang. Uh, I pluralized it. Uh, Myanmar has Mandalay beer and one other one. Uh, in Thailand, there's also besides Chang, there's also or there's uh, there's a uh, there's Lao for Laos, Lao Dark. Um, what was the other one for Chang? Singa, Singa, S I N G A H A. And Cambodia had these. So drink a garbage beer, switch off, occasionally get a daiquiri from the fucking front desk place. I said, come on, man, make it stronger. Come on, you can't even taste this. Please make it stronger. Here's an extra dollar. Come on, come on, please, please, please. Yeah, okay, sir. 40 bucks for that bungalow. 40 bucks a night. But I mean, there's nothing there. You got to share your bathroom with a bullfrog. There's a fan and there's a mosquito net. Uh, and it's, it's, it's just wood planks. It's heaven, you guys. It's the fucking best. God, I miss that place right now. I'm thinking about it. Every night I could hear the beach lapping up against my fucking, oh, man. And one day it was pouring rain. I mean, pouring. Those torrential rains you only get in, like, Hawaii out here. No, you get on the East Coast in the summertime. Pouring rain. And I just went out, and it was, like, 80 degrees in the rain. And I just got soaked and put half my feet in the water soaking wet the other i just walked along the beach in the rain god damn it that's a fucking fun place and i just committed to doing nothing and i read this book this book called vagabonding by my guest today rolf potts justin was right i was gonna like it and it was all about travel all about long-term travel he starts off by giving you some ideas about like getting started how to plan for it if you've ever had these thoughts, if you hear what I talk about in these podcasts since I've been home, and you, an inkling of you goes, hey, maybe I should do that. Maybe I want to do that. How do I, how do I do it? Get Vagabonding. Man, it's a good book. Full of just travel quotes. He puts a bunch of quotes in it, like on the side. You know how they'll have like an article, uh, whatever, an article, and then like in the article, it'll have like a little like quote. You know, from the article, bigger. He does that, but not a quote from the article, just a separate fucking quote. And he tells you how to do it. So the first small chapter, first small section is getting started, deciding to leave. He says stuff. You'll see it. You'll read it. You'll read it. And he says stuff in there like, once you make the decision to leave, you're already on the trip. You're already gone. Now it's just preparation. You're just preparing to go. Stop buying stuff immediately. I got to write a travel book of my own. I'm going to do that. Why are you guys still listening to this and not watching Double Negative or tweeting about it or Instagramming about it or even Facebooking about it? You should be doing that. Come on. I'm asking you. All right. What a good fucking book. And there's all these quotes, these fun, fun travel quotes. Let me see one. I wrote them down eventually. My greatest skill has been to want little. Henry Henry David Thoreau, Walden. Here's a good one. Here's a good one, and I'll get back to the rest of this introduction. Um, It's about traveling. Who can afford it, right? You can't afford it. How can I go for that long? 
How can I go for that long? There's no way. I'm telling you guys, I spent way more than almost anybody I was with. Way more. And I spent eight grand. Flights included. $8,000 in almost four months. And I spent, I mean, twice as much as other people. There were so many people on a thousand bucks a month out there. And you're not skimping that much. You can't go scuba diving. You can't do crazy shit like that. You can't take the fucking hot air balloon in, in, in Bagan over those fucking temples. But you can do another hot air balloon in Laos for fucking $50. You can't just do the $200 one. You got to budget a little bit. Eight grand. Here's the quote. Ralph Bagnold, Libyan Sands. When I was very young, a big financier once asked me what I would like to do. And I said to travel. Ah, he said. It is very expensive. One must have a lot of money to do that. He was wrong. For there are two kinds of travelers. The comfortable voyager, around whom a cloud of voracious expenses hums all the time, and the man who shifts for himself and enjoys a little discomforts as a change from life's routine. You can do it, you guys, if you want. Get this book. Get this fucking book, Vagabonding. It's so fucking good. So here's what I'm telling you. I, I messed up a, a little bit in this podcast. I was excited, and I think I wanted to impress the guy. So I probably spoke up a little too much. I probably didn't let him go off. I'm going to have him back on, Rolf, at some point. I'm going to have him back on, and then I'm just going to hear about his travel stories. Just what are you done, man? One after another. I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. It's not true. I'm incapable of that. I'm going to keep my mouth relatively shut. But he gives a lot of good fucking tips here. And it was a great talk. We went to Central Park. And we just sat outside and just fucking talked. At some point, a bird almost landed on his hand. It was fucking crazy. He was pointing like do a demonstration about something. And a fucking bird was going to fucking land on his hand. The guy's... Cr- I think he's like touched or something by the same thing Powder had. Also, by the way, besides my um, my special being out, there's one other thing I'm really proud of this week. I did an unmask with Ron Bennington. Ron Bennington, if you know him from the Ron and Fez show, the old Ron and Fez show, now the Ron Bennington show on Sirius. He is, his unmasked, I first heard about him from, from I was illegally downloading a, a, a Jim Norton CD and I saw Unmasked with Jim Norton and I was like, oh, okay, I got, that must be a CD. So I got it. I downloaded it. And it wasn't an album. It was, a, it was an interview by Ron Bennington of Jim Norton. And then he had a series of them. If you like the style I have of interviewing on this podcast, you should know he is my chief influence. He's my number one. He's the guy I look up to as an interviewer. Charlie Rose is great. Stern used to be great. But Ron Bennington from his Unmasked series, that's who I model myself after. Just legitimate questions that I want to know in a real conversation, and it just allows people to open up. You don't ask questions you shouldn't, should get the answers to. You ask the questions you want to get the answers to. And uh, it was a real honor, you guys, to do one myself. I did one at, the, uh, at, the, at Skankfest at the Creek in the Cave with Ron Bennington in front of an audience, and uh, it's, out, it's out today. So that's the second thing I'm proud of today. The first is my special, which you should have already tweeted about now. It doesn't take that long to fucking pause and tweet. Second one is Ron Bennington's Unmasked. 
I'm also going to be on a flood of podcasts for the next few days. So if you get the Laughable app, you can see all the podcasts I've done, and those will upload. For the next three or four days, you'll just see a shitload of them. So if you if you like my podcast and want to see more from me, fucking get to that Laughable app. So anyway, um, so I had this great talk with him. I had this great talk about travel with Rolf Potts, and I was so fucking stoked to do it. I reached out to him on, on Twitter. I reached out to him, and I was like, hey, man. Can you, would you like to do my pocket? You know, I take chances. I've tried to do that with Killer Mike. You know, no real answer. One time he responded, but it didn't go anywhere. Tried to do that with, uh, with, um, uh, what's his name? Fuck, that's delicious. Bronson, uh, fuck, not Bronson Jones. Action Bronson. I want to do Fuck, That's Delicious. That'd be a fun show to do. Anyway. And I reached out to him on Twitter, and I was like, hey, would you like to do my podcast? And he was like, yeah, sure, okay. I was like, you ever in New York? He's like, yeah, I'll be there tomorrow. I was like, oh, fuck, I'm in L.A. And he's like, well, I'll be there for another week and a half. I was like, all right, let's do it. I'm there. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. I was so fucking happy. I look up to this dude. I look up to him for his ability to fucking get off and the way he writes. Get that fucking book, you guys. You'll go through it in, in three days, maybe a week. It's so fucking good. And then what did I do when I finished it? I didn't save it. I didn't bring it back with me. I was on an island in, in, in uh, Indonesia, another island, Lombok, the island next to Bali. And I met some guys, a couple from Seattle while I was taking surf lessons, mastered it, didn't need to keep continue. And they had a friend coming to visit them. They had been traveling for a year, a year. And they had these friends coming from Hawaii to visit them. And we all, they got this Airbnb and we all hung out and drank and talked. And then the next day we got some firewood, went up to a fucking hill we made a little bonfire for ourselves. Got some weed there. A couple caps of mushrooms. Just a couple. Got chased away by some fucking toughs. Some local toughs. But before that, we were all talking. And one of the guys from Washington, from, uh, from, from, or the guy from, from Hawaii who used to live in Seattle with those guys, with that couple, I was telling him about vagabonding. He was like, man, that sounds like a great book. And I was like, yeah. He goes, yeah. I mean, I've wanted to do this stuff. That sounds amazing telling him more and more about what I read. And I was like, would you read it if I gave it to you? And he was like, fuck yeah. And I did. I did give it to him. And he did read it, actually. And he wrote me on Twitter. He wrote me on Twitter, which you guys should all be using right now to fucking tell everyone to watch my special. Here's what he wrote me. He reached out. I forgot about this. Message, inbox. Where is this thing? Well, it's gone. Nope. Nope. Here it is. Adam Fry Pierce. Hey, Ari. Thanks again for vagabonding. That book changed my life. <laughs> Great spending time in Lombok. Ping us next time you're in Seattle, and we'll take you out to our restaurant. They have a restaurant? What the fuck? Hopefully the states aren't driving you too nuts. I guess I responded. Oh, it was in May. It was great, huh? Really makes you see how easy it is and makes you ask if you're getting all you want out of life. Get the book, you guys. If you do like it, make sure to tweet at Rolf and say, I fucking heard you on Ari's podcast. I read your book. Um, I can't wait to read the new one, which will be out now, I guess. Or We talked about it in here. Um, I should know what that is. I'll say it in the outro. No, I'll say it now. Oh, yeah, he's got that book on the Ghetto Boys. I <laughs> can't believe that. So Vagabonding 
was the one I read. Marco Polo didn't go there. Also travel stuff. And then Souvenir. I guess that'll be coming out next year. More about Rolf Potts. Who are these people? Um, yeah, if you want to check him out on his website, rolfpotts.com, R-O-L-F. P-O-T-T-S. Oh, to order signed copies of Rolf's books. Oh, cool. Excellent. Um, yeah, reach out to him. Let him know. He's on Twitter at, you can see it right on here, Rolf Potts, at Rolf Potts, R-O-L-F-P-O-T-T-S. Let him know you enjoy this. It's a fucking long podcast. I shouldn't even do this long an intro, but I wanted everybody to hear my uh, how I found out about this guy. And it turns out, here's the craziest thing. Here's the craziest thing. Do we talk about it in the, in the podcast? We might. We might have. So you know what? I'll save it for the outro. Also in the outro, I'm going to tell you some stuff. Because Rolf, one of the things he says in Vagabonding is keep a journal. And I, So a lot of what he wrote, I was already doing. It was a little intuitive. And also, uh, um, I just got lucky to do some of the things he said. But then some of the things, I mean, he talks about I'll save this for the outro. Baby talks about just saying yes to every invitation. And I had one of my favorite times in, in Vietnam in Ho Chi Minh, wandering out into the other, other districts, way out of District 1, way out to like District 11, and getting invited over for a fucking a day, a night of karaoke with some, some family that didn't even speak English. They just invited me over. Who's this white guy? Come on in. And just had a fucking amazing time getting drunk with these fucking with his family because of him honestly that's 100% because of him because him saying yes my first instinct is oh no no I'm okay but no Rolf Potts says fucking go for it Vagabonding says and I did zero regrets what a great time one of my favorite memories of my whole trip because I read this book anyway in the outro I'm going to go over everything you might need that I wrote down that I think you might need to travel the stuff you should take with you. It might be geared more towards Southeast Asia, but some of it's for everything. Stuff like wet naps. Things like that. Legitimate things I'm telling you should get. I'll save it for the outro. Ladies and gentlemen, really proud of this one. Really proud to get this guy on. And I will tell you before I start that you, in Montreal, I will be there starting Wednesday, this Wednesday the 19th, hosting the Nasty Show, which I'm super fucking stoked on. Me, Godfrey Yamanika, Big J. Okerson, Robert Kelly, Jimmy Carr. Fucking great lineup. Definitely come to that. For sure come to that if you're going to Montreal. I mean, if you're coming, you're probably already getting tickets. If you're not, don't be an idiot. This is one of the best lineups they've had in a long time for the Nasty Show. And I can't believe they're letting me host. So fucking cool. Anyway, let's start the episode. Stay tuned for the outro. I can give you a bunch of travel tips. I'm going to tell you a story or two that I didn't want to say before because I didn't know if we recovered it in this fucking tremendously long podcast with one of the most interesting men I've ever had, a true traveler, a true traveler, Rolf Potts. Skeptic Tank, episode 298, Vagabonding. No, wait, Vagabonder. That's it, Vagabonder. Rolf Potts. Oh, I saw this fucking in Costa Rica. This is a Vagabonder Inn. So was a picture of that too. I took a picture of it. That, the Vagabonder restaurant. I gotta send that to Rolf. Enjoy everybody. We gotta get out of this place.
simple man it's the whole device we uh, yeah I went around the world with no luggage seven years ago and we had one of those on top of a camera no luggage yeah um a little higher okay uh yeah I had what do you mean how'd you do that well I just I've always been into travel minimalism yeah and I bet you are too yeah to a degree I mean once you have like some shit on your back yeah I was trying to convince these ladies in Lombok who were, who were trying to like sell me like blankets and I'm like I have no space and they're like cheap I'm like it's not about cheap yeah, it's about, yeah. So I have to throw out my shirt if I need to borrow that yeah yeah and uh yeah nobody gets that when it's all about the amount of carry you have yeah and then, then the people selling the blankets um you know they don't care I mean I, I think it's no they don't bit, care we're joking with them a, a little bit more rare to be ultra light but I just wanted to see if I could do it and then this company this clothing company that makes clothing with lots of pockets kept uh you know sending me the product and telling me about their product so i said well why don't you guys just sponsor me to go around the world with no luggage with nothing yeah, so what'd well, you do I, just have cargo pants uh, well no, i had a vest it's that this company de- designed a travel vest with pockets on the inside yeah you know, so it's you have to zip open your vest to to access them and uh so i had a, like a spare t-shirt spare socks um iPod at the time I didn't have an iPhone and uh, I just washed my clothes every day so basically I had a spare set of socks underwear and, and a t-shirt and what dry on you or dry like over a motorcycle or something dry overnight yeah um, I, I got, it got to be where I would just take a shower in my clothes yeah. in my underclothes and then just soap the parts that you know usually end up stinking and I, oh, was, yeah. I was as clean I'll as take I've a shower been. in your clothes that's smart yeah 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 and so it got to the point and I don't want to be preachy about no baggage travel because I haven't done a, an entirely no baggage traps uh, trip since but i would see backpackers who travel pretty light and i thought huh they're 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 half their bag is dirty clothes and a bunch of crap that they probably don't use that much for sure that's what it is i got to a yeah. point where it was like and this last time i went first time i really went but like it's just like okay i have six days before i gotta do laundry yeah and so then it's like just building up dirty clothes yeah yeah and so i found myself people said well I wouldn't want to sit next to you on your trip with no luggage. And it's not the no bathing yeah, challenge. It it's yeah. not the no bathing challenge. It's no baggage challenge. Yeah. And so, wow. so I really, I was as clean as I've ever been. Because when I have a bunch of clothes and stuff, when I have spare clothes, I'll go a few days without bathing if, if, if it's nece- necessary, you know, if I don't have good access. Also, if you're um, not going to be around anybody you want to impress. Right. It's like, fuck it. Right. <laughs> Who cares? <laughs> well, yeah. If I it's mean, just like three dudes somewhere yeah, yeah and you're like you stink I'm like yep sure do yeah you do a little or you know there's places I mean sometimes you're sleeping rough or whatever but other times you're in a place in India with a bucket shower and it's just sort of a hassle actually a bucket shower is worth it at the time and I don't want to sell myself as a guy who never showers but my point is, is that <laughs> I was super clean because I had to be because I yeah. had to wash the next day's clothes every day and dry it overnight uh, and so it, it worked, worked well how, how soon okay how soon does stuff like that just become your new norm you know, where, where, like, where'd you grow up? Kansas. Kansas. Where that would probably be unheard of to just wash your clothes every single day. Yeah. And then at some point it becomes like, 
I guess this is what I do, right? Or does it not become that? Is it oh, always it, like what the totally, fuck? That was part of the problem because I had you know the reason we got started got uh, started talking about this was your recording equipment, and yeah. I had a cameraman with me, and he had a very similar setup for the audio. Um, oh right. And narratively, the challenge of no baggage sort of went away after one week because I just got used to it. Right? Yeah. And then and so then the the videos we made were about ended up being about the things I did. Um, which was fun because I, I could Things focus. you did, what do you mean? Um, going on safari in, in Africa or, or getting lost. Like, you know, the, the nice travel writing. Like we went to, when we were in Morocco, we were asking for a taxi and we said we want to go, we wanted to go to Chef Shawin, but we didn't know how it was pronounced. It was just a word on a piece of paper. So yeah. we said, we want to go to Chef Chuan. And really it's, it's a French translation of, 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 of or transliteration of Arabic. And so we were pronouncing the American way, and we are here Chef Chuan, and the text driver was like, Tetuan? And we are here, yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> the, those Chef Chuan and Tetuan are two completely different cities that uh-huh. are like three hours away. And so he let us out in Tetuan, and we wandered the city for like two hours with a camera rolling before we realized, <laughs> like, the maps. And it's amazing how... Um, like we, we, even though the map made no sense, we sort of tried to make it make sense. Yeah. You know? It was literally the wrong city, but we were trying to like figure Wait, okay, out what I the think we're was. here. I saw. I think exactly. I saw a statue over there. Yeah, and there's this weird optimism that attaches itself to those situations until it's like, finally, we taught, We were asking some guy, and he's here. That hotel, you know, or market or whatever we were asking about is not is not here. And it's like, well, we're in, we're in, Chef Chuan, and they're here. Chef Chuan, you're in Tetuan. And you mean Chef Shawin? And it's like, oh, oh wait a maybe? second. Yeah, so we ended up having <laughs> an entire video here? about coming to the wrong town in Morocco. Fuck yeah. And just like, it ended up being awesome. It was market day, and, and uh, we met this kid who showed us around, who of course needed a tip later. But uh, yeah. So the, the videos ended up being about that. And one nice thing is that we didn't have to worry about looking over baggage, storing baggage, and we just, everything came with us. That does become a lot of it. Like, what, what am I going to do with my stuff? Yeah. You know, yeah. especially if you're going like treks, let's say, where yeah. like, oh, this 50 liters is way too much to carry for three days. Yeah. So I have to figure out a way to ship it to the next city or something. Yeah, or leave it with the hotel. And yeah, leave it with are, the hotel and hope. Are people trustworthy? Do they know? Um, and then also, then you have to go back to that spot. Right, you can't exactly. move on. Exactly, yeah. Um, and yeah, even just like jumping off a train, you have a two-hour layover on a train. Do you want to carry all your stuff around? Yeah. I mean, you can lock it up. A lot of European train stations in particular have lockers. But if, if, if you have no baggage, if it's just your socks in, in a pocket of your vest, then you can just... Yeah. Um, it's like traveling... Well, it's literally traveling with no luggage at all. Plus, even those lockers, that means if you have two hours, you've got to take up 15 to 20 minutes to like find where the lockers are, right. do the thing, and then get off. Right. You know? Yeah. Which cuts into your time. Yeah. Man, that'd be cool with no luggage. I knew yeah. a girl who, who always tried to build up when she traveled instead of down. Okay, yeah, So yeah. she would go with a t-shirt or two. Yeah. And the jeans on her. And she's like, I'll buy shit when I get there. That, that's a great way of doing things, I think. Because the world is full of humans who have the ba- same basic needs. Yeah. I remember moving to Asia and it's like, should I bring toothpaste? <laughs> yeah, that's oh, what yeah. I did. <laughs> I think Koreans brush their yeah. teeth. You know, Thai yeah. people brush their teeth too. It's not, I'm not going I tried to, to bring like seven deodorants and my buddy was like, dude, that's, first of all, they're all over, you know, TSA's not going to let you travel with any of those. And yeah. second of all, um, they have it there, man. You're okay. Yeah. I, I think that's a common trend. I mean, we surround ourselves with so much 
stuff and so many comforts when we're at home, and that's fine, but you can't stuff it into a backpack. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're pretty minimal, even if you have a, even a big backpack, you're still cutting down your home life quite a bit. I went on a Land Rover expedition once where, like, the, uh, the expedition leader was taking, like, two gallons of mouthwash, you know? Really? Um, because I think he, really? was used to, he was used to using mouthwash, and he was afraid he wouldn't find it, and obviously he hadn't thought too much about travel. Um, <laughs> okay, well, you're going to um, travel two gallons of anything. <laughs> yeah, and, and so... Um, uh, and it's like, well, brush your teeth, you know? Like, mouthwash is actually something that was probably invented, like, in the 30s to sell mouthwash, you know? <laughs> to, um, for the purpose of selling whatever chemical they had. Right. Yeah, you know, well, I've heard... Um, I listen to a lot of podcasts, so I'm full of useless information. But halitosis was basically invented... It's not a thing. Really? It was invented by, um, in, like, the... Um, I don't know if you would say the mouthwash industry. Um, it's like the douche, right? The douche was invented. Where it was never necessary. It was never necessary. It was ma- basically in the 19 teens. They took out magazine ads to make women feel insecure. It's like you don't want your husband to think that you're a, a dirty so person and yeah. have yeah, and all the euphemisms associated. So, um, you ever see um, uh, um, Carnival? That TV show? I didn't. I know. I, I'm familiar with it, but I haven't seen There's it. There's one scene where one of the guys is dating a hooker, I guess, uh, or married to her, and she has a yeast infection, so he takes up some old Coca-Cola and just shakes it, and then takes a sip, and then shakes it, and then gives it to her, and she just sticks it up there. Okay. And sprays it out. That was the way you, that was the douche back in then, those days, I guess. I wonder if that was back when they still had cocaine in the Coca-Cola. Yeah, maybe, to really clean you out. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, but yeah, our, our home lives are surrounded by those sorts of products, you know. Uh-huh. And I think sometimes you can learn how independent you are of those when you're traveling, you know, because you can worry. I mean, actually. Yeah, now, for sure. Like, how many women have actually taken douche on the road? I mean, women don't douche anymore as far as I can tell but it, like in, in the hippie trail in the 70s were there, were there poor women who thought that they needed to take no way hygiene yeah so it forces you to, to decide what bullshit things we have in our house that we think we need we don't really need you know? dude the women's hygiene uh, and if you traveled if you backpacked in the 60s and 70s must have been uh, vastly different than, <laughs> than now it must have just been a stink factory versus like yeah. the amount of grooming you can actually do now on an easy level Oh, that's true. And, and, and access to things. You know, I suspect, I mean, you can romanticize a different generation of travel, but probably if, you were, if it was 1972 and you were on the hippie trail in India, then you basically use the same products that Indian women use. Right. You know? Unless you're completely self-involved. But even, I think it was harder to be a completely self-involved Westerner in another country because you couldn't just email your mom and ask her about the Coca-Cola fix or whatever. You basically right. had to you had to problem solve in real time. And so I suspect there's a lot of women um, who, when they were backpackers in the, during that hippie trail era, which is one of many eras of travel, who just asked the local, you know, shyly asked the, the, uh, an Indian woman <laughs> what they did and probably got a better answer than whatever the giant corporation was yeah, selling. Yeah, probably like a United unique States. thing. Yeah. Where it's like, oh, no, we never thought about that. Like, yeah, have you ever you used know, bath soap? Technique. I mean, <laughs> yeah. you've been to Southeast Asia recently, uh-huh. right? I mean, they bathe all the time there, Thais in particular, yeah. you know. Um, and those bucket showers yeah. are su- surprisingly refreshing, especially yeah. when it's hot out. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's almost, and you know, in the U.S., we usually ritually bathe every day. It's not, that's not unusual, but there's something more central to bathing in, in Southeast Asian cult- cultures. They, I've noticed, like in Myanmar, I noticed that they, it's sort of like a group bath where they'll bathe each other. You know what I mean? Like I'll okay, dump yeah. water on yeah. you because you can't get all the spots or something, or maybe you got to use both your hands for, for scrubbing. Yeah. Or maybe even beyond practical considerations, it's just a social thing, you know? Yeah. Um, I, when I was in Cam- Cambodia, and this is when I was really early in my Asian vagabonding, 
I was at a village. I wrote a story about it for Salon way back in the day when Salon had a travel department. Um, and I was a guest of a village, and I didn't speak any Cambodian. I knew a few phrases of Thai. Nobody spoke English. And so I was just sort of being shunted through the, the rituals of the village that day. It was up in northwestern Cambodia, sort of a lot of landmines out there at the time. And it was like being five years old or even like three years old. I couldn't understand anything. I wasn't really sure what was going on. And one thing was they, it's like, okay, time to take a bath. And like the whole village is watching. And it's like, it's embarrassing, right? Out, it's like, do I take off my clothes? Yeah. Um, but I had, I had bought this little um, bolt of cloth that was sort of sarong-like, and that's how they bathe. They don't get naked in front of their neighbors. They, they, they put on their up. sarong, uh-huh. um, and they bathe. It's almost like a, they treat it like a swimsuit, and then they go down to the water source, which was a pond in this situation, and they bathed. And, and actually, everybody looked at me, and I'm a pretty pasty guy, and I'm sure it was yeah. the most exciting thing that had happened in Opusat, Cambodia <laughs> yeah. that day. Uh, but that's something else that you, that, that, that you learn from traveling. You know, just obviously... There weren't that many health soap products, for example, in that village, but people bathed every day and were very clean. So, I like how you eventually get to the place where you like you get a bar of soap and you're like, I'll take that with me from spot to spot, and it just gets dirty, but you save the packaging that it's in. And you're like, that's good enough, and it is. It really is. Yeah, um, yeah. It's amazing how complicated. I'm not a scientist, but how many how many centuries did humans live without the compounds that go into conditioner or mm-hmm. whatever? Um, I, I have a friend who stayed in New Orleans after Katrina and after a month of not having shampoo his hair just sort of evened out you know that after years of washing the natural oils out of his hair um, it came back I think the hair becomes oily as a response to um, having it cleaned out and it comes back and there's an equilibrium and, and uh, models don't take uh, don't use shampoo a lot really yeah yeah. they stink sometimes because the 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 shampoo dries out the hair or something. It doesn't look as beautiful. Interesting. Interesting. I mean, back in the grunge era when I had long hair, I, I stopped Did you shampooing. Really? Yeah, because it was easier to comb. <laughs> yeah. And I'm, you know, I'm no expert in soap. I'm thinking out loud here, but it feels like I think travel makes you realize just the, the non necessity. That thing that you can, you keep one bar of soap. You wash. You, you and I both have the same hair right now. It looks like. Yeah. You wash your hair with it. You Balling wash your pits with it. <laughs> yeah. Um, exactly. And then your life is simple. All Dude, of a sudden, I shaved my head before I went. This yeah. last time. So I was like, I'll be gone for three months. I don't want to have to cut my hair. Yeah. So you shave it, and then it's just soap. Soap everywhere. Underarms, top of the head. Yeah, yeah. It's no, just it's, good. I, I'm, I'm a believer in that. Yeah. I have to put a hat on then, because I you look, uh, scorch the top of my head. Gingy-ish? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, was born, I was born very coppery ginger, and it's slowly... That um, must pose challenges for you, for either for being out there with the sun, and also people staring at you. At you. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, one thing I liked about... Asia, or I came to like about Asia is I was obviously not from there, mm-hmm. and I remember I, I wasn't one of those guys who went to Europe in high school or something. The first time I went to Europe was from Asia when I was 28 years old or something, and I remember the disappointment of being in Russia and and places where I wasn't obviously not from there. Um, and so there's something nice about being obviously the pasty guy, yeah. but but then um, like I have sun damage. In fact, you can sort of see. Um, like my forearms and my lips in particular, the, those seven years in Asia and especially the five in Southeast East Asia and the Middle East yeah. have just given me sun damage. That Dude, I didn't know lips could burn until I got out there. Yeah, yeah. Until you're like, what the, what's wrong with me? Did I eat something? Did I have too many sunflower seeds? And you're like, oh no, they've just been out in the 11, you know, UV index Yeah, yeah. for and it's, weeks at a time. And it, yeah. No, I, I used to have a big um, uh, brown splotch on my lips almost the size of a dime it took up uh, much of the lower half of my lip and it was a giant freckle basically really I went to the dermatologist and, and they said well we'll 
will get this frozen nitrogen and if it falls off it's not a problem and if it comes back it is and it fell off oh. um, but I just had so much sun exposure without even thinking about it um, I, I sometimes I put on sunscreen but not on my lips it was weird no I started getting that that um, whatever the lipstick sunscreen yeah yeah but yeah. you couldn't find it everywhere they're like I don't know what you're talking about yeah yeah um, yeah I, the pictures of my days of those early backpacking days in Southeast Asia are funny because I didn't have much and there's not I have big feet they didn't have a lot of Dude, shoes that, how, that, what, what size are you? I think these are 13 these are uh, Blundstones I'm an 11 and a half and just okay. to find sandals was like forget it yeah it's no, you, not gonna happen yeah. and they try to convince you like so that whatever there's I think I'm a 45 European so they're like 43 yeah. is fine I'm like it's totally not fine they're like it'll stretch they try to sell you on shit yeah I'm like yeah. the sole is not gonna stretch maybe the, the top part that holds you in no I was so stupid looking for like I the pants were too short my pants were too short yeah. I mean I didn't care I was such a I was such a gung-ho vagabonder in those early days you know I, I didn't I didn't care at all about what I looked like uh, but no sunscreen I was wearing just these ratty old Cambodia flag shirts and pants that didn't quite fit and flip flops yeah. you know where my back of my foot was hanging off and, and so it's funny it was a very pure way of travel um, but yeah and you know in, in retrospect who cares about what I was wearing but I probably should have had sunscreen on my lips yeah. you know so I, I literally sure, have to put on lipsticks every day now or else my lips crack so. damn Oh, you're going to get cancer. I've already committed to the fact that I'm definitely going to get it. Yeah. 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 Well, my, my dad has to go for treatments. He hasn't had cancer, but he has to go to the dermatologist twice a year, and that's my fate once really? in the past. Yeah, I made a decision. I'm like, I'm happier with the sun, so yeah. I'll just I'll get cancer. Yeah. No. I'm just, I'll do the trade-off now yeah. <laughs> instead of staying in every day, all day. Did you start with... Okay. Oh, I have a bunch of questions. Vagabonding. Did you have that term while you were first traveling, or is that something you came up with later while you were writing? Um... It came up through my writing. It was specific to a trip I took that I started in 1998 and, and came into full bloom in 1999. My first vagabonding trip was in 1994. Um, I finished school. I worked as a landscaper for a year in Seattle and then and then um, traveled for a year and lived in a van. And that was vagabonding. I may have called in it America? vagabonding. In America? In North America, yeah, okay. Canada and the U.S. Um, but then... I had a website really early. I had my own website in 1998, and so I decided to... That is early. ...to say that I was vagabonding into the millennium. And it was just this dumb phrase, right? Yeah. Um, and then it turns out... Uh, and so I, I sort of... I had that word in my quiver, I guess, before then, but I didn't... I guess it, it, it started... It dovetailed with my writing, which I started writing a column for Salon.com back when they had a travel department about my adventures. And so my editor thought vagabonding into the millennium was too long and a little bit corny, so we just called it vagabonding. And then... Yeah, that makes sense. I made my... As I... As people were... As I had this column in Salon and people were writing me with questions, uh, a lot of them were asking, uh, well, how do you become a travel writer? Uh, and I didn't know, so I started interviewing travel writers. And now I'm, I've been doing it for 17 years, and I've interviewed like 250 travel writers. You interview travel writers? Yeah. That's how you... Interesting. Um, but it's just Q&A. It's not a podcast or anything. And the other one is, how can you travel for so long? Are you rich? And it's like, no, I'm not rich. It's, and so... But what I felt was... Had made the difference was not how to pack my bag or not how to get a cheap ticket on a bus, but the philosophical stuff. So I did a I did an eleven point list called a I didn't want to call it a manifesto. I didn't want to tell anybody what to do. I called it a suggestifesto. And it's the philosophical stuff. <laughs> <Like that. laughs> I'm from the Midwest. Too many so. times people go, "Here's how you got to do it." Right. And you're like, "Fuck you!" Then I'll try to rebel against you. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. No. I mean, they just to me they were good ideas and they were more important than me than how to roll up my socks so it fits better in a backpack. Yeah. And it's stuff like right. right. It, 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 
you know, it's which is like, also important. Which which counts, you know, <laughs> yeah. if, if socks are a big part of how you travel. Uh, yeah. So is, what, is what that, is, what's in there? In where the suggestifesto? Oh, well, it, it ended up being. I think I could go to the Internet Archive and find it because I took it down once I had a book contract for vagabonding. But basically, each point became a chapter of vagabonding, and so there was like. Um, Meet your neighbors. Uh, take it slow. A lot of the time wealth stuff. Uh-huh. I don't think I, I don't think one of my chapters is called time equals wealth, but just the idea that your experience is more important than uh, than anything else. You know that, that that basically that you have to those early chapters which say do it now. You know you, yeah. you don't have to wait until you're older until you have X amount of dollars. It's it's it, um, make your money pay off an experience. You know, uh, and so it was, it was that kind of stuff. It was. Stuff from Thoreau and Whitman and, and the mm-hmm. Upanishads and the Bible and, and uh, all the old wisdom that people forget sometimes when they're worried about how to roll their socks. And so that's what caught the attention of... It's a great book, man. Thank you. I read it. There was one I saw in there. I read it while I was in Cambodia on an island, I told you. Did you like a, find it in Cambodia or bring it with you? No. My, my uh, friend Justin said, hey, you're going. Um, let me send you this book. Awesome. And he did. And then I handed it off to somebody who was... I met these these other travelers, a couple that was from Seattle, I think, mm-hmm. actually. I met them in, in Lombok, okay. in Indonesia. Okay. And then their friend was coming... They've been going for a year. Their friend was coming to visit them for like a week. And uh-huh. he was like thinking about it. And I was telling him about this book. He was like, that sounds amazing. I'm like, I'm, let me give this to you. I'm done with it. Awesome. And he was like, yeah, yeah that sounds perfect. And yeah. he just said like, dude, I read it. It's fucking... I got to get out. I got to fucking change my life. Love, love to hear that. Um and, yeah, yeah, I mean, all the stuff I had circled, I'm like, let me write some of this down real quick, <laughs> you know? Yeah. But I'm like, it's a better home for it than some hostel or yeah. bringing it back just so I have. I hear that story a lot. And actually, one of my dreams is for it to be, uh, like, uh, counterfeited and sold in the markets of Vietnam, you know? <laughs> yeah. Because when I was there years ago, I saw all these books of, you know, uh, locally famous books and then also classics. And I thought, someday, you know, when my book comes out, Your I want it to be... There. be I want it to be pirated and sold in the markets. I didn't see it anywhere, but that would have been a great find at a hostel. You know, the book exchange? Yeah, yeah, At yeah. hostels where you're like, yeah. I'm done, let me... Which I love, by the way, because then it's like... Uh, it's sort of like the fate deciding what you're going to read next instead of all the choice yeah. in the world. I, I like the idea that it's... it's um, This one. It's out there on the road, too, because I think sometimes people start travel but haven't really thought the process through. You know, yeah. the, whole, the whole existential aspect of it. You know, they, they know the socks part, but not the make the most of each day be counterintuitive don't you don't have to do you don't have to like um rebel against everything but you don't have to do the same do what's thing supposed that all to the, be yeah like when you said when you went to what city did you mess up oh chef chawin yeah i found that if you're like fuck i missed my bus now i'm stuck in here it's like well i was only going to go to a place that i heard about two days ago anyway Exactly. So now i'm in this other place and great i have this amazing adventure here yeah that i wouldn't have planned it's not in any book or yeah. it might be in a book I haven't read, but like, oh, this is also an amazing experience. We're already in the place. Wherever you are, you're in the place. Yeah, and and I think too, like, Chefchaouen is a beautiful city, but Tetuan was full of uh, it was just Moroccans on Market Day, you know, which che- is fucking great. Chefchaouen, I think, like Joni Mitchell went there or something, and so it has yeah. a sort of expat scene. And and not to knock, you know, I don't want to knock anybody for their travel habits, but sometimes the place where you thought you wanted to go is full of other people who also thought they wanted to go there. Um, who are also from Akron or Des Moines yeah. or, or Brooklyn, and and that's fine. But sometimes that the weird town where you're the celebrity just for being there, for being the. Do the, we shut down a market in uh, in somewhere in Sean State, Myanmar, where you're not supposed oh, to really stay? Okay, but we I got bet. yeah, we were just like fuck it, let's go local buses up there. Yeah, and 
apparently not allowed to sleep there if you're a foreigner. Um, yeah. We had to get permission from some minister to like let us stay for the night. Right. But since no one's there, yeah, you know, walking through, especially as like a white white person, they just stop and just yeah. like w- like business stops while it's like a sea of a yeah. wave as you go of just like what the fuck is this? Yeah, yeah. It's great, man. It's so much fun. And if you can get <laughs> past so that self consciousness, and like Henry Rollins said when you when you talked to him before, that idea that I'm here to meet you. you oh, I loved using that. I yeah, use yeah. that all the time. Yeah. No, what are you doing here in this country? I'm like, I'm here to meet you, and they're like, wow, really? It, it disarms them. <laughs> I'm jealous uh, for Henry Rollins ha- having that phrase. That's such a great phrase. Uh-huh. You know? I've practiced a version of that before, but that's perfect. You know, I'm, I'm here to meet you, and that's and that's what's fun about travel. There's a lot of things that are fun about travel, but um, yeah, showing up in the wrong town and, and winging it anyway. I, I think sometimes one, as Americans, we're a little bit too locked into our plans, uh-huh. and we feel like we failed if our plans have not played out. Um, but then also we're a little afraid of the unknown. It's like, oh, well, there's th- there's this wonderful blue market in, in Chefchaouen that, that I, I'm supposed to be at. Well, like, okay, well, buddy, you fucked up and you're in Tetuan. Yeah. What's going on in, in Tetuan? Yeah. And, and, um, and that's when some really fun stuff starts to happen, you know? Yeah, you're right. When you have to stay, you can't make it overnight to some other place and all of a sudden you find some gambling ring and some Right. Some market there. You're like, and, all right, I'll do this for a while. And, and then you're the five year old. You can barely communicate. You can't read the signs. You know, you're trying to figure out what's going on. People, people like to help people. You know, and they, they think it's sort of amusing that you're the big, pasty, awkward American guy who uh-huh. can't figure out where where to piss. Uh, and so those are great. Those, those are that's a great a great way to go. And something I think. You know, vagabonding is about long-term travel, and I think the more you travel long-term, you realize you don't have to rush. You don't have to abide by the urgency of your itinerary or your bucket list. Right. And then, and so, of course, the, the, the awesome stuff is you, you wouldn't have thought to put the awesome stuff, on, a lot of the awesome stuff on your bucket list because you don't know about it yet, you know, because you haven't made the mistakes that have led you into those great discoveries or forced you to just slow down and say, okay, I'm, I'm not sure where I am, but those kids are playing soccer, and so... Um, if they, they invited me, so I'll play soccer for a while. Where Dude, do I have how to amazing is that when kids... I mean, I don't understand why, because here I'd be like, no, I'm not playing with you fucking kids. Yeah. But there it just seems like... Maybe it's... Is it because they're the only ones you can communicate with on some level? Probably. Where, like, if you get invited probably. to one of their games, it's like, oh, this is so much fun. And they have time for you. you uh-huh. know? And, and they don't care. It's the funniest thing yeah. they've ever seen, you know? Uh, <laughs> yeah, they yell at you and they bring you over, especially yeah. in places where you don't look like them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're hilarious in a certain sense. I mean, you probably remember being a kid and, and you know, seeing some weird guy show up. You uh-huh. know? Uh, so it's fun. It, it, it's a blast. And, and that, I don't know, I really enjoy that sort of thing. Um, uh, I learned more- when I was in uh, um, Timor-Leste, East Timor, mm-hmm. I learned the words for rock, paper, and scissors. Okay. And I tried teaching them rock, paper, scissors. Okay. And at okay. first they were like, what is this? And then I kept that. And then like, they got it after a while. And it was like fun. That's I'm like, great. all right, spread that. That's great. Yeah. No, that, that's, I think if you can bring yourself back to that age and realize how pre-verbal a lot of the fun was. Uh-huh. Um, I taught, of course, this is a verbal thing, but I taught, I was in this valley in, in, in Laos and, and I taught these kids Old MacDonald had a farm. Really? Yeah. But they just, they did the E-I-E-I-O. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it's, it's different, you know, it's, it's like, um, yeah, they're, they're not busy. They're, 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 they're open in a way that that's a lot of fun. So. Yeah. So you talk about, you talked about, um, letting go of like, uh, of like your predisposed, like I have plans. I have to be here and here and here. So in your, in the book in Vagabonding, uh, you've written another book since then, right? Did you just come up, come up with one? Yeah, well, I have a collection of travel stories called Marco Polo Didn't Go There. 
Marco Polo didn't go That's there. That's been out there for a while. Okay. And then I wrote a book about gangster rap, and then I have another book about souvenirs coming out in the spring. So. Oh, okay. And next spring? Next spring, yeah. The book process must be forever, huh? Yeah, it's an academic publisher. It's Bloomsbury. Um, and it's not an academic book, but it's a little bit... It, it's not... Um, it's not just storytelling like Marco Polo didn't go there. I actually, it's like a cultural history of souvenirs. Um, it's funny in places and it's personal in places, but it's a little more, it's more of a deep dive yeah. um, than a broadly Rolf-flavored narrative. Do you read Joan Didion at all? Oh, yeah. 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 I like that. It seems like new style of, and you seem to use it a little bit of like, I'm, I'm showing you stuff, but also I'm here. I'm in it. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Um, no, I'm a, um, she's a great model for, for that kind of essay, of sort of gently reminding you who, of who is writing the essay, uh-huh. but you have a point of view, and I think that's important with travel writing because... Um, it's like fiction and nonfiction at the same time. Well, it uses the devices of fiction yeah. um, in, in crafting a story, and you know, by the rules of journalism, you can't completely go into fiction, but you can use foreshadowing. You, know? mm-hmm. you, can, you can use people having dialogue in the manner of a conversation... Uh, that might have a parallel in short stories, um, and so so there's there's this belief in in journalism that you have to be purely objective. There's there's this joke uh, where you know a journalist walks into a bar, gets shot in the shoulder, staggers back to his office, and writes, "A journalist was allegedly shot at a bar this <laughs> afternoon." Um, you know the idea that you write yourself out of the story, um, and so travel writing is is very. I think if you don't acknowledge that you have a point of view in travel writing, it goes back to those old colonial tropes where you're just sort of the outsider passing judgment and being God on a mountain talking about what Burma is like or, or what India or, or Uruguay is like. And I think it, as long as you remind the reader that you're the person having this experience, then it takes away that veneer of false authority. Yeah, because you're not an authority. You've been there for two weeks yeah. or something like that. Which is part of the fun yeah. of, of travel writing is that you have fresh eyes. You're going through this process that's, that's part bliss and part freaking out and um it makes for a really good narrative space you know um and you and you're writing stories about a place that the people who live there might not think to tell you know that they, it's they're mm-hmm. in the water you know that, because they don't know they don't really care right you're in the water yeah um you know the idea that that david foster wallace joke about what? two fish are swimming through the water and an adult fish swims by and says hey boys how's the water Big fish swims off. Little fish turns to the other little fish and says, "What the fuck is water?" <laughs> yeah. So when yeah. you're when you're at home, you're in the water. You know, you stop paying attention um, to your to your surroundings in a certain sense. Yeah. Um, and that's why I don't talk about this a lot in vagabonding. But uh, the last chapter is is about going home with that with that with the eyes of travel. You know, and and realizing how much you've been missing and how long how much that point A to point B routine that you fall into at home is limiting your experience of, of daily life so well um yeah i like that that chapter too because i so i read that the one thing i took from that chapter was like people are not going to be interested in your stories so yeah. be careful ahead of time yeah. so i was real careful coming back yeah three and a half months gone of going like if you want to ask me about it i'll tell you yeah but at this at the first hint of like seem bored i'll just change the subject yeah because i get it the idea that you were invited to lunch let's say with some locals on the surface, they're like, all right, so you had lunch somewhere. They're like, oh, no, no, man. When you get invited, when you don't even speak their language, and they take you into their home, make you part yeah. of their family for, for five hours. It's just some weird, like, awesome, unique experience. But, like, it doesn't make any sense unless you're there for a while. Yeah. And I, I think sometimes there's a, a little bit of a defensiveness of people who aren't traveling. You know, there's a little, I don't know if it, resentment is the word. Oh, maybe. But um, it, it's just like they assume it's bragging. 
but it's not. You're just yeah. trying to ex- talk about something that excited you. And so that's, that's something... I, I just learned that the hard way early on. It was after my North American trip where I wasn't even someplace exotic. But I was just so excited about it. And then people are like, okay, yeah, whatever, you know. And Anyway, did you hear about Marsha? back to the <laughs> yeah. local gossip, you know. Yeah. Um, it's just a different conversational pattern. And, yeah, so that's, that's cool that you were cognizant of that yeah. I, mean, I realized at some point like yeah you're probably right yeah no one's gonna give a fuck about this my friend went to china he loves illegal fireworks okay steve and uh, he tries to get pretext to go to china yeah well he went for a tour for a comedy tour okay but he's always whenever he comes to chinatown he's always like do you have the good stuff in the back and they're like beat it narc we don't want it. he's like damn it and there's this video he made of him finding chinese fireworks and setting them off and it's just this dark street and then he like lights him off and then towards the end of the video a fucking full bus goes by and you're like oh this is not an abandoned street at all this huh. is just a working street that you're just lighting off fireworks and he's in china he's in china yeah and you know I everything goes there um, and, and i love the idea of, of the vice like that's his thing he's not going to the opium right and and you know he's not one of these guys who's obsessed with with rare butterflies it's the fireworks yeah that, that's what i love about travel too is that you can find whatever you're nerding out on yeah. know, and find the local iteration. Uh-huh. You can find... I remember when I was in Myanmar um, finding like tapes of Myanmar musicians and this was in like 2001 wow. which was pre-opening up and it was like this is the, the Burmese Cypress Hill. I mean, it's like Cypress Hill could probably sue these guys for, for stealing. It, it could have even been just like Burmese language cover songs. Of, of They do Burmese language cover songs a lot. Yeah. Where you'll hear some on the radio and you're like, on one of those buses, and you're like, wait, I know this song. I've heard this song before, but that, this is not English. That could have been what it was, you know, whatever, however insane in the brain translates yeah. <laughs> into Burmese. Uh, and so that was part of the fun of it is that you can, and I know a guy who used to write for my blog um, sort of takes a punk rock he, 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 he seeks out music scenes in places like Malaysia and Indonesia and, and, and parts yeah. of Asia or Bangladesh I think he wrote an article about black metal in Bangladesh um, wow. and so I, my point being is that whatever obsesses you that's actually more interesting than, than just sort of following the top 10 list and on, on, the, on the website that says what yeah. you should do in a place I met some Australian guy and he was talking about how there's a vibrant um, skate community in Yangon yeah, yeah and you're like that. you just don't picture when you think of that era you're not picturing that but it's like yeah but you picture New York there's basketball players and handball players and skaters and like, yeah. there's lots of different scenes yeah and I think skate, skateboarding in particular is, is a very American idiom right mm-hmm. you know uh, California in particular and so I had a I, I talk about vagabonding a lot and, and once at a university lecture a guy came up to me afterwards and he, and he basically said my skateboard is my ticket everywhere because while people are in Paris looking at the sites they think they're supposed to see I'm, I'm skating everywhere and I'm hanging out with these you know, French and Senegalese French and Algerian French skateboarders yeah. think it's awesome that, you know, I'm not from California, I'm from Kansas, but they think it's awesome that an American skateboarder. And so that becomes the idiom. And suddenly it's a window into a place and a community that he, you wouldn't have if you were just doing your top 10 bucket list of things to see. Yeah, in exactly. Skating near the Eiffel Tower or something like that. It's like, yeah, yeah. yeah. I like going hiking in every country I can. Yeah. You know, yeah. just to be like, saw the countryside. Yeah, no, that's great. The, the pace at which you go affects things too like I tried to walk across Israel 17 years ago really? yeah from what Jerusalem and Tel Aviv? Um, yeah um, I went up to Capernaum I was trying to do it Jesus style yeah. so I went up to Capernaum <laughs> um, where he's from uh, but it was like in May it was so hot oh uh, yeah and, and so I um, I didn't make it I made it to Megiddo uh, and then I started hitchhiking but the great thing about I had this cowboy hat and the great thing about hitchhiking in Israel is that you're, you're also a novelty as an American 
Mm-hmm. And so a couple girls picked me up hitchhiking. Like I never get picked up by women when I hitchhike. Like young, like 20, cute 25-year-old Israelis. Yeah. And so they took me to Tel Aviv and we had a great time. Especially as white as you look. They're like, okay, that's yeah. fine. Yeah. No, I, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm actually... I like hitchhiking. You just point out, right? Is that how it is? It's not the thumb. It's the finger. I used my thumb, okay. which I think with the cowboy hat helped underscore my foreignness <laughs> yeah. there. Um, Israel <laughs> yeah. is one of the few places where I, I don't, I guess I don't look Jewish. It's one of the places where people are, oh, are you, you're American, are you Jewish? Um, usually I don't get that. Yeah. yeah. Um, but then also, like, I had, my, my hair was really long in my passport photo, but I had, it was short when I was crossing the border. And again, there's these, there's these cute border guard ladies and they're they're like they're taking forever and it's like shit am i in trouble or something and they're like arguing over whether i looked better with long hair or short hair <laughs> and so um uh so I, I i had a great time there too um one w- walking was good because i it was such a slow pace at which to to experience the place and there's mm-hmm. great a great trail system in, in, in israel and then oh, two, is really? once i was two yeah yeah the topographical maps everything it's like hiking in france or something it's a very well documented trail system um and then two is that once I wimped out on the hike, you know, yeah. once I realized I didn't want to die of dehydration, uh, I started hitchhiking and it shot it into a completely different direction and a completely different pace. Um, and I, I actually, I met more people. I was, I sort of had a loner experience when I was hiking in that situation. Um, whereas when I was hanging out with, um, gosh, what, what were their names? Yifat and I forget. Anyway, yeah. then suddenly I was hanging out with their friends in Tel Aviv. Like like that, I was in, you know, Israel's not a very big country. There is something to um, the social, I guess, fact, the uh, part of traveling, where it's like there's some ways you can do it where you're just not going to meet anybody, and there's other places where it's like you have no choice but to meet people. Yeah. Like on the buses on the way to a tour or something, where like you're stuck next to somebody yeah. Yeah, for yeah. two hours while you're on this bus, and you're like, so where are you from? Like you just have to, you have to talk. That's why I'm a big fan of taking a bus to a place you don't know. Yeah. You know, we've talked about going to the wrong town. Because 90% of the time, it's going to be half full of people who live there. Yeah. And so the person sitting next to you is suddenly going to be your window into this place that you know nothing about. Oh, it's the best, dude. Like, where where should I eat? What's the good places? And they're like, okay. And people love talking about it. Yeah, yeah. That happened. That happened in Syria once. That like I was. I mean, this was Syria seventeen years ago. So. but I was with this guy, and he, like he's Kurdish, and I'm, I'm, I didn't hardly know anything about Kurd, Kurds. Yeah. But I, but I ended up staying with his family for like three days, you know, just because I was the, the, the lost-looking guy on the bus to, um, oh, what was that called? It's, it's in the news a lot now. Now that Syria has become such a sad, Aleppo? war-torn place, not not Aleppo, but um, uh, was it the one to, they, they not Kamishli. Kamishli. I'm probably pronouncing it wrong. But it's on the Turkish-Syrian border. And it's a very multicultural city. It's like I'm hanging out with Sunni and Shia and, and three different kinds of Christians. And, and we're talking about the Utah Jazz, you know. Yeah. Um, and, <laughs> <Yeah. it's>, and, <laughs> and one guy's here. Like, I got in an argument over whether or not Magic Johnson was dead. <laughs> really? <laughs> you know, some guy wearing a keffiyeh. So. And you're um, like, no. He's like, I don't think you're right. And you're like, he, I'm pretty sure I am. He got HIV, but I swear he's not dead. You know? <laughs> um, anyway, it's, it's one of those absurd situations that are so fun. And it's because you're, you're the awkward guy on the bus. Um, who they finally send the English speaker over to find out what the yeah 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 the yeah yeah they'll have yeah. someone else who knows a little bit of English like hey yeah. bri- bridge the gap for us yeah and it's usually a student like a young person mm-hmm. who's studying English or like a, a crusty old sailor who's been around the been world there. you know so yeah it's, a lot of times it's some kid who's in university who's like yeah I'm I'm a better generation I've seen TV I get these words yeah yeah and it's 
I think we're blessed to be traveling in a generation when the it, you know English is the lingua franca. The world's very interconnected, and yeah. so I can be this slobby, no second language guy. It's um, kind of a blessing and a curse being uh, speaking English because you're like everyone. If they know any other language, it's probably going to be mine. Yeah. Um, like German people will speak your language, you know. Yeah. Um, but at the same time it kind of limits us in terms of like what are we actually going to learn yeah we're not forced to to stretch ourselves a little bit yeah um, I have found I don't know how much travel you've done in South America Latin America no and i got to go there soon that's actually a place that will force you to learn Spanish a little bit that's um, what I want to I want to do that I want to learn Spanish and one other language before I go out to my next couple spots yeah yeah and if you if you, if you put yourself in that on a bus with strangers situation you'll find yourself practicing it a lot yeah. because for whatever reason it, there's English, I found that English is spoken more seldom in a Western Hemisphere country like Peru than in a place like even, even Myanmar um, uh, in Asia. It, it, it's weird. But the good thing for me is it, it forced me to, to work on my Spanish. Yeah. What's well, the best way to do it? That's, that's oh. Ulpan in Israel where they separate everybody from their families when you move there Say for again, two weeks. Is- it's a place called Ulpan. It's, okay. a, it's a type of school. Oh, okay. Um, and if you're there with, let's say, you, you, your wife, and two kids, everybody's separate. They put you in separate camps for two weeks, and all you do is speak Hebrew. So you might be with some Russians oh, okay. and some Germans, and so no one knows each other. It's kind of like Babel. Okay, yeah. Uh, and then within two weeks, like, you can get by now. That's not going into the world. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Where'd you take Spanish? Bolivia? Where'd you take Spanish? Take Spanish? Yeah. Didn't you Le- stop and learn Spanish in Bolivia or something? Am I misquoting your book? No, I, I mean I studied Spanish in Cuba in the Dominican Republic. Okay, like there was a while where I thought my next book would be about trying to learn how to dance in Latin America. Yeah, because I figured like I've the mountain climbing and stuff is fine. I'm comfortable with that, but trying to learn how to dance uh, in a Latin American country seemed more challenging somehow. You know, yeah. th- th- there's this cultural thing. I just thought I could learn a lot. I thought it would be an interesting window into culture. I never wrote the book. Um, but part of that was studying Spanish. Now, unfortunately, in Cuba and the Dominican Republic, it's a really weird Caribbean mushmouth Spanish. Oh. And so I would be studying the language with my teacher, and it was more it was f- more formal and orthodox. And I'd go in the street, and I had a hard time. Oh. Uh, you know, imagine studying English in, in the Mississippi Delta. Yeah, uh, right. And so you're studying the, the orthodox English, and you're coming out, and people are dropping off the second half of words, and... And they're pronouncing their vowels differently. Oh, yeah. And you're like, that makes no sense. Yeah. Or you go to Pittsburgh and you hear, like, what's a yinzer? What does that mean? I don't understand what yeah. your words you're yeah. saying. Yeah. So, so you get that in, in, in Caribbean Spanish. Uh, and so I remember running into a Colombian guy in Havana. I had, I had some Cuban friends, but they all spoke English. And, and I, all, I had this weird emotional moment where I felt like crying because I could understand. It, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, so my Spanish is pretty awful. I, I, I spoke some, I spoke market. I lived in Korea for a couple of years so I can read and write Hangul and um, which is not that hard. And then I, I know some phrases that come back to me when I drink a lot of soju. Um, yeah. <laughs> and then my Spanish got okay, but it was never fluent. But, you know, it's that travel situation where you're forced to do it, and I think Latin America forces it on you more than you might think. Dude, there's this level of getting by uh, ability in, in a language. I met this Italian girl in, in Indonesia, and she could just, like, get, like, what times the buses were leaving and stuff like that in... Bahasa. Okay. And it was just like, oh, I need to know that. One through ten. Yes. Um, yeah. Please, thank you, hello. Just a certain words where it's like... I, I want... Yeah, I is. want bathroom, yeah. restaurant, or mm-hmm. food. Just certain things. I want, yeah. Where if you can just get by, it makes your experience so much easier. 
I, I learned that from from being in Korea and even teaching language. I was teach, I was an, a conversation teacher before I came a, became a writer, yeah. and, and just sort of realizing how language works and and those basic communication things. Yeah. So so where is um, is great. The numbers one through ten and a hundred and a thousand. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, food stuff, beer stuff. Um, transportation stuff maybe 50 phrases you can get pretty far and one great advantage is it, it's sort of a sign of good faith and what so that you're trying yeah that you're trying that you're uh-huh. not the person who's screaming in English because you, they, you think that speaking louder is going to make you understood <laughs> you're the person you're the person who's basically saying where's the bathroom in an adorable t- tenor of an eight year old that you're like using baby you know baby Tagalog or baby Korean and people are like oh my god this person is trying that's awesome my nephew speaks English let's figure out what this guy really wants yeah. um, and that's another fun thing and that's that's actually a great way uh, and this is another part of the conversation we could have which is how electronics you know how the conveniences of travel have changed travel I do want to ask you about that yeah because it used to be like before you showed up here, I was reading Insta. I was reading articles on Instapaper on my phone. You know, I just send all my magazine articles in Instapaper, and I would just pass the time reading articles. Yeah. Now I can burn off an eight-hour bus ride that way. Mm-hmm. Fifteen years ago, I would study phrases. You know, I, I would study. That was when I would study my language. That's when I would look around. And, yeah, that's and, what I tried to do to people. Where it's like, yeah. And and I preach this stuff, but I'm still beholden to that laziness that comes with having fifty books and five hundred articles on my phone. You know, in addition to all of my texting technologies and everything else, is that sometimes, um, you know, I can be a little bit of an introvert or a misanthrope, and instead of talking to the craggy old guy across the aisle, then I'll just, you know, read a Wired article on Instapaper. Well, yeah, how much of that with a smartphone, actually, I, I know people think like, no, I'm just doing it when nothing is around, but it's like, but if, if really nothing was around and you didn't have your smartphone, after about 30 minutes, you would force yourself that's my belief to enter into these uncomfortable situations to to cure yourself of this boredom yes and that's something that's lost and I I don't want to over preach about that but I've seen it happen before my eyes and like my nephew just turned 18 he's going to college when he travels he'll have less of a concept of being Being lonely lost and bored three big things that were a part of my travel experience in 1999 when I really started to travel in Asia that are harder to happen. It's harder to happen. You don't have to be bored because so much is on your phone. You don't have to be lonely. Um, and, and there's some positive. I mean, you can make connections with locals through social media and stuff. Yeah. Um, you can use yeah. social media to meet friends of friends. Yeah, there's, there's, there's pros for there, there's sure. There's definitely pros. Yeah. But in real time, like it used to be, well, I'm hungry. Where am I going to eat? Um, and let's say this is this is in Europe. It, it used to be, well, f- where, where are all the local people eating? Yeah, you know? exactly. What smells what, good? Hey, what's a good place? Right. I'll, I'll, I'll use my, my worst Polish to ask where the restaurant, yeah. where to eat. Well, now you're, you can tweet your friends, you can use Yelp or whatever, and then and then suddenly that interactive element, you're in your bubble. You're, yeah. um, you're basically, um, you're, you're, you're home a little bit. That you, you're, you're basically using the same But some of it's also like, yeah, it's like, I, I have this theory that like sometimes a good Yelp review will help you like find something delicious you never would have had a whale burger in Norway or something like that right but sometimes it's just because some travel writer maybe you went to some restaurant and enjoyed it and it's not the place to be it's just good and you're like by the way have the ribeye it's really good and then next guy's like I gotta have the ribeye and then someone else (laughs) writes about that and then it becomes like you have to have the ribeye in in Reykjavik when you're in so and so and you're like no you don't it's just what fucking Rolf had one time yeah (laughs) <laughs> the, the chef's probably like I do a bunch of good stuff and it's got to drive local people crazy you know uh-huh. restaurateurs um, now, and that happened to an extent with paper guidebooks is that whatever Lonely mm-hmm. Planet guy threw yeah and then in some countries if 
if your restaurant was in Lonely Planet, you sort of didn't have to try anymore. So in a way, so it'd get worse. Yeah. So so the service would get worse, and so that's why I think if you allow yourself to get lonely, lost, and bored, then you're going to find it's going to it's just going to deepen the experience of travel. It's, you're going to yeah. it's it's not going to be something you can micromanage. It's not going to be something where you know your next five moves. Yeah. Uh, it's going to be something where where shit. You know, I'm. This, this is horrible. I'm going to talk to yeah. somebody that I wouldn't, wouldn't talk to. And I, I mentioned being an introvert. That's who I, I am. Too. And travel forces extroversion on me, you know. Every Quiet? No. The book? Well, who's it by? Susan Cain. I'll have to. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Is it about introversion? Yeah. 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 Um, and I do, once I'm rolling, I do pretty good. Um, yeah, I have trouble hard. just getting started. My first few days was like... I don't know how to talk to strangers, so I, yeah. I, I'll just be super lonely. Yeah. And then what happens to you? Something happens to you. Where you're like, I'll say hi, I guess. Yeah, yeah. What's the worst that could happen? Yeah, exactly. Um, and then, then you get used to that. And so, so yeah, I'm, I'm a much more extroverted part of myself. And I'm, I'm, I'm more open to strangers, too, when yeah. I travel. Um, um, because I'm often because I don't look like I'm from there, I'm often approached by people who who are curious. Do and sometimes help? the, the okay? town the town yeah. crazy too, like the like the um, the obsessive middle aged guy whose family has stopped talking to him will come and he'll show me his you know 15th century dagger collection or whatever. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's that that social dynamic changes. Um, and because I'm a writer, I'm, I'm I'm pretty solitary by nature. I'm fairly introverted, uh, and so. It forces this, forces me to exercise this this pretty awesome side of myself, which is a more interactive person who seeks out this the, these sorts of uh, conversations and relationships. Is there a way to bring that? I, me and my friends were talking about it. The ones I met out there. Is there a way to bring that level of socialness back to America? Um, at, when you were saying that, I was thinking, oh, somebody will invent an app. You know, somebody will yeah, yeah. <laughs> invent an app where you get points for being more social. Um, yeah, I think um, the scab grows back sometimes. It's easy. Yeah. You, you become comfortable being that person when you travel, and then suddenly you're back home, and it, and it slowly scabs back over, and, and you're not that person anymore. So you anymore. stop talking to your neighbors, or you don't... Yeah. Like, I mean, I live in a building. I haven't met everybody. I've lived there for yeah. three years. Yeah. And I've met everybody in a, in a dorm in wherever, in Cambodia, within like two days. Yeah. It, so how is that possible? I, I think, too, that sometimes those people in the dorm in Cambodia... You, you get past the, oh, I hear about the new restaurant that opened up conversation. Mm-hmm. And you're, you're, you're actually having really intense conversations with, strain, with near strangers yeah. in foreign lands. Have you noticed that? Yeah. yeah. Real interesting, like, deep dialogue. Yes, yeah. Because I think a lot of travelers are, are, are they're putting things together, you know. They're, about the world or about their... About the world and... and humanity. About, you know, they're always outsiders. It's, it, it, I'm always amazed by how sometimes travelers can be competitive, you know, as if... You're an expert mm-hmm. traveler, you know, as if as if you're in this town where you've been for five days and you're somehow better than your fellow travelers. And so I think I hate that shit, man. When people talk down to you and you're like, "You yeah. just got here. Shut yeah. the fuck up." Yeah. Well, I've actually studied some anthropology. Anthropologists around the '70s realized that um, anthropologists at first got pissed off that they would go to an isolated culture and then backpackers and missionaries would be wandering through. And then it's like, well, shit. Maybe we should interview them too. And so yeah. there's an actual anthropology of tourism that has flourished for the last few decades. And um, this scholar did, a, did a, uh, a study of backpackers, and one of the first two questions that are asked is, how long have you been traveling? Because that sets the social hierarchy. You know, right. All of you are complete 
outsiders, dilettantes, and ignorant of the local language wherever you are. But if you've been traveling 18 months instead of two weeks, then suddenly the status You're is an old wise out, man. And, and, and you can be an asshole. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or you, can be a, you can be a mentor or whatever. But it's, it's, it's funny how that shakes out and it's been that way I've read um, memoirs and oral histories of the hippie trail and people were probably even more obnoxious about that hierarchy back then oh you haven't been so and so I've been there it's great (laughs) like shut up not everyone's like that though certain people have a different way of delivering the same information Yeah. yeah yeah and I think and I think it even that conversation changes the more you travel and the older you get you know mm-hmm. that there's a point in your travel career where it just sounds it's, it's like the most exciting thing that you've been to 15 countries you, you feel yeah. like Thor or something and then suddenly it's 10 years later and you've been to 70 countries and you're, and you're a fraction you have a fraction of the arrogance you had you what's, know, your, what's you were, your number now? it's ooh, I'm going to have to recount like yeah. I try not to be a country counter yeah because um, it's more than just countries right? it's not yeah. ju- it's the experiences you have there it's the experiences you have there and then like I traveled with the self-proclaimed world's most traveled I wrote a story about the world's self-proclaimed world's most traveled man for the New York Times magazine like 10 years ago Yeah, and he was trying to, to, to construct a methodology for counting and it's just I don't know, it just seems so empty at the end of the day you know you can have been to every country in the world but well did so, you do like a day so in each city and never really have any crap in every uh-huh. city? Did you talk to a person in every city? I mean, mm-hmm. what is the methodology? And and and, uh, and I talk a little bit about this in, in vagabonding about how a, a, the slow, nuanced experience uh, of a single country is better than thirty countries in your passport stamp. If you're if you're just rushing through to say you've been there, you wrote somewhere in there where it's like kind of try to stop saying the phrase "I did this country." You know, I did Myanmar okay. instead of just like, I was in Myanmar for a while. Yeah, it was really yeah. fun. I don't know if that's a vagabonding quote, but that's a good way of, to think about it is that, is that, you know, what does that mean? You know, if you, if you said that about a person, you know, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. a former lover, yeah. that would be the height of, uh, of, of crassness. <laughs> you see, on the race, like, oh, I did blacks. It was, I had two friends back in the 70s. Right, right. <laughs> like, oh, no, no, keep doing it. <laughs> so I, I, but I think that's part of that insecurity. And I think that's how we, we got on, on, on this tangent is about you, if you can see the insecurity... Uh, as a gift, you know, yeah. as, as opposed to something that you have to protect yourself against by saying, well, I've been to 15 countries and you've been to two, and so this is how it is. Um, but I think my point isn't to say that every backpacker's dorm is full of assholes because there aren't, right. but it's that it's full of o- people who are open to the experience. They're negotiating that insecurity. They're trying to figure out how are they, what are they going to come home with? What are they learning? What do they not know? Where are they safe? Where are they not safe? Um, can they eat this food? Can they not eat this food? And that's why when you're sitting in that dorm, suddenly you're having a conversation that you would never have with some of your closest friends, you know, because you can just jump over everything else and, 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 and embrace your vulnerability, you know, yeah. that state of travel that makes you feel raw and excited and, and freaked out sometimes. There is a, a thing in comedians sort of do early on and people th- assume we do is put ourselves in bad situations so that we can have stuff to write about it mm. where it's like travel oh. writers do the same thing yeah but I'm saying this comedians don't do that and shouldn't do that if we get stuck in a shitty situation we can use it but okay. never to intentionally put yourself in something shitty but yeah. in travel it almost seems like there will be way more joys by leaving your phone at Interesting. home by intentionally putting yourself in a, I might get lost or I don't have a lot of money here yes because then uh, and I think this actually is something I wrote in Vagabonding, that if you only are judging your trip by fulfilling your expectations, then that becomes the standard for um, want to talk to you about expectations. What, what, what works in your travels, that basically you have won the title of best consumer, that you've made a plan, the plan has delivered, 
um, you get the gold star and, and you get to go home. Whereas if you're if you're bleeding outside of your plan, then suddenly you're getting the gift of what you had never dreamt was out there to begin with, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And and then also we have no idea. And you're fucking up, and it's like, is this the only toilet in the village? And then suddenly, you, you know, you're 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 thinking about things. You're not just you're not just fulfilling consumer expectations. You're trying to figure out if you can actually take a shit. You know bend your six foot three frame over this hole in the floor and and then suddenly it's it's more interesting in many ways dude than, let's talk about toilets for a little bit okay okay i mean I, we i don't know if we have it the best here but it's certainly we're not used to not here right I mean, what are the worst toilets you've been to oh africa has had had some of the worst really yeah, yeah. um asia is pretty great and, and there's an argument for the fact that Asian the Asian toilet system like the one that's in India is actually better than what we have because yeah. when you're squatting it's um, it's it's uh, the shit comes out just as I've well I've heard that <laughs> and two they wipe with their hands and water uh huh and um, and I heard this from a backpacker um, if you got shit on your face would you wipe it off with paper or no. would you wipe it off with you water you get some water yeah. and so uh, and of course that creates another problem which is there's a reason why Indian people don't eat with their left hand and I'm left handed <laughs> and so when I'm eating with my left hand in India I'm like the grossest person on the street by their standards because um, they think that that's my ass wiping hand yeah um, dude I did it on a hike in Griffith Park two weeks ago and I had the shit just so bad and I told my friends like, I- I'm gonna go man I'm gonna go it's yeah. fine I just crouched and he's like we don't have any toilet paper I'm like you have a full bottle of water give it to me and then okay, I used yeah, that, and he yeah. was like, "Are you kidding me?" I'm like, yeah. it's fine. Yeah. It doesn't ever like seal in. It just like goes away fast. Yeah, yeah. No, and actually, you can use leaves. I used to leaves. When I was yeah, much younger, yeah. I did a lot of backpacking in Colorado and stuff. Um, and there's great techniques. You know, you just lean up against a tree. I was in Africa this winter, and I did a little bit of this out, out in the bush. You know, you just prop your back against a tree, and and it approximates the western oh, toilet. Yeah. You know, the gravity isn't going down. You're just propping yourself I lived in Asia for a long time and never fully mastered the squatty potty really um, I was way better this time than I was the last time yeah it's I, I think there's the, the leg to torso ratio is different between Asians and uh, yeah, like East shorter. Asians in particular well they're, they're wasted they're they're, they're they're shorter on average but also their torsos are longer their legs are shorter and their torsos are longer oh really as far as I can tell maybe this is a completely horrible thing that, that it's not empirically true and I'm being somehow sure, culturally maybe. insensitive and but. they have more practice squatting they squat constantly when they yeah, smoke cigarettes yeah. and shit yeah. and eat and my knees when I get up I'm like ah fuck but I, I really think that and I'm sorry to Asian people if this is not empirically true, but I think if you squat and your leg to torso ratio is is shorter, then your center of gravity is above your legs. Whereas when I squat, my knees are at my ears and my center of gravity is pulling me backwards. Yeah, so, yeah. How do you not fall back? Which yeah. is the worst thing that can happen. Which to you. is why I lean against with my back against right, the tree. Right, right, yeah. We're in a, we're in the very technical shit part of the conversation now, but it's but it's, tricky that you, it's problem solving, which is which is another great part of travel. But yeah, no. Um, yeah, problem solving. Le- leaves. Leaves, dirt. Uh-huh. Um, there's different ways to clean yourself. Dirt. Up yeah, you can rub dirt all over your hands and like wash them, and yeah. then wash that off. Yeah. Um, uh, I did. Uh, I did. Uh, one of my essentials that I brought with me was uh, wet wipes. Uh huh. Where I'm like, I'm not going to find these there, and okay. I absolutely need them, and I want right. to be able to wipe one clean during a squad. Somebody when there's no bum gun. I think it's Barry Sonnenfeld, someone who's who's not a travel guy, yeah. um, but just sort of is somehow enlightened when it comes to to taking a shit yeah I think I read this in Esquire like 10 years ago it says he carries tux medicated pads and oh. in, in the article he writes he says reader listen take a crap 
wipe yourself with the toilet paper until you think you have the cleanest ass in the world, <laughs> then take one tux pad and wipe your ass, and the amount of sadness you see there will shock you. <laughs> so it's, it's the same argument that, that paper, there's limits to what paper does. Um, and so that's great. Yeah, your, your, your wet wipes or your tux is My going friend to showed it to me once because he always used um, wipes at home, like here, you know? Yeah. And, uh, I was like, why? And he was like, let me show you something. He spilled a little Coca-Cola, two, two little things of Coca-Cola on my table, yeah. and he gave me a dry paper towel and a wet towel. And he goes, wipe them each up with one of these. And he goes, now feel the table. And he goes, that one's still sticky. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What do you think is happening? Well, it, I mean, it, that sounds like tux, I that like sounds that. like a commercial from the 1980s, right? <laughs> yeah. And so somewhere there's a, there's a tux commercial that will never happen <laughs> about wiping your ass and about, travel. About, about a guy who, who's who's whose 12th ass wipe is with a tux pad, and look what was left over. <laughs> Where did you get this bug? It's called a bug. I like it. The the term the travel bug. Yeah, yeah. When did you first like when you grew up? Did you have those thoughts of I want to see the world, or yeah. did it come later? Yeah, I think it was. I think it was really early. You know, I, my my first travels were really my backyard, and and you know, and seeing seeing what ants did. And and uh, mm. my dad was a science teacher, so I was. I think I was encouraged to look at the natural world. Um, but then when I remember clearly being six years old, and and I didn't really understand what summer vacation was about. I I thought that the reason why you had a three month vacation was not a tied to some weird agrarian nineteenth century plan for you know getting the farm boys back to do the harvest. But in fact, I thought that that's what that life rewards you with vacation. You know that um, yeah. Uh, yeah. summer is vacation time, and so I just remember, just instinctively thinking that well, you I'm going to work and study, and then I get to travel in the summer. Now, my family didn't take me very far. I grew up in Kansas, and I didn't see the ocean until I was 15. Um, oh, so weird. went to like Missouri or Colorado or something, and and that became my thrill. I remember seeing the mountains for the first time when I was six. Um, was Kansas all plains? Yeah, okay. yeah, it, it's pretty. I have a house in Kansas now, um, and it's it has a very subtle beauty, and I wouldn't disparage Kansas, but it's smack in the middle of the country. Um, it's like almost exactly between Los Angeles and New York, and so you're really far from the big metropoles of America. You're far from the oceans, um, but yet I I found joy in, in, in the little wanderings that I did. Uh, my parents, actually, my mom, I don't think left the country till she came to visit me in Korea. I didn't come from a travel family, but for some reason, I just instinctively liked travel, even if it was just modest travel to, to um, you know, Missouri or Colorado or something. So you started by going across the country a little bit, and then you decided, let's go another place? Yeah, although that's probably getting ahead of things a little bit, because I thought, I, had, I put a lot of existential, existential importance on that first trip around the United States. I was, I was, where'd you, are you from Maryland? Yeah. Okay. Um... I don't know how it was there, but in the Midwest, you get the, you know that American idea that you have to work your whole life because that's what you're supposed to do, and then yeah. you're rewarded with retirement, retirement. and time off. Yeah, Seems and so such a waste. Yeah, well, I mean, who knows what your retirement is going to be like? And I've, I've told this story a lot, but my grandfather was literally this Kansas farmer who, when he retired, his wife had had Alzheimer's for a few years by the time that happened. He had oh. to stay and take care of her. He wasn't, he'd worked harder than anybody I've seen in my life. You know, nobody is the, the you know, my grandfather is a guy who killed a skunk when he was 20 because he was hungry and he could sell the pelt for 50 cents you know it was the 1930s and so he was this badass who should have been rewarded by life but wasn't you know that he he stayed home Um, not that he dreamt of travel but at least he should have enjoyed his retirement yeah and so I think that's really what got me thinking about I think I knew I loved travel but nobody had given me permission to travel and in a way vagabonding is a permission I wrote it sort of as permission to people with that mindset 
because nobody had nobody had told me that nobody traveled that I knew traveled and so so I started this very fraught process of trying to figure out how I could get travel out of my system when I was young because I didn't want to be the guy who retired and couldn't do it um, I, that is one of the sadder things I see when I'm going and I know it's just me putting my own stuff on them is yeah. those people like hobbling with their old age hmm. through like Angkor Wat or something like hey we're finally going to see it and it's like you're not doing this right yeah. you're just sort of seeing the statues now because you can't yeah. jump on a train that's already moving and you can't do all these things yeah you know it's like a different experience at that point it is and 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 there's some badass older travelers yeah. but if that's your end all if you if you're seeing it for the first time and you've dreamt about it for 30 years again i don't want to look at, i don't want to be negative about that situation right. but if you um, because they're doing at least they're doing it yeah you know? at least they're not still staying at home absolutely but, for the person who's thinking in 30 years I can do that, think, well, why can't you do it in three years, you know? Um, because I didn't... And it's easier now, I think, that you can Google um, Kansas-born traveler or, you know, whatever, um, African-American woman from Virginia yeah. travel, and people from all demographics are out there. Uh-huh. You know? And I'm, I'm like the most privileged demographic there is, you know, a, yeah. a tall, straight, white guy from Kansas. From Maybe not a lot of Kansans are traveling, but... <laughs> yeah. There wasn't a cultural reason why I thought I shouldn't travel. I just, I was just in this sort of workaholic part of the country and nobody was traveling. And so I went through, I didn't have Vagabond and I had to write it for my 17-year-old self. Oh, yeah. um, so I went through this fraught process of, of trying to figure out if I was, if it was bad for me to, to travel, you know, immediately. Well, because you'll fall behind. That's the problem. Well, yeah, yeah. Um, and then at some point you realize there's no falling behind. They're just like, you're just going to live and work and die. And, and in a way, and this is for the for the angsty twenty somethings out there, you learn so much more. You become so much so more, so much more savvy. Dude, I, I'm telling every one of my friends now because I met some girls, some Canadian girls that were on gap year, and um, in between high school and college, and uh, or university, I guess they call it. But like, uh, okay. I was like, oh, we don't get gap year, and they're like, they're like, neither do we. It's just a thing you take before you make your college friends, and while you already said goodbye to your high school friends, it's the perfect time. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, yeah. And now I'm telling everybody, like, if you have a kid, when they're 18, send him away for a year. Yeah. Let him see shit. Absolutely. And then come back. And in, in, in our country in particular, before they have crippling amounts of university of debt. debt. Absolutely. Yeah. Before you get that credit card where you get a free t-shirt. Yeah. You know, it's going to bind you for the rest of your life because you get a college and- t-shirt. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man. Um, no, th- th- that's a real thing. Now, I did it after college and I was lucky. That's another good year. Uh, right before college, right after college. Yeah. And, and and people are people are really worried about that. They think they're supposed to jump into the workforce for fucking what? Yeah, but but even then, I, I've met a lot of people. I I did a residency for a year uh, at at Penn, and I had a few of my students were um, uh, Wharton people, yeah. you know, and and uh, they were already starting to worry about the fact that they were going to be making six figures by the time they were twenty five. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. Because there's just a lot of unhappy rich twenty five year olds. <sighs> Where else in the world does that happen? You know, yeah. um, and I think that initial flush of success. I mean, I think that's why you have a lot of um, lifestyle gurus these days. You know, the Tim Ferrisses and other people who are sort of trying to help people manage the concept of wealth. And I, and I deal with the time wealth in, in vagabonding, but even just wealthy people who, okay, so you've achieved that goal. What next? And so I think a lot of what you can learn so much about life. You can learn about what you're interested in. A lot of people graduate with a with a major of a topic that they are now sick of <laughs> yeah, you know yeah. um, and or maybe they, they have to go to grad school now to make themselves employable well why not burn off a couple of years traveling you know work overseas be an expatriate I like the way you say it too where it's like you're on your resume and like well, what's this gap in your resume and it's like don't hide from that fucking yeah, yeah. say like yeah I went to this I worked on a fucking 
elephant farm in Thailand for three months. Yeah. I had to learn this and this. And it's like so much more interesting than just, I don't know, I had this job, then that job, then the other job. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's like, oh, I, I, I learned Greek. I, I volunteered here. I, um, I learned this and that. I mean, it's just, you can say that facetiously. Oh, just, I think it has been interpreted facetiously that I say put your travel experiences on, the, on, on your resume. But it doesn't have to be because you really do. Learn you've a lot learned, when yeah, you you've grown. You're, I mean, you're you a better employer. Spend employee. a lot of time with your bong to not learn things. I mean, yeah. it's hard. Even if you're having fun, and I don't dissuade people from having fun because some people. In fact, I put it in the book. After after two weeks of partying, then suddenly you're bored of partying. And Dude, it really does go away. It's yeah. so strange. Yeah. And I think you said it. Maybe I'm paraphrasing, but at some level, you're like, "It's the weekend. Let's party." And then it's like. There's no difference between Monday and Wednesday and Saturday. Yeah. There is, some of these countries don't even have weekends. So there's literally, for the locals, there's no difference. For travelers, there's no difference. I'm here three more nights. Doesn't yeah. matter what days of the week those are. Yeah, yeah. And then it's like, all right, we're not escaping from anything. Yep. We're already, we're free. We've been free. So like, right. I don't know, why are we getting drunk? And it's still okay once in a while if everyone's drinking tonight. <laughs> but like, not as like a goal. And, and I think usually people, if they travel long enough, that they'll Two, move three through weeks. that, yeah, yeah, and it, and it's like, oh wait, I've met another Sven, you know, uh-huh. <laughs> I'm in Myanmar and uh-huh. I've hung out with my my seventh Klaus and my and my, yeah. uh, and, you know, and, and so you have this. I think that's one charm is that you're you're hanging out. You have the travel community where you're meeting a lot of of you know Dutch people and Argentinian people and Israeli people and and Canadian people, and that's fun. But then also, again, after you're 700th jello shot with with uh, <laughs> Megan from Nova Scotia then, then you realize that you're not really experiencing Cambodia anymore yeah um, so so how do you get out and, and get away from Backpackers Row and away from even just other travelers um, there was a, play, a point in Vietnam where I was staying in the wrong place part of town in, in Ho Chi Minh and I'm like I gotta get the fuck away from white people yeah yeah and but then it's like how do I say this? This is a mixture of like, I want to go where it's unmapped, but I also want there to be indoor plumbing where I'm going. And like, oh, oh, what were you going? I want it to be mapped out. I okay. want to be mapped out yeah. and unmapped at the same time. Yeah. I want there to be one hostel I can stay in already set up. Right. But at the same time, no one else is there. Did you stay in hostels in, in Vietnam? Almost exclusively. Okay. Interesting. Um, everywhere. Okay. I just found cool. it to be way more social and okay. way more like find out what there is to do from uh-huh. people who are like, I've been here four days. You got to go on this train ride around the city. It's really cool. Uh-huh. Or this temple or whatever. Awesome. Um, I, I didn't stay at hostels as much as you, it sounds like, because it, it's so cheap to get a guest house in, in Southeast Asia. Yeah. Although technically a lot of the guest houses, I, like on CoPP, you're staying in a guest house, but everybody there is from you know, Europe or yeah. wherever. Um, and so that's you stay in guest house and then, and then meet the people who are running the guest house? Is that what? Sometimes. Or, or meet the, the, you know, the, the other backpackers who are staying at the guest house. Um, I, to get to your question, I think getting off that beaten path is is pretty easy. You know, it's it's the bus to the town you haven't heard of. Yeah. It's going a couple of blocks away from where it's prescribed you're supposed to go. Just you just know? walk out and you're yeah. fine. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and oh yeah, walking. Walk till your day comes interesting. I, I forget when I said that, but it gets quoted back to me a lot. Uh, but it's true because then. And again, I'm not going to knock. I, I love hanging out with other backpackers; they're awesome people. But when you when you're in when you're on day five in Vietnam and you realize you haven't talked to many Vietnamese people, then yeah. that's when you go wander someplace, um, and just let let 
your, your whimsy take you. Yeah. Um, and there's a there's a, a French term called the flaneur. Do you know the, 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 the what a uh-huh. flaneur is? It's um, it's it's I forget what the literal translation is. I probably should know because I'm going to be in Paris a week from now. Uh, but it's like a drifter or or a um, a wanderer. Rambo. And, what's that? Like Rambo in the beginning of Rambo. Uh, uh, a rambler. No, no Rambo. Oh right! Yeah. It's like keep walking. We don't want your kind around Came here. Kung Fu, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. As quoted in Pulp Fiction. Um, n- not exactly. It's 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 not the stoic um, loner wanderer. It's someone who walks, wanders crowds in cities, and becomes a part of the crowd. And somebody who walks with no destination. Basically, mm. you wander in search of experience. Yeah. And there's something I do with my students in Paris. Um, in the journal class, we do uh, a color mapping or color tracking, where it's like okay. You know, on this day, uh, 12,000 tourists are going to walk to the Eiffel Tower, and it's really easy at point A, point B. You're going to walk through the city collecting the color yellow. Go. Oh. And so you just wander through the city, and it forces you to pay attention, right? Um, and then you're, and then you get sick of the yellow. This this street is full of yellow, so you go to a more obscure street, and, and you try to find more interesting iterations of yellow. It's also called psychogeography, um, which is a oh. which is a way of it's finding maps of a place that are counterintuitive. I mean, skateboarding is a, is a form of psychogeography in a certain way, or, or looking for illegal fireworks stands. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. That's a way of, and I'll let you finish your thought, but the, it's just sort of a way of getting away from the prescribed tourist way of seeing a city and, and surprising yourself. Yeah. I found one day in Phnom Penh, I think, where... Phnom Penh. Okay. Where I, I was said Compton. Which, yeah, yeah, totally different. Which is yeah. which is as interesting sounding to me. Um, where I was just like, I want to find some live music. I find I can write, you know, and like journal a little bit when I'm hearing music, so I can sort of tune out and also be in a fun experience. Just have, drink some wine and just uh-huh. like get some writing done. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so no smartphone. I just made it a goal to be like find live music. And there's probably other places oh, I could have done, but since I asked somebody and they're like, how about this place? And they're like, oh no, that's closed at seven, sorry. I'm like, fuck, and I just keep trying to find live music. Until I came across this bar that was just for expats, and it was just cheesy cover bands playing 80s music, like Zombie was from the Cranberries. Was it Heart of Darkness by chance? No, I think that was one of the places they sent me. That's Heart a famous expat bar in Phnom Penh. Yeah. Maybe it was actually Heart of Darkness. Is it upstairs? It might no. have been Heart of Darkness. I don't remember Heart Maybe of Darkness. Maybe Sharkies. Could have been Sharkies. I'm trying to remember now. Yeah, somebody told me about that one. I don't think that's what it was. Okay. okay. Anyway, but then I just like, and this is not what I wanted at all. Right. Um, I wanted like the Thai type of place where they're playing like Neil Young cover to cover or something like that or just something uh-huh. interesting. But then I just looked around. I'm like, oh, this is all sex tourism. And just stared oh, at the old white men oh. with young Cambodian women or men. Yeah. And it's like... And just like observe, like wow, what's your life like? No white women there, just all old people having a great time, mm-hmm. enjoying their lives. And then it just takes you to these weird places where it's yeah. like you have a task, and it's like you go. And on the way, you find some street food, yeah, you know, or whatever. But just like having, like you said, like having yellow. Go find some yellow. Yeah. And then it doesn't matter where you're going. Just find a reason to go. That, that's exactly. That's almost quotable. It doesn't matter where you're going. Find a reason. <laughs> and what I love about the music is that it's it uses a different sense. Because so much of we seek out visual things, right? Uh-huh. But why not do a smell map of Phnom Penh yeah. or Paris? You know, why not? Um, yeah, in some cities, you know, you'll you'll be walking along and somebody's practicing their violin, and suddenly it's the most beautiful, unexpected moment you've ever expected. You know, some thirteen-year-old is playing a mediocre um, 
Stravinsky or whatever, and, and suddenly you have this great moment. So that's, again, I have all these bits of advice that I wish I followed more. You know? yeah. Like I wish, like I've been in New York for four days now, and I wish that I had color tracked. You know, I haven't, I haven't done it. Uh, um, but these, these are tools, you know, if you get, um, if you get, if you want to break out from the predictable part of travel, go, go seek out yellow or, 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 wow. or listen to music that's being played and, and, and uh, smells, tastes, all that stuff, you know. What about um, some of the foods you've had on your travels? Because some of them, they're just like unique. Just mm. like, I don't know what this is. It's not like, oh, we have, a, this is kind of like a burger in America, but you guys do it a little different. It's like right. something's like, I don't know what this is. Like what are some of, give me an example from your travels. There was a, uh, a market we took in Kofanyang, maybe. Mm-hmm. We took um, uh, mopeds around the island, and then we got tired and just went through. And there was just some local market selling brooms and stuff, but also, like, food. And there were these little, about the size of peasant eggs. Or, uh, peasant quail eggs, eggs yeah. Um, but they were, like, some sort of crepe. And we didn't know if they were savory or sweet. You just point. They, they were put, crepe? They were something like that. I uh-huh. found out later, maybe they were coconut-based. Oh, and Where it was, was so good was in Kofanyang or okay. Kosamui. No, I've seen those. Yeah. Yeah. Th- those and, are... and you bite into it. You're like, oh, sweet. I yeah, thought yeah. savory, but okay. Yeah. And you're just like, I don't know what this is. It's fucking delicious. Uh-huh. Pretty much any of the street food in Myanmar where you're like, I've never heard of this. Right. I don't know what this is. And you're just like, let's go for it, man. That, that's so fun. Um, one thing I learned that sweets... When you think sweets, you think like hard candies or Snickers uh-huh. bars or whatever in the United States. You go to a place like Egypt, and all yeah. the Egyptians I've met are, are like completely crazy about sweets. But it's like that. It's it's like you go into a whole store, and there's not a single hard candy. It's just all this local these these local delicacies and and sweet Baked foods type things. Yeah, and so in Thailand, actually, I was I was a real wimp about that when I I wrote vag I was in Thailand when I wrote vagabonding, and I, I think I I don't think I did enough of that um, because. Yeah, no, I, I, that's one thing I regret. I ate some, some wild food, some insecty type food when I was yeah. in Thailand. But I think it's even more interesting. When I go back, I'm going to have to do that. To, to eat those, it's like sort of the what the fuck is this experiment. And you yeah, see and then they put like 12 it. in a bag or 10 in a bag. Yeah. Oh, I thought maybe just one. And then you give them pretty much pennies yeah, to try yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. If it's terrible, you just chuck it when no one's looking. Yeah. That's, that's some of the fun ritual. And I've chucked a lot of food. That yeah, way. for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. You bite into some meat and you're like, uh, nah. The, the funny thing is, is that there's a flip side to that too, is that um, I made, my friends that I made in Cuba were bagpipers. Um, they played, they're like young really? hipster guys in their mid-20s. They played the Asturian bagpipes. It's a Spanish bagpipe that was brought over with Asturian uh, settlers in um, the 19th century from Spain. Wow. And so... They were just musicians, and so they played bagpipes, and it was awesome. And that's all—that's a whole other story. That's like a podcast of its own. But um, they visited Nova Scotia um, during my book tour when I was doing my Marco Polo. Didn't go there book tour. I met them in Nova Scotia. It was their first time out of the country. And I'm here. My friend is Marcel, and I'm like, "Oh, dude, Marcel, you have to eat Doritos. They're great." <laughs> and so he took this. So he's like, and it was as if I had just, you know, betrayed him because he started eating it and. Like he, he spit it out and sort of really because it's like a it's like a dried corn thing with powder on it you know um, and we're, we're used to enjoying <laughs> processed like it, foods. It was so weird to him that um, he it just for whatever reason 
the food he'd been eating in Cuba was so, and the food wasn't very good in Cuba, in my experience, but yet the Dorito, which I thought would be this awesome snack for him, um, after years of, you know, seeing Doritos advertisements during cartoons or something, he didn't like it. And so it's, it's the equivalent of, of, you know, you, you or me, you know, going to a place in, in Asia or maybe even Latin America and yeah. getting something that we try and we end up not liking because we're not, just not used to things tasting that way. it's still fucking fun to try. Oh, it's totally, to it's like, totally fun see. to try. Quail eggs. That was the thing I had in Thailand and I saw them again in, in Myanmar where it's like you go by and you're like, you know what? Yeah, let's try it. And they give you a bunch, a drop or two of like some sort of soy sauce. Yeah, yeah. It's delicious. It's just delicious. And you see, see, Richville, when I first went to the Philippines, it was the first tropical country I went to, I saw... The balut? Everybody... Well, they were carrying out plastic bags full of liquid, you know? Uh-huh. It was Coca-Cola. Is that oh, it was a really? country where they... You buy a Coke, you don't get the bottle, the bottle is recycled, you know? We're uh-huh. sort of in a... Um, we don't have that relationship to soft drinks anymore. But they just pour it in a bag. You drink it out of a straw, out of a plastic bag. Oh, weird. Um, but it's... But, but normal. I ended, up, yeah. I ended up doing that a lot. And then I didn't have to worry about what to do with my bottle you know uh-huh. um, there so are anyway. some different food type things too like ice over uh, beer over ice in Vietnam yeah Thailand it's the same way yeah it, and it's because it's so hot you know and it, I've had it here since then where it's like you get an okay like lukewarm beer like yeah, yeah I've had this before over ice let's just put it over ice yeah people people mix like in Hungary they'll mix coke with wine really um, uh, and of course it's less common or it's more common to mix like white wine with a Sprite you know a spritzer um, yeah so I mean, color tracking, psychogeography, flaneur aside, food, you could spend a year just, you know, if you want to break, you know, if you want to, if you're tired of the hostile scene, go to the market and just fart around with food. Yeah. And that's, that's a great window into the country. Yeah. Um, and, and just a great way to, to interact with people because there's not only the merchants, but there's people shopping for food, you know. For like goods, you mean? Like, like not, yeah. I mean, like uh, grains and shit like that? Yeah, or, or the same, or for sweets or whatever, mm-hmm. you know. So you're buying sweets for the first time, and here's someone, it's their granddad's favorite sweet, and they're buying, and so that's another way to, to meet people and sort of get where they're coming from. They like looking at you, too, like eating something when you point, and oh, you can yeah. tell, they can tell you've never had this, and yeah. they watch you, they're like, let me see if this fucking white is going to like this thing. Yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> it's know? it's fun for them. Um, and it's... Yeah, it's 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 a part of the dynamic. I, my, my newest book is about souvenirs, and I... Um, in one point in the book, I mentioned going to the hog market or the new market in Calcutta. Uh-huh. Have you been to India before? No. Okay. India is its own continent. I mean, there's just so many languages and it's That seems it's like amazing, 10 countries in one. But yeah. It's like 10 countries in one. And it's a little hard. Like, um, like It's almost like Southeast Asia is training wheels for India in a sense because it's a little bit easier to get around in Southeast. Well, it's, it's not too hard. India is just intense. India is, in, is intense. And so... Um, but it's interesting. Anyway, I went to the, the hog market in Calcutta, and I wanted to buy some souvenirs. And there's souvenirs from all over India. And again, there's 18 major languages in India. There's all these regions. And this market had souvenirs representative of all the regions. But then I realized that everybody around me was 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 a tourist like me, you know. And the market is giant. And everybody else was... was normal people were... were buying like stainless steel pans you know right. and it's like yeah. well okay so a stainless steel pan is probably more representative of daily life mm-hmm. in India than this Rajasthani puppet that I'm about to buy yeah. um, and so I ended up wandering into the market and like spending a day there you know of just sort of sort of putting my tourist side of self again I'm not going to knock acqu- acquiring souvenirs but I just realized for a second that I was not buying what everybody else was buying it was sort of this uh, epiphany huh. moment of, of just how much happens at a market because you know? they do have these goods that are for tourists 
in a lot of markets. Yes. Where it's yeah. like almost like is this just mass produced somewhere for like, you know, on like the Bintang shirts and stuff like that where it's like, okay, there's nobody here wears this. Yeah. Like what would it, I I want that I want that Moroccan you ever see the Simpsons when they buy that paw? No, and I give them three so. wishes, and every time it gets a wish, the monkey paw goes down one finger. I haven't seen it, no. But shit like that, where you're like, okay, this is a market somewhere where I'm buying something that they would buy. Just yeah. handmade goods. Yeah. yeah. Which looks less which exotic. You get that. What? Which looks less exotic. That stainless steel pan that was uh, yeah, manufactured in Chennai <laughs> yeah. is not going to look as good as the Rajasthani puppet. Yeah. Um, uh, but it's interesting to think about. Um, and it's it, it it puts you into the the dynamic of a place and 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 makes you think about how all this works. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, there's um there's this uh some podcast somebody told me about it, I think and it just like shows you how your food is made. So like when it's oh. just rice, like where does it come from? Who makes rice? Right. And like and then it shows like people picking rice in a rice patty up yeah, to their up to yeah. their you know chest in in that's water great. and just like so you have an understanding of like how food gets from each place you know then the chicken that's on top of it comes from well that's the modern condition I mean 200 years ago that would have been completely redundant uh-huh. you know because everybody knew exactly where their food <laughs> yeah, exactly. came from yeah I don't know how to change um, the oil and so now we're, we're, we're getting these delicious cherries that were grown in Chile yeah. you know that and have like, been flown thousands here? of miles here um, I think I have a travel writing colleague Kelsey Timmerman he, who wrote a book called Where Am I Wearing and another one called Where Am I Eating that looks into both of those questions. Mm. Uh, but you were talking about mass production. I actually ended up with some great souvenirs from Myanmar, and it sounds like you've been there w- recently. Because yeah. um, I was there in the rainy season. And you were there 2001? 2001. And wow. I Must lived on so the, different then. Yeah, maybe. I haven't been back. I lived on the border of Thailand and Myanmar when I was riding vagabonding. So I went to Khao Tong, this little border village, once a month to get my visa renewed. In the south? In the south. Okay. The very, very southern part of, yeah. of, of mainland Myanmar. Um, but, um, yeah, just because it was tourist low season, I, I, I paid a guiltily small amount of money for these marionette heads, you know, from the, the traditional uh, Burmese theater. Um, and so... I had a similar experience. I was in a market in Africa, and it's the same thing. That there's a lot of carvers in Africa, and and uh, I was in Mozambique, and uh, there was a tourist part of the market. Is that basically it was these carved fishes? I got one for my mom, yeah. uh, and then some of the carvers were there. It, it was sort of sad because tourist season had had gone over. Most of the tourists in Mozambique are from South Africa during Christmas season, and so there was like. These really super cool guys. There's like six of them, and they were all carvers. And I was going to buy one carving, you know. Yeah. Um, and so, I, I guess that brings you into a different dynamic of travel, which is the you sort of learn learn the uh, privileges and overused word, but we'll use it now um, just for the purpose of the conversation. That we're suddenly there's these there's these um, six guys that you're talking to. They speak great English. They're Maybe in their mid twenties, you can relate to. You remember being like that when you're in your mid twenties, yeah. um, and if they lived in New York, you know they'd probably be making whatever six figures. But but they're carving fishes and selling them to people in Mozambique, and suddenly you have to choose one of them. It's like one of these ethical tests that you, there's no answer to. Yeah. And so um, you you had mentioned there's a sense that which these products can feel mass produced, and the fishes, those carvings I bought in Mozambique, I saw iterations of in Namibia and South Africa and stuff. It's not like they're, it's not like it's unique folk art, uh, but the guys are good and um, it feels mass produced, but it isn't. It's all, it's all handmade. Yeah, sometimes you see the, the same sort of thing, but if, also I've found if I talk to the artist, I don't know, it has like a more special place. 
Yeah. Where it's like, I live with my family, um, and my girlfriend lives with her family. We're trying to like do whatever. I'm trying yeah. to take these art classes. Yeah. And you see the same style everywhere, but it's like, oh, this kid's trying to make himself something of himself. It's like yeah. a more interesting like art piece that way. Yeah. Yeah. In in a, a an economy that isn't industrialized, you know, yeah. um, that that's a way to make money. And, and, and in the high season, I'm, I'm sure they do well, but. Uh, it was just a weird dynamic. I got a great deal on a fish because six guys were, or a carved fish because six guys were trying for your money. Were were were, were, were bargaining for my money. So, yeah. uh, so I guess that's another example. I hadn't meant this to be my point, but it can be. Is that buying souvenirs can be a window into a place, especially mm-hmm. when you take it slow and you see what's there and you talk to the people who made them, and then suddenly instead of, and, and it's amazing how many souvenirs you buy in Egypt or the Czech Republic that are made in China. That's a different story. <laughs> yeah, um, that's a shit you want to avoid, but it's like, God damn it. Right. Uh, but yeah, so suddenly you're having conversations that you wouldn't have if you were just grabbing something off the rack at the airport. You know, that you're you're making an adventure of your souvenir. Yeah. So. I try to get a, a fridge magnet everywhere okay. for a country. I'm sure they're all made in China. But Probably. Yeah. But it's just like something to be like, it gets me out of the, out of the dorm to be like, yeah. hey, I got to find this magnet today. Um, until yeah. you find one. Didn't have to be great. Just like something. And then it gets you moving. I don't know. It gets you moving, and it certifies that you're there. Yeah, and I can put uh, something I can put in my fridge to be like, been to right. these seven or yeah. ten or whatever it is. I, in, in my book, I talk about that a lot. Like, I don't want to disparage the mass-produced souvenir because, like, there's a place near where I stay in Paris. What? <laughs> he was going to land on that arm, you know. Yeah, I just, I just got <laughs> courted by a parrot, a very flirtatious parrot. Not a parrot, a pigeon. Pigeon, way different. It would be a lot more interesting if it was a <laughs> yeah. parrot. Uh... What was I talking about? A mass-produced uh, Oh, yeah. No, in, in Paris, um, there's a souvenir shop near where I live, and it's like, if you walk to the Eiffel Tower, it'll take an hour. Um, but all she, she sells mostly Eiffel Tower stuff, and I'm like, why do you sell so many Eiffel Tower things? And she's like, that's what people want to buy. Yeah. That's... Um, and I think it's easy, if you've traveled a lot, to think, oh, look at these silly people who are buying an Eiffel Tower souvenir or a refrigerator magnet when you could get something else. But I think sometimes it's easy to forget that people just want to certify that they've been to a place you know um also i need something small well that's another consideration with the souvenirs yeah that um uh, something that's easy to pack away is a pretext actually to report the book i went to the souvenir vendors convention in las vegas a year and a half ago and people have studied that you know they small kitschy like um you can make fun of tacky souvenirs, but the reason there's so many tacky souvenirs is that people like people like to buy stuff they can laugh at, you know. And not spend a lot of money on. Yeah. For three, four, or five dollars, well, it's way better than fifty dollars. The vendors I talk to that they they make they do huge business on super cheap Chinese made stuff because people like it. They don't have to think about it too much. It certifies yeah. the trip, uh, and it doesn't spend a lot of money, and it can fit in their the pocket of their of their bag. So. Yeah. You ever come across a lot of dog meat where you go? Well, and how do you handle that? In Korea, I... Um, That's the home of dog meat, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, like... it's, it's, it's been... I know a lot more about dog meat in Korea because I lived in Korea for two years. Um, and I had Teaching English? What did you do? Teaching English, yeah. Okay. Before I was, that was the last thing I did before transitioning into travel writing. And it was a great way to learn another culture and save money for travel. Um, it, was a, it was a huge nest egg from that experience that helped fund my Asian travel before writing. And you're also already traveling while you're living in Seoul. Well, I was living in Busan, which okay. is like Los Angeles. You see Train to Busan? What's that? Have you seen the movie Train to Busan? It, it is literally on my watch list on Netflix. Is yeah, it good? Man, it's real good. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll have to watch it. Maybe I'll watch it when I fly over the ocean um, using that little download feature. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, Busan, that's just, it's, it's where I happen to end up. And then 
people will make both uh, jokes about boshantong, which literally means um, health enhancement stew, but it's it's a dog meat stew. And I, I wrote about this, stew. and I yeah. talked about it. I've talked about it quite a bit. That a certain generation of Koreans see dog meat. I mean, it used to be not just Korea, all over the world that dog was uh, dogs would be running around on a farm. But if if times got tight, you'd eat the dog. Right? Well, it's also they run around so much. It's almost like fish, where you're like, yeah, there's tons of fish in the ocean. Yeah. No one has them. Yeah. They don't belong to anyone. Kill them and eat them. And when there's stray dogs everywhere, it's like, why wouldn't you just? Yeah. Why wouldn't you kill those and eat those? Especially, especially when it's been a hard year and you've already mm-hmm. eaten your chickens. And and this yeah. this happened everywhere up to a few hundred years ago, right? So, you know. As I think I said in the article, cows are bad at catching frisbees. It's hard to anthropomorphize <laughs> a cow. You know, it's just easier. You know, I'm from Kansas. I've seen a lot of cows being raised. Um, but still, it, it's an animal that just happens to have a lot of endearing anthropomorphic um, characteristics. Now, I'm not, I'm not going to argue for eating dog meat, but it's something that was explained to me in depth because I spent so much time in Korea. Basically, men see it as sort of boner food. It's sort of Korean Viagra. Really? Yeah. yeah. Ah. It's supposed to give you in the summer months and this it, uh, it doesn't make sense. I think some like stuff is still horn? lost in translation. In a sense, yeah, it's a similar thing. But that for whatever reason, older Korean men think or at least thought when I was there that uh, it's harder to get it up in the summer when it's hot and humid. <laughs> and so... It's all science, man. <laughs> yeah, I guess. But it's almost like there's... So when when you go to eat Boshantong, there's sort of this backslapping male atmosphere. It's almost like going to a Hooters or something and, and you're just... Things are a little bit more crass and maybe not everybody's going to use their dog meat boner to have sex for seven hours, but it's just sort of this wink, wink, nudge, nudge ritual yeah. that... And then I'm not sure how common it is now. I really suspect it's still there, though, because they they supposedly closed the Boshantong restaurants in 1988 when the Olympics came through. Because it was embarrassing? Because it was embarrassing. It, yeah. But I was there a decade later, um, and it was, still, it was still very common. Now, it's possible that the younger generation of, you, of Koreans are less into Boshantong, but when I was there, it was not unusual at all. Did you have any? Yeah. How was it? It was good. It was very... It had, there was a lot of uh, gochujang, which is like a red pepper sauce, a lot of mm. uh, ginger. So it was, it was very... It was like a tender beef. It, it was yeah. okay. Like I've had a kangaroo and it's real chewy. Apparently, you got to cook oh. it like real low and real long to yeah. get it like where you can like eat it normally. Yeah. Uh, I found some dog meat in um, the Timor Leste or, or Kupang or somewhere in Indonesia. Okay. Um, but it was just like that in those wall rooms Did- where they kind of like it's just the meat is just it's left just out for there. hours. Yeah. No, 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 it's all chopped up. Okay. Okay. But I'm like, I don't want to eat cold dog for my first dog meal. Right. Some yeah. fresh maybe. What are yeah. those things called? Boshantongs? Well, Boshantong is the name. It means health and en- it's a euphemism. Oh, okay, it means okay. health enhancement stew. They also call it was it gay? Oh gosh, have I forgotten the word for dog already? Gay tong. Anyway, um, oh, sometimes they call it mung mung tong, mm-hmm. and mung mung is like, means bow wow. It's Korean for bow wow. Nice. So there's these wink wink nudge nudge. And I think Koreans and maybe Korean Americans in particular are sensitive about it. Um, and sometimes I talk about this on college campuses, and people get. Upset. Like, is this racist? I don't know how. <laughs> you know, like, it's not. Just calm down. No well, one cares. Well, part of my point is that, like, when I was eating with who at the time were my students, I'm here, I was trying to explain to them why we don't eat dog, like we see it as inhumane. And they're here, well, we understand that. But in America, when your grandma gets old, you, you ship your grandma across town to a, to a care home, and then you're like, you're like a, 
a, a, a virtuous grandson for visiting her twice a month. Whereas in our culture, when grandma gets old, we don't outsource her. We, we make sacrifices and we, we in their put culture. her in her home and we honor yeah. her, right? And so the lesson, college students sometimes don't get complexities. But So my lesson was like, look, okay, dog meat, that's an easy thing to judge as an American. But we've forgotten, to, we've completely forgotten about how we deal with old people in the United mm-hmm. States. And there's pragmatic reasons for having uh, older people in care homes. But Koreans really are taken aback by the idea that in, in a Confucian culture where age accrues respect, um, then you just sort of, you dump off grandma at a home and that's that. Yeah. Case closed. Whereas in whereas Korean kids, or at least the kids of the generation I was teaching 20 years ago, grandma was in the house every day. She was old. She had, she had earned her retirement. You know, she was, a, she was a, an honored person who was respected and was in the home and maybe she had a harder time going to the bathroom and whatever, but she, she was a part of their life. And so that's, that's another interesting lesson that you can learn from travel and from food specifically. You know, you go in and... and Instead of judging, just, like, just eat it and see what it's like. Yeah, or, or ask people why they eat it and, mm-hmm. and, and just gen- gently say, well, you know, in my country, we don't eat this because. And then and, um, people like to explain things. And I think Koreans are a little bit sensitive about dog meat specifically. And so they gave me some great... I was floored by that, that old people... Uh, oh, yeah. Analogy. It's kind of embarrassing. And and, and humbled, yeah. yeah. And so I think, um, yeah, try try different things and then ask questions. It's it's a great we way were, to We were having a, a, some version of, uh, of um, Balut in Cambodia. They have something similar. Okay. And some man came by and goes, oh, he saw we were eating it. And uh, he was like, gives you night energy. Okay. And whoever was like, he means for sex. Okay. <laughs> like, oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, now that you're... I guess more, let's say more successful than uh-huh. you were when you started traveling. Yeah. How has it made the travel experience different for you? You know, having money versus not. Not that you're loaded, but like you know what I mean. Right. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm much more stable. Yeah. Uh, and then I'm also sort of this travel guru guy, and and so like mm. back when I was really traveling in a super interesting way, nobody was asking me to speak to their universities. Oh know? right. <laughs> and now. And I, I still like I had some great travels in Africa this winter, but I'm not I'm not hand to mouth like I was in 1999 or whatever. I think, and not only am I more experienced, but I'm older, and so I'll rent a car sometimes. And, and there's like there's no way when I was 28 I would rent a car. Yeah. Um, now I'm 46 and I rent cars all the time. And in fact, when I was in Europe with my my sister and one of her sons came a couple years ago, it was cheaper. It was cheaper to rent a car and drive to Amsterdam and stay really? in an Airbnb in a field full of windmills and split the cost than it would have been to take a train and stay in the worst, worst hostel in the red light district because we were splitting costs, you know. Yeah. Another thing, great thing about um, renting cars is you can pick up hitchhikers. Um, and so in a way, I've, oh. I've, I'm just more comfortable spending money. And I've discovered things that my 28-year-old self would be surprised at. Like, hey, it's actually renting a car may be expensive sometimes, but other times it helps save money. And you can pick up hitchhikers. And you can find, especially in Africa, God, you know, what? the highways are lined with people who, who are waiting to pick up a ride, usually with a big truck. Um, and, and so if you find somebody, who, they have their, their fruit for the market and they just need to go eight miles, you know. So you pick them up and talk to them? Yeah, sometimes. Um, wow. Uh... And sometimes they won't speak English. But, like, if you rent a pickup in Africa or get a pickup in Africa, I'm sure you could... Africa in general is a very social place. Um, and I found people were very open 
to to talking and, and spoke pretty good English, at least in the. But I was I was in or near South Africa, so English is pretty common down there. Um, so anyway, that's just an example of something that I, an expense that I didn't make when I was younger that has yielded interesting results now. Yeah. Um, it also frees you up. I found just in renting a moped or a motorbike. Yeah. Frees you up to be like, I'll go and come whenever I want. Yeah. Instead of waiting for a bus or waiting for like. Or even a bicycle. Your, yeah, uh-huh. absolutely. Opens up the whole city instead of just the area you're in. Yeah, yeah. I think I, I, I underutilize that. I really should bicycle more. Like they have the Valib system in Paris, which is like your city bikes, city bikes here in New York. City bikes are great. And the Valibs are great in Paris. It's it just really? has changed my relationship to the city because you can pedal the entire city. It's not a very big, physically very big city. Yeah. And there's racks everywhere. So. Um, Going back to your earlier question, I think there's some ways that maybe I'm a little bit lazier than before. And mm-hmm. part of it is because my smartphone makes it easy for me to be lazy. And at the end of the day, sometimes I'd, I'd rather spend more money and not smell the feet of somebody from, you know, Wales. Um, it is frustrating to be like, you know, some loud drunk coming into a dorm at three yeah. in the morning. Just yeah. like screaming. And you're like, God, shut up. Where are you from? Not now. Not now. <laughs> right. Yeah. What are you doing? Right. Or they'll turn on the lights. I'm like, sorry. I'm like, then turn it back off. Use your cell phone light. Like, stop it. Those are annoying, but then the joys of that breakfast, that free breakfast, where it brings everyone together. Like, what's there to do here? What should I be seeing? Yeah. Where should I be going? Oh, is there a cool jazz club here? Oh, that's a great great energy. Yeah. The hostile mornings. I mean, yeah. Actually, that's something I should, I I do a lot less of now, especially because if I'm traveling with with multiple people, I can split an Airbnb and it's cheaper than the hostel, especially in Europe. But I I miss that dynamic. And it's so funny. It's the the kind of humor that probably wouldn't translate to comedy um, just because it's not a common experience. But like the loudest snorer I've ever heard in a dorm (laughs) was this German girl who was sleeping right next to me. And of course, they thought it was me because in the darkened dorm in Jerusalem, they thought it was, oh, it was the the knobby American guy over there. And so finally I had to like shake her bed and wake her up. Um, anyway, <laughs> you know, these hostile idiosyncrasies. And so sometimes I'm just too tired to mess with it. And so I'll spend more money. Yeah. And that's a nice lecture to have. And, and, I, and I, that's actually something I talk about in the book is that it's not a contest to spend the least amount of money. And, and, and yeah. sometimes, you know, why should you get into negotiating? Um, and this is something I saw in Pen on Pen about negoti- these people who are negotiating a 10 cent, you know, what what would amount to a ten cent bargain on a um, on the pedicab, yeah. and they're going to go drink ten dollars in beer at the bar. You know, yeah. Some of um, it though, I find I'm trying to justify why I would bargain. One, it's fun because I'm a Jew. Maybe it's part of my heritage or something like that. But yeah. two, it's like you mess up if you don't bring the price down. You've messed yeah. up the travel experience yeah. for later generations. Yeah. Where if I, if they say three and I know the price is one and I pay three, yeah. then it becomes three. Then they start charging five. And yeah, actually, that then it becomes confusing for hosts because we're we're horrible. Maybe as a Jew, you have better talents as a as a as a barter, <laughs> yeah, or bargainer than me, uh, because yeah, because we're, most Americans are not just not very good at it, and mm-hmm. we're in a hurry. You know, I eventually became pretty good at it. It's but, it is um, a school skill to like to to like learn. But but like I, I recently read an article in the Walrus, which is a Canadian magazine, about this guy and his sort of consumer's guilt in Cuba. And his sort of conclusion was, well, I am going to tip $10 if I want to. And it's like, really? You know, that basically then you have this expectation that, sure, you can be a hero in your own world and, and, and tip, you know, a, a month's wages to somebody. But then, I don't know, it, it makes the transition period hard. And speaking to your point about how much should you bargain or not bargain, um, 
And then, then are they going to be disappointed when everybody doesn't tip ten dollars? Yeah, right. Is it is um, some people people come from Europe and they're in Cuba and Europe isn't a tipping culture, Asia isn't a tipping culture, and suddenly they're assholes because they're not tipping. I mean, it, it it's, right. it's Pandora's box. You know, that yeah. you think you do something that, that feels generous, or you're in a hurry and you don't want to bargain, or and then suddenly it's weird. I, like when I was when I was in Myanmar. I've been there many times because I was on a border town, but my, when I spent three weeks there, I bought a Chinese-made bicycle and rode around for three weeks. Um, and, uh, like, I was invited, as it sounds like you were in, in Chan State, to, to sleep in, like, the monastery in some town one mm-hmm. night, and, and it was awesome. Uh, and then the next night, I had a similar gener- piece of uh, generosity. I think it was just, like, a tri- uh, tri-cab, pedicab, uh, driver took me to meet his family in a market and we had food and stuff and it was obvious that somebody had had the same experience and given him like 20 bucks or something mm-hmm. you know and so I gave him what would have been a generous tip in Burmese chat and he seemed a little disappointed and it's obvious he was one of those people who was trying to negotiate how to and this was in 2001 when nobody went to Myanmar yeah. so he was trying to figure out what is what is what's the right amount here what's the right amount yeah, yeah. and so I felt bad because I had with no expectation accepted generosity in the temple the night before from people who'd probably never done it before and maybe and like if I had given them $20 had the next people they offered generosity to it's, it's weird and I don't think yeah. there's I don't think there's a hard and fast moral answer but it's it opens up the box of how tipping and bargaining and everything affects people the one thing I heard that I will say like hard and fast is like do not give money to children yeah because even they're like, oh no, let me help them out. It's like you, fu- you fuck them. Or even pens or or cookies. Yeah, they ask for for pens or pens yeah. or yeah. yeah, mini. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, just for stuff. And you're like, no, go to school and earn it. And, and part of it, part of the problem there is it breaks down the social hierarchy. You know, um, in more traditional cultures where, you know, the the parents are the or the grandparents are the head of the household. You know, if you give a kid twenty bucks and the dad makes twenty bucks a month, then then suddenly it encourages kids going out and asking for money. You know. I had somebody do my laundry once in, in on Island in Timor Leste, and, and uh, I was like, "Do I? How much do I give? Give five bucks?" And he was like, "That's a full day's salary, right. so I wouldn't do that." And I was yeah. like, "Okay, I, yeah. I don't want to do that." But yeah, but if you have the money, it's still like you feel like, "Well, man, who cares?" But it's like you should care a little. Yeah, it's such a hard, um, it's such a, a weird situation to think about because because mm-hmm. I think we got on this topic by talking about. Uh, one downsmanship, you know, super cheap backpackers. Right. When you should spend oh, yeah. money, when you should not spend money. Um, and then, but one great thing about super cheap backpackers is that they learn how to bag and bargain in the manner of a local, you mm-hmm. know. Um, and maybe that's the solution. Where you find out how much the actual cost is. Yeah. How much yeah. a bottle of water, it's like a standard thing where you got to buy everywhere. And they hit you with like 10 of their currency and you're like, you know it's a three. And you're like, yeah. come on, it's three. And let, you let them talk you up to four because you're white. But like, yeah. I'm not paying you 10. Yeah, yeah. Although I had once on the on the Great Wall of China, let's just say that was the price, and uh, the guy was like ten. I was like, no, no, it's three. And he was like, yeah, it's three if you don't lug a thing of waters all the way up to the top of the Great Wall of China. Yeah, I was like, yeah. ten it is. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. And that, I think that's why traveling slow, the vagabonding type of travel, it helps you understand that because you're not just trying to solve a problem; you're trying to understand a situation. Mm-hmm. And if you spend enough time to understand the local prices, then you've earned the right to bargain hard, right? Yeah. Um, and I, I think that, and, and even well, like with the beggar situation, if you live in a city for a month and you see the same beggars every day, then you have a better understanding of what their patterns are and 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 things like that. So. Yeah. What I found for the hostels is, yeah, it saved money, but like, 
I'm now doing well enough in my career, especially in Southeast Asia, where I could easily afford hotel rooms. They're what, 30 bucks a night for a pretty good one. Yeah, or, uh, or like 10 bucks a night for a perfectly good bed. Oh, know? yeah. But I just defer to the poor people I met. And when it's like, hey, let's see this restaurant for $3. Like, ugh, little pricey. How about that one for $1.50? You're like, sure, let's do that. Yeah, yeah. And then when I was on my own, I go to restaurants. I want okay. something good. Or if I was going to be in a city for one night, let's say I got in at 6 p.m., I had to leave the next morning at like 7 a.m., uh-huh. it's like, I'm taking a shower, I'm getting one good night of sleep. Yeah. I'm not going to make friends here. It's too quick. And that can be a fun thing, like if, you, if you're if you always traveling dirt cheap all the time, yeah. to reward yourself with a holiday inside of a holiday and uh-huh. spend like 300 bucks on a hotel. Uh-huh. I did that in Bangkok. I went to the Oriental. Actually, the mag- I did it as a magazine story, so it, it doesn't go again, but I just wanted to see what it was like. I had never, in two years, I'd never spent more than $15 on a hotel. Wow. And, and so I was a real dirtbag. I mean, it's 1999, so maybe it was a little bit cheaper, but I was, I was really saving my money. Yeah. And so it's like, I'm going to stay at the Oriental for a night. And it was fun, just, just for the difference. Dude, the joy you get from a nice hotel for the yeah. first time versus the 50th time. Oh, it's yeah. like what yeah. the fuck? They have robes here, yeah, you yeah. know. <laughs> I, I jumped on my bed. I'll admit, I jumped up and down on my yeah. bed um, just because it's like I was gonna, I was gonna enjoy every amenity yeah. in the hotel room. So, uh, yeah. So that's a, that's a good way to mix it up. I'm almost the opposite of you. Is that if I'm gonna eat alone, I'll usually oh well, I'll just get some street fo- food and sit on yeah. the curb. Um, whereas if, when I'm with friends, my friends are I'm not. Weirdly enough, after all my travels, I'm not that much of a foodie. I mean, yeah. I can appreciate a delicious meal, but but um, I'm more, more food is the fuel for the rest of the day kind of guy. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. I've gotten to that point a little bit now, especially in America, where it's like, there's no food of this city. If I'm in Texas, get some barbecue, sure. But, like, if I'm in, I don't know, Missouri, it's like, just eat healthy. You yeah. don't, they don't have to eat garbage just because you're in some place. Like, yeah. if I'm in New York for a day, I'll get some pizza. Sure. You know, if you were like come through, but generally it's like just eat. How much Western food did you eat while you were like in Southeast Asia or in Africa or places like that? I think the longer you travel, the less you eat Western food because uh-huh. you realize it's the shittiest dish on the menu. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think in Vagabonding, I talk about being in Pushkar, India, and the menu it had Greek food, it had Israeli food, it had Italian food, and it was all shitty, you know, because yeah. they had done, basically so many backpackers had been through that it was, there was sort of this nice United Nations element to, but, to it, but the, and the cook had learned to, to cook all these foods, but none of them well. Right. You know, his mom probably cooked better Indian food than the rest of that combined. And so, so I've just learned that, that the hamburger that you have in Thailand is going to be one of the crappier hamburgers you ever had. You'll never eat. Whereas the Thai food, there's, you can get mind-blowing Thai food for a dollar. Like, when I was writing Vagabonding, yeah. I had, yeah. I had a, this dude down the street, and I would go into his kitchen and point at what I wanted to eat that day, mm-hmm. and he would fix it for me, and I, I, I must have had a hundred meals there that I'll never top, and none of them cost more than a dollar. They're so good. It's so good. And they're so cheap. Where the it's My friend says this whenever I'm like, ask him, what's a currency exchange? She goes, free. All right, it's free. Everything here is free. Okay. Pretty much, you know? Okay, right. <laughs> so That's it's like, just give them some of... orange money. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. and they hand you whatever the value of that in food is. Yeah. Uh, plus change. But like... Yeah, and that can mess you up in a market. Then suddenly you have 20 tons of limes or whatever. Because, yeah, yeah. Because you, yeah. you don't recognize the money. <laughs> um, it's just so that I find it's like, I'm not going to find this food when I get back home. Yeah. So yeah. what a waste to eat a burger or some yeah. garbage pizza. And you think it's comfort food, but it isn't, you know? Yeah. Um, find, find food that'll be comfort food later in life, you know? Find... So find something to fall in love with. I have with. not found a Burmese um, restaurant here. I've looked like a compulsory, that's the wrong word, 
Cursory. Compulsive? Cursory. No. Yeah, like a quick look. Cursory. Cursory. Yeah. Thanks, mm-hmm. thanks, author. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but when I was in L.A. two weeks ago, my friend's like, hey, this is Myanmar food place. I'm like, yeah. And I had some like tea leaf salad and just like evoke these memories mm. of January. Yeah. That I was like, oh, yeah. And then they're like, how much? It, meal was $45. Like, how much would this have cost? And I'm like, okay, it's 1500 shot, 500 shot. 50. Right. Yeah. 250 <laughs> It's just that, like. I had a pitcher of beer in Myanmar for 40 cents. Yeah. It's the cheapest, the cheapest pitcher beer? I ever had Mi- was in Myanmar. Yeah. It was 40 cents. Jesus. And it was good beer. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. No. Yeah. I love that. I, I actually, the reason I talked about comfort food is that Korean food has become my comfort food. Really? And so I went to Koreatown and, and had, one of the joys of coming to New York is, is Koreatown for me. Although I went to Flushing once and had, went to a place with, um, where there was no English on the menu and I can read Korean. Really? Um, and so oh, that was yeah. the best Korean food I've had. The, basically, wow. if, if, you, if there's no English on the menu in New York, that's probably a pretty damn good food. <laughs> yeah. And, and it was, it was so good. I, I couldn't remember even where it is um, in the Korean part of Flushing. But, um, but yeah, no, there's something about, I think it's tied into just how raw I felt like when I went to Korea, I felt like I was a failure, as one does really? when you're 26. Like I was 26. That's crazy. I tried to write a book about, you know how hard you are on yourself when you're young and you think you're supposed to be successful. I tried to write a book about traveling the States. I thought I was going to be the new Jack Kerouac. Nobody cared, you know? <laughs> yeah. And so I went to Korea with my tail between my legs to to uh, make some money and I, and I just learned so many I was just so vulnerable at that time and so I think I sort of comforted myself at the time by learning food which was my way of learning Korea and so now probably forever Korean food will be a comfort food for me yeah and, yeah. and, and it's because I was vulnerable in an, an unexpected place 20 years ago so yeah the weird things you set these things up I was talking about traveling once and I was like no I've never done that and then um, before I had done anything and then someone was like didn't you live in Israel for two years after high school I was like oh yeah, I guess, but that doesn't really. Like, why doesn't it really? What do you mean? Where in Israel did you live? I was in yeshiva. I was Orthodox, so I was uh, okay studying in like a seminary in in Beit Vagan, Jerusalem. So you speak Hebrew and all that. It's gone way worse. Yeah. Yeah. Sadly, but no, yeah, that that counts. Yeah, I know, I, but I didn't even think of it that way. It was yeah. like oh, it was just something you do, and I would assume it's the same way for you in Korea when you're 26. You're like. I mean, looking back on it now, for me, it's going. Wow, that must have been amazing. And you were like, I'm a failure. <laughs> right. Yeah. No. Well, well, there was an amazing aspect to it, but it wasn't like I was going there to learn about Korea. And of course, I did learn about Korea. Yeah. And my students taught me more than I taught them, I'm sure. But uh, yeah, it was just a, it was at that time in American history. I'm sure it's still true. As a guy with a worthless English degree, I could make decent amount of money in Korea. And as someone who, you know, was proud of his writing and had failed in his writing up to that point, you know, I just. I wasn't proud to be right. there. It was it was so vital as a travel writer, as a traveler, as a writer in general to to be there and to experience that again and, and to sort of be humbled at that point in my life. Um, and so yeah, so one of the one of the side effects is that Korean food it makes me sentimental. Yeah. So, and reminds me of that time in my life, which was such an exciting time in my life and it's I'm I'm so much more successful now on every level, but there's something sort of awesome about remembering those times where you felt less than successful yeah it's 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 in comedy too yeah where I say this once in a while about Ralphie Mae when I was a year in he's this big comic who was successful at the time and he was like how long are you doing comedy he's like a year he goes oh this one is just fun and okay. I remember going like man I don't know what I'm going to eat today I don't know if I'll have money to eat today but right. looking back he was 100% right it's just about writing a good joke you get one callback like I did it I did a callback I've never done that before right yeah you know yeah 
it's just the joy of it. I don't know, but I can't imagine Hemingway feeling like a like a failure when he's like signing up for the Spanish American War. You know. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was that was his his version of a travel stunt. Maybe I'm sure he knew he would write about that. Yeah. Um, not to disparage his his convictions. But, he's dead uh, now. It's okay. He's not gonna. It's not gonna be feel bad. Yeah. Actually, I'm curious. Um, what is it like to travel as a comedian? You know, is, does it inform your comedy? Or oh it, yeah. Okay. Well, for me, I've almost got to the point where I'm going to try to stay home this year more. Okay. Because I, I find that I'm less able to relate to regular oh, to experience. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Where I'm like, I can only do so much about, you know, buses somewhere or trains somewhere and less about like getting into a fight with a neighbor or getting like dumped. Right. Things like that. Where like, oh, I, I understand what that experience is like. Right. Because there's a narrative core to comedy, but, and travel is full of narrative, mm-hmm. right? But again, it's that thing, you come home and you don't want to bore your friends with a story about some awesome moment somewhere else. Yeah. So maybe on a comedy level. Oh, for sure. You can do that on stage. Some okay. story about some horrible like uh, experience okay. Okay. where it just becomes like, I mean, I have a, a, a bit on YouTube about my first shit squat toilet okay. experience okay. in China and it just becomes like great laughs. And then some people go, man, it's that way in Turkey also, or man, yeah. trust me, all over like rural Europe, it's like that. Yeah. Or I went camping once. Yeah, you know. exactly. I had to do the same thing. Yeah. Oh, that's, yeah. Um, I guess humiliation, there's something universal. Yeah. I mean, that's why young adult literature is fun to read, because it often hinges on humiliations of youth. Yeah. And, and I think we can all relate to that somehow. So I think the money sometimes stops you from having these experiences. When we got stopped in that city in Sean State, where it was like, what are we going to do? The bus is left. We're not supposed to stay here. Do we sleep outside? And I know I could just, and the people don't know what I do, I could just be like, I'll just hire somebody we can take us to the city to the next city you know oh, two yeah. hours from now yeah. but it's like no don't do that fucking find yeah. the experience yeah yeah you know and you get way more I, I've done that way of, oh. of not hiring a, a car yeah of just like well, let's figure out how we're gonna sleep tonight or, or of hitching or, or something yeah hitching yeah when they tell you like oh the last bus is left I'm like how do I get to so and so and they give you the thumb and you're like yeah. fuck yeah. alright here we go yeah actually I um I got left behind by the Trans-Siberian train in, really? in uh, on the Mongolian-Russian border wow. in 99. And so I had to hire a car, but it was hiring a car in the best sense of the way. I'm, I'm sure you would have had fun as a comedian dealing with that because I'm talking to this sort of Asian-Russian girl who's trying to explain how I can hire a taxi that will go to Ulan Uday, so it's like a 100-mile taxi ride. With broken ride. English, probably. With broken English, and so she's poorly translating it, and she's here. Um, well, you have to make sure that you... you Oh, is it like pay the money up front, but don't show too much money because I'm here. Oh, I'll get cheated. She's here. No, no, no. You know, I'll get, I'll offend him. No, no, no. And she's here killed. You'll get killed. So it's, <laughs> I look for the word. It's, it's like she's not it, killed. Probably isn't the exact word. It, 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 I'm sure. At least I hope it was just her way of saying be careful. Yeah. But with the with the words that she had is basically oh well just it's fine. <laughs> she's saying it's fine, but don't get killed. And so. Um, it wasn't like renting a car, but it was one situation where I got out and I got a story as a result. Yeah. You know? And so I think it's that, that difficulty. Like the, I think I would think, not being a comedian, but I would think the more you embrace hardship, the more you, you get to that core humanity, you know, that yeah. sort of raw humanity that, that makes people identify with and laugh somehow. You know, that. Dude, I, so I was in L.A. and, and uh, I got there a little early and I was going to finish a sound editing for my special. Um, and... Uh, it was, what took way later than I thought it was going to be. I was going to call a friend. By the time I got out, he was asleep. I was like, fuck. I went to one hotel. It was closed. It was sold out. Another one was like 300 bucks. And I'm like, I need it for six hours. I don't want to. And then I was like, I'm just going to sleep in my car. Okay. I went up in the hills and did. It was fine. And then I told people later. And they're like, what? 
yeah. and I was like, oh, you have no idea how awful I can live. Just a yoga mat somewhere is like, yeah, yeah. good enough. I think people forget um, how easy potentialities too. I have a weird story. Before before I vagab- actually before my first vagabond trip, I was in college. I wanted to jump trains one summer. Oh, neat! And so I was in the Pacific Northwest. We tried to jump trains to Canada, but the train wasn't going so we went to Spokane because that's where the train was going and we got arrested in Spokane and for, for train jumping? yeah but it was by the train police uh, and so, uh, so, so they, they blow us. their big whistles at you? right I, I think it's they're, they're hired by the train companies because if some dorky college kid like me loses a leg then the train company gets sued and so we went to the office and our, our mug shots we held fingers up like I was 9 and my buddy was 10 and my other friend was 8 yeah. and so we spent it only ended up being 3 days but I mean that's such a raw experience so we, we slept in train yards and wow. when I was driving home to Kansas that summer and I got sleepy I went to the train yard to sleep what a stupid place to sleep but I was I'd, I'd realized just programmed yourself the, yeah, because I had train jumped and felt fine, I was somehow more comfortable sleeping in a train yard than in a public park, you know, because I knew I wouldn't be messed with through experience. Yeah. Except by, I mean, yeah, I guess I wasn't sleeping in a rail yard. I was sleeping by the tracks yeah. uh, on the trip home. So it's just, it's one of those situations where why would anybody ever think about having to sleep in a, in a rail yard? But because I had jumped trains for a few days, suddenly my 20-year-old self was comfortable sleeping in a rail you yard. You knew that as a place of like, yeah, I can yeah. do that. So it's the same with the car, you know? Yeah. Um, that that uh, it shouldn't be weird. I understand why your friends think it's weird, but yeah, why not? I mean, the doors are locked. I don't like. There's no issue, really. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you can understand why they think it's weird, but they're like, eh, who cares? Yeah. On some level, what? Let's talk a little for a second about um, expectations. Okay. And having them and not having them. Uh, how they hold yeah. you back and how they get you to do things as well. I don't. Yeah, I well. I think expectations are good because that's why, you know, why would you, why else would you go to uh, to Machu Picchu unless you had expectations that it would be beautiful and and, yeah. and amazing, you know, or that you've dreamt about it. But I think if again going back to something we talked about earlier, if your expectations and your reality always match up, then at best you'll be a consumer of the experience that you have you have bought an experience that is exactly what you got planned what I was it to supposed be. to. Yeah, yeah, and so. Um, I, you can't avoid expectations, but if you can sort of wiggle inside your expectations as you go and realize that the expectations are set by someone who's comparatively ignorant. They're set by a guy who's looking at his internet connection at home in Brooklyn or Manhattan or wherever, Kansas, and the expectations are being set by images, which if you follow any travel Instagram account, they're beautiful pictures, but they probably don't coincide with the hundreds of other people holding up cell phones or smartphones yeah. while that picture was being taken. Right. Yeah. And then after you travel for a day or a week, suddenly you're a smarter person. You know a lot more. You've talked. You've had breakfast with people who've been traveling for two years, and they, they're giving you ideas that had never occurred to you. And so that's when you really have to be a, a, a sh- harsh about your expectations and realize that. Um, if you're only holding yourself to your expectations, then you're selling yourself short. You know, it, it's okay yeah. to to not go to like Machu Picchu will always be there if you if you learn about this festival that happens every twenty years up the valley, maybe go to the festival. Yeah, exactly. Where it's like um, I, I talked somehow I try to relate it to like coming to New York, where they're like, well, I, I say it like this a lot, where there's like two things you want from a city. From early on, you got to see the statues. And then eventually you start hitting the restaurants. You like interesting, you know. Okay. You actually get the more like living there experience. Right. But you got to see the statues. I mean, yeah. you can't go to, uh, you know, Siem Reap and not go to Angkor Wat. You ha- don't be an asshole. You have to. That's a good way of putting it. Don't be an you asshole. Know? I mean, yeah. that don't. 
don't be the the, the, the detached cool guy traveler before you've even been to a place. Yeah. You know? um, uh, a friend of my sister's is here for the first time from Mexico, uh, and we were talking, we were giving him suggestions, and I sort of felt myself, I'm, I guess I've lived in New York for short times before, and so I sort of fell into cool guy travel advice mode uh-huh. when I realized this guy probably wants to see Times Square. Right. And of course he wanted to see Times Square. Like standing in Times Square and you're from Leon, Mexico, and suddenly you're in Times Square, not right. only is it sort of a, a this complete blast to the visual senses, but it's also, it ratifies that you're there, yeah. you know? Um, yeah. In the in in the way that whatever burlesque club you know in Chinatown that I may have recommended otherwise. Well, there's that too, to, though. So if I come to New York as an outsider, I'm like I want to see Times Square, I want to get a slice of pizza. Yeah. And you're like, yeah, it's great. Let me show you this place where they do awesome jazz on Tuesday nights and all these cool jazz musicians okay. show up. And you're like, yeah. okay, well that's not in Lonely Planet. They've only been doing yeah. that for two years. Okay. You know, but you're like that's a cool New York experience. Or let me like get on the subway. Yeah. That's like good. oh, there's actually more fun than you think it would be. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, but you'd have to come off your expectations in order to do that. Yes. You know? Yeah. That, that's a good way of, 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 of giving advice, is that give them the icons, but give them some cool counterintuitive stuff as well. When you're talking about the subway, Roland Barth, I think, said that um, when you go up into the top of the Eiffel Tower, you think you see Paris, but you really don't. You, right. you go in the metro, and you see a lot more of Paris than you do see standing people, the top of the See people, see, like... I went to school at Yeshiva University my first year when I was still Orthodox, mm-hmm. and... Uh, and just the Spanish Harlem area, 185th and Amsterdam, and people playing like three-card Monty in the streets, and you're like, yeah. God damn, and you can't see that from on top of the Empire State Building. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. You know, you can see where it is, but you'll never get down and dirty like that. Yeah. No, it's good to strike your balance. I'm trying to think, I first came here in 1994. Yeah. I came to this place, Tompkins Square Park, and there are people sleeping here. Oh, you can't, that was when it was a war zone, right? It, I was maybe too naive to. Yeah. I, I think I brown bagged a fortio <laughs> a few blocks away just because that was so, well, one because I was cheap. Yeah. The bars were so expensive, and I just it just felt like a New York thing to do. Um, it could have been dangerous. I had some people had told me to go to what they called Alphabet Soup at the time. Yeah. There was a bar called Sophie's. Have you heard of Sophie's? I, I just distinctly remember it. You could get beer for like a dollar or two dollars or something. Um, I went to a taping of the Donahue show. <laughs> I went up the Empire State Building, and so it was an interesting. It was an interesting mix. On the first time I was on the subway, um, I met a porn star, or at least a guy mm-hmm. who said he was a porn star. A guy who said he was in Debbie Does Dallas. Um, really? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, was he Dallas? What's that? Was he Dallas? He was. He said his name was Tony Mansfield. I remember this stuff okay. very clearly because yeah. it was my first vagabonding trip. And actually, in 1994, you were conditioned as an American to be scared of New York. New York was still a scary place. Um, and so I was, even though I'd been traveling for about five or six months by that time, um, I, was, I was nervous. I parked the van in New Jersey and came over on the PATH train. Because uh, <laughs> you're like, my hug perhaps will get robbed if I leave my car there. <laughs> right, yeah. right, right. And, and like I said, I mean, there were homeless people here in, in the park, but I, w- I never felt danger i slept at the y up the vanderbilt y at 42nd street oh. um and and it was awesome i mean i think that taught me a lesson early on that my whole life and maybe new york in the 70s was was lousy um but i came here and i loved it i, I realized that i really that new york was a special place and it remains one of my favorite cities in the world it's pretty um, it's pretty exciting and and but yet i was this this kid wandering around with his with his booze in a bag and and going to the Donahue and trying to make sense of things so it's fun it's fun I forget who would give history has forgotten who gave me the advice to go to Sophie's and Alphabet Soup versus seeing the Donahue show but it all worked out well it left me wanting more of New York 
Yeah, you said something in that book, if I'm remembering right, was like uh, somebody asked somebody if they saw the real Asia, and he responded, "It's it was all real to me. I don't know. Yeah, Thomas Merton. Thomas yeah. Merton. I love that quote. He was a monk, a Trappist monk, who lived in... Um, uh, Kentucky, but he was almost like a beatnik monk. Like he mm-hmm. was, he was sort of his ideas were getting into the American consciousness around the same time as Allen Ginsberg and Edward Abbey and, and oh. other uh, writers of the time. And he was just in a way that you see among monks, um, usually affiliated with like Buddhist monk Dalai Lama type Buddhist monks. But he was just a real. He was just open to the universe in the way that a monk should be. And, and his travel journals are fascinating. And so they, it was sort of an innocent answer. They're here, did you see the real Asia? You know, thinking that they're, that's sort of a sophisticated way of saying, did you, you know, eat the chicken foot soup in, in the yeah. market? And he was wise enough to understand that, you know, uh, an Asian guy playing pinball is as Asian as... And also, you know. yeah, if it changes, like if there's this new fusion rush, if fusion becomes a big thing in New York, then right. fusion is the real New York. Yes, yeah. You know? Yeah. That's at the time when I went, let's just say, if I traveled here 30 years ago, this thing was happening. There was a renaissance of Indian food. So if you go to New York, get that Indian food then. And yeah. that was the real New York, let's yeah. just say, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, they, the, the real London now, if you want good food in London, they say you get curries or... Yeah, or, exactly. Or, or shawarma. Thai food. Yeah, uh-huh. or shawarma, definitely. Um, yeah, that's what they all talked about, the problem with immigration in, in, in uh, London. But I'm like, yeah, but the late night food now is so right. much better than it yeah. was. Oh, by, by far. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, I mean, this has happened everywhere. In, when photography... I wrote about this in my souvenirs book. When photography... studios arrived in Tokyo in the 1860s western travelers would go to Tokyo and be disappointed to see all these Japanese people posing in their waistcoats and top hats Mm -hmm. for family portraits and the the photography studios eventually learned to keep a bunch of shogun costumes basically so so that westerners could come and and get pictures of what they thought Japan was and so this is you know going back to expectations is that some of our expectations of other countries are really are there's two dimensional to the point of being insulting, you know? Um, and I think I had those at a time. I, I went to Korea sort of expecting pagodas and bicycles and stuff. When in a sense, Korea was way more sophisticated than the United States yeah. in, in the terms of education and a lot of aspects of technology and stuff. Oh. Um, and I think if you don't allow yourself to be surprised by how as Westerners were being beat at being Westerners in countries that aren't Western, you know, if you if you hold on to this idea that that a cultural the culture is siloed and that it isn't always changing, um, when you see monks with smartphones, yeah, it's almost like a betrayal. Yeah, we're like, but I wanted this. That's the expectations thing. But I wanted them to be these peaceful, like, don't talk all day monks. Yeah, but then you stop and go, oh, now I know, and can talk about how monks have smartphones. That's yes. the real them now, and it probably. It doesn't make them less monk. Right, you know? exactly. Uh, I remember seeing, a, 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 when I moved to Korea, the first week I was there, I saw a monk with Air Jordans underneath his robes. And I just thought that was the weirdest yeah. anomaly. You yeah. know? But why not be comfortable? Um, why not be comfortable? Yeah. yeah, and maybe he likes basketball. I don't know. A lot of my students in Korea knew the NBA better than I did. So I made a monk die laughing one time when he was telling me how he can't eat solid foods after noon. Um, okay. Yeah, only at... Uh, Where was this? Thailand, northern Thailand, somewhere, okay. and I was like, so. But then you can eat like, like liquids and stuff. He goes, yeah, yeah, it's fine. And I was like, well, do you ever get like some pad thai and then like put it in a blender? Till and he just, they just laugh for like ten minutes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So sort of a Western solution, <laughs> yeah. Eastern problems. It's there. like no, <laughs> what? <laughs> 
I actually, when I traveled the States in 94, I stayed at a Cistercian monastery in Massachusetts. Yeah. And it was interesting to just see a bunch of dudes who got up at 3 in the morning and went to bed at 9 and prayed five times a day. Oh. Um, and I think one reason it was interesting is just that it was different, is that, that yep. people were living a, for contemplation, you know. Benedictine monks in the Christian tradition are more charity-oriented and stuff, but these guys, their life was given to contemplation. And their way of being in the world and their attention of, to the world was pretty remarkable. Although it was funny, they had, like, these dumb jealousies, too. You know, at the end of the day, it's a bunch of people trying to live together, you know. Um, oh, right. What were they jealous about? Well, it, it was funny. Like, Father David was the host, and you could tell he was this type A guy, and he was an organizer, and maybe his... And, and, and probably... It would be a very sloppy place without Father David. He 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 got the ho- the guests. Then there's Father Simon who sheared the sheep, and and was just this godly man. And everybody couldn't shut up about Father Simon and how godly he was and how gentle he was. And they'd never <laughs> met a guy like that. And you could just see Father David fuming, you know, because <laughs> I do good work too. <laughs> in, in his in his mind, it's like, well, yeah, Father Simon may shear the fucking sheep, but I'm the reason that your toilet works, you know. Um, so that I mean, that made them in a, in a place. I think it's easy. You know, the monks, be they um, Catholic or, or Buddhist or whatever, you, you, you sort of project ideals on them, mm-hmm. you know, like a, what we've lost in a materialistic world. But, so it was fun to see just a normal human thing like jealousy rear its head in yeah. the monastery. Um, so that's, I think there's, there's a corollary there with cross-cultural stuff, is it just anywhere people um, live differently. Um, like being, being in North Africa or the Middle East during Ramadan, you know, and just sort of realizing how hard it is to negotiate Ramadan. Um, and how hard it can no be. restaurants are open daytime and stuff? Or yeah, they- or you can buy a, buy a bottle of water, but you're the only person in the street who's drinking water. And you're, sur- you're the American guy, the non-Muslim guy, who's the asshole who's oh, really? chugging water in front of people in their who, faces. Can't, who can't drink until sunset. Um, no drinking either? Wow. Yeah. And so, and what, what happens, I, I noticed a lot of, especially the young men would go, they would wash their face. And you could tell that they had been taught when they were young, if you get super thirsty, wash your face, and if water gets in your mouth, then that's okay. You're not breaking the rules of Ramadan. So even that, just being in a place, I think it's easy to objectify and over-exoticize other places, but being in a place where everybody is not eating all day makes you think about eating. You know, it makes you think about drinking. Um, And so that's another way, I mean, I guess I'm just saying you don't have to meet monks to be put into a different mindset, that suddenly you're you're in a different country and they are abiding by certain cultural norms that you have to come to terms with one way or another. Yeah. Um, and I felt, at first I obliviously was guzzling my water, but then I realized that, then I just sort of did it more privately because I, I was being a jerk. You know, yeah. I, was, I was the guy with the, the, the delicious steak right in, in front of the cancer face. patient who can't eat steak yeah. sort of thing, you know. Oh, you so. should have this. It's so good. <laughs> yeah. 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 Let me uh, ask you about uh, women. When you're gone for a while... I got real thirsty after a while. Like, it became, like, a problem. <laughs> I okay. couldn't, like, talk in a normal way. But, like, how is dating when everyone's going their own way? Oh, yeah. You know? And, like, but there, there's a void you have to find, sort of fill of, like, that level of interaction. Right. So, you mean, like, dating on a year-long Sex trip? and also dating. Like, right. love and sex. Um, there's some overlap, but there's also a difference. Well, I mean, we were talking about how you you can meet someone and two hours later, you can meet somebody in Zimbabwe and two hours later you're having a conversation you would never have with your friends. Uh-huh. Same thing happens when you meet someone of the opposite sex, you know, or, or someone you're romantically interested in regardless of your sexual orientation. And so I think it's, um, 
road love affairs are a common thing, you know, yeah. that, that suddenly the, the, um, the progression of, of romance goes really fast and you can actually become attached to somebody. You know, you go on a Tinder date in New York and you talk for a few hours and whatever, whereas you, you meet somebody in, in, we keep going back to Myanmar, so to Myanmar, and then you rent bikes and you ride around the city together and you're both solving problems together. You're trying to get past certain language things, but you're also getting to know each other. Yeah. And pretty soon you really miss this person. Um, sometimes it's not even romantic and it's like, oh man, I hope this could be romantic. I wonder if I can meet them someplace else. So I guess it's a different negotiation. I mean, we're all dating in a different way than our great, great, great grandfathers did. Yeah, but absolutely. on travel, it gets really postmodern. And there is like a romantic, like on a different uh, meaning of romance, where it's just like, it's a romantic idea to be yeah. in this yeah. foreign place with, even with a dude friend is a romantic idea. Yeah, because but it's, then with it's a, a woman, it's reality. Like, oh, yeah, it's like, where did you meet? Like, I and don't know. I think one can overemphasize sex. I think people, travelers who want to get laid a lot can, you yeah. know, especially if you go to a scene, yeah. like a beach scene or a, you know, a backpacker scene. You know, if, if getting laid on the road is your thing, then that's, it's not that hard to do. Yeah. But I think even harder to negotiate, I mean, that's an easier fire to put out, so to speak, but harder to negotiate is that, real, that really heightened human interaction you have with people when you travel, you know? And so you can have, you can have... Um, a non-sexual relationship with a woman, you know, for a few days and miss her in a way, yeah, m- you know, more than a fling with, you know, in, in a New York fling type thing, or you have a full-on romantic sexual relationship and suddenly it's like, damn, what am I going to do? Right. <laughs> you know, I'm supposed to go here. Yeah. Do you ever change your plans and just say, fuck it, I want to spend more time with this this girl? Yeah, woman. I, I, I have me. a famously horrible experience yeah. that, that I was right about the horrible ones. Yeah, they're more fun to write about. <laughs> you don't want to say everything turned out great. It's so fucking boring. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was about to t- turn 30. This was years ago, and I met this super sexy Belgian girl in Egypt. And sometimes it's... The backpacker scenes that I was in, at least, were pretty male. I, that may have changed, mm-hmm. but it's usually... 60 40 70 30 dude to female and so like the you know like the really sexy girls just get a lot of attention you know oh, yeah. and, and so in egypt i was almost uh, we were friends but i was i didn't want to be that guy but then we kept in touch and she's here i want to i want to winter in thailand um come meet me in thailand it's like i'm already headed to thailand so we had sort of this fling and i had just turned 30 i just done my first like Kanye nast assignment as a travel writer i felt like i was coming to my own and then suddenly i had this really gorgeous sexy Belgian artist girl that was traveling with me so we traveled for um, I think one thing about travel is it makes you you have the country and the experience in common and so it makes you overlook your differences mm. you have this heightened experiences together so so we had a great we had a great week I went off into the jungle to do my two week assignment for Conan S. Traveler yeah. and she was a pretty aloof person I mean uh, I don't know how many European art women you've dated, but they can be really aloof, you know. Okay. She's sort of Frenchy in that sort of, she's not going to take too much stock in things. Came back, and there are like 15 letters from her waiting for me, or emails. And uh, they started with, hey, we had fun going up through, I'm, I love you and I miss you, and come to Belgium. Wow. And so I think she had gone through an arc. In, re- in retrospect, it was a depression arc. While you weren't she, responding? She, because I wasn't responding, but she knew I couldn't respond. Yeah. Um, but I think that she was slowly losing the buzz of Thailand, and she had a, she had associated with me. So I came out of the jungle. I got I got mal- malaria, <laughs> spent some yeah. time in the hospital, and so and so I was like, but my love Steffi is waiting for me. So I bought this four hundred dollar Beeman Bangladesh ticket from Bangkok to Brussels and flew there, and it it had 
it, it unraveled in 36 hours. It was a horrible experience. We'd had a mountaintop experience in Thailand, but we were, we were strangers. We were sort of artificial people. And there's an, ex- an extent to which you get, you get to know yourself when you travel, but you also perform a version of yourself in travel. And you Explain get, that. Well, you get to know... I think you get to know yourself when you have to struggle with food poisoning or being mm-hmm. lost or whatever. You, you learn how you have resources and you learn how you deal with problems and you learn how strong you are, you know, in the sixth hour of diarrhea on the long haul bus over the Himalayas. But then you're around people who, who are so happy to be there and traveling and they worked for two years in the cannery and now they're here and you're performing a version of yourself. You're, you're, you're talking to each other. You're sort of, you're so excited about the situation that suddenly you're a more you're a fuller, more romantic person of yourself, and you're sort of a bullshit version of yourself. Sadly, you know, sort of, yeah. And, and so suddenly, this really pretty Belgian girl is seeing me as someone bigger. Like she's projecting onto me, and I'm just churning that energy back at her. You know, and maybe we're both. But obviously, I projected things onto her. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is for that, sure. That she was sexy and exotic, but yet somehow she was. Also, this dependable Midwestern girl who would put up with my idiosyncrasies, in, you know, in a way. So there's sort of a fake version, I guess, projecting and performing. And so, um, and also, like, if she's from Belgium, like that's so foreign. But she's not foreign. She's just from Belgium. Yeah. Like she's not foreign to her friends. There's nothing exotic innately about her. Right. No, it's, it's to unfair to, yeah. to to wallow in that in that exotic aspect. Anyway, I went there. She was depressed. Obviously. It was like a winter depression. I was depressed. Oh. She had projected things onto me. I had projected things onto her. And she was just sort of a mean person. Oh. Um, eventually, I just left. Um, I, I spent New Year's in Amsterdam that year. <laughs> and she was just a dark... I mean, she would agree with you, wherever she is. Steffi, hello, Steffi, if you're listening. Um, and she was just a dark-hearted person. She, she, uh, she liked to punish people who had displeased her. Really? Um, wow. And, you know, again, I, I, was, I was a little bit naive, I think. You know, an older Rolf would have just said, screw you, I'm going to go get stay in the hostel in, until you learn to speak with, Calm down. To me with a little bit more respect. And Or, you know, like, obviously this was too soon, I'm going to go to the hostel, and let's just have a date. Let's just have a Belgium date, you know. But I was sleeping in her apartment, and I had all these expectations. So this is like the worst-case scenario of really falling for somebody in an exotic environment and finding a stranger when you get home. And that's yeah. a danger of road romance. So I guess romance... I don't want to make it seem like romance or sex or whatever is 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 super easy because um, you know a lot of people travel and don't fall in love or don't have flings. Yeah. But it can be, especially if you travel long enough. Although I, I find sometimes people who are on really short trips are sort of seeking it more. You know, they want to have their little That's road souvenir road fling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they force uh, it. And they force it. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, My friend uh, was from Jamaica and he worked at some tourist type hotel or something. When he was growing up, oh, okay. and he was like, he would thicken his accent, and he would just get laid all, all the, time the time by people yeah. who like want their Jamaican experience. Yeah, when I was in when I was studying dance in the DR, I talked to a um, a uh, Dominican guy. He, yeah. he was a gay guy actually, but he had written a screenplay called uh, Sankey Panky, yeah. and they call the, the the hustlers are called Sankeys, and it's the same thing. You get a, a girl on vacation, and, and you just you play into the fantasy, you know. Yeah. And uh, that's that's the, sort of the local traveler interaction is a little bit different than the traveler traveler romance. Mm-hmm. So it's a different web, you know. Um, There's no responsibility. If you're meeting another traveler, you don't have jobs or cleaning your yeah. apartment or any of that. You have none of that. So it's just, yeah. I don't know. It's like you take. It's almost like you have no body or form. You're just this like being that's out. Yeah, and you can call yourself whatever. Yeah. 
you can call yourself a writer because you had a journal once. You know, yeah. you can you can say I'm an actor back home because you did one season in the community theater. You know, yeah. that suddenly there's no fact checking and that people are in an emotional state where they don't want you to fact check them either. You know, right? Um, and so, and I've known people who have met on the road, had gotten married, had kids, had perfectly healthy relationships. I'm not saying that everything is based on fantasy. Yeah. Um, but it, it's a complication. It feels great, but it may not be as real as it feels sometimes. We met uh, my first time in Thailand, just there for a couple weeks, but we met this couple that had met. One was from Germany, one was from Switzerland or France. I don't know, but they didn't speak each other's language in the beginning no. when they uh-huh. met. Um, uh, now they were on their honeymoon, they, but they worked it out and um, they got married. Now they each speak a little bit of, of oh, each other's language. Yeah, and my friend pointed this out. He goes, "You know, that means they just they hooked up." Yeah, and they made it work. But if they didn't yeah. speak each other's language, and they met five years. What, how do you think they hit it off? They were fucking right, well, <laughs> and then they were like, "Now let's. This is good. Let's keep going." They had that chemistry. Yeah, yeah. that 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 olfactory. You know, they probably like their smells. They yeah. something worked. Dude, you, I fell in love hard like two times. And they lasted a day each, maybe. Okay, okay. But it was like, yeah, it was just like... Could you speak their language? Yeah, one was a German girl. Okay. In uh, in Chodok, Vietnam. Another was in Thailand. This girl Uh I met at a monastery. Okay. And it's just like, I don't know. They didn't go anywhere. I kissed one of them, not the other. Oh, really? Yeah. 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 It's just like this... It's like... I don't know, man. It's, it's so romantic. That's what it is. It's so romantic. You're out in the middle of nowhere. You have real talks about everything other than responsibility. Exactly. Yeah. No, I, I actually wrote a story about projecting my desires. I, I was at a, uh, an ashram in India. Uh-huh. Um, where was that? Um, Rishikesh. And there was this, just this beautiful blonde girl who would walk you know, barefoot to do her yoga or whatever every day. And I just sort of became fixated with the idea of her yeah. the story is about how you project ideas I hadn't planned on writing about her but I realized that all of the travelers were projecting ideas on India that were as unfair as what I was projecting on on this beautiful girl who I thought was from like Lithuania but ended up being from California oh. um, <laughs> and, and so that's easy is that somehow there was a completeness to this very pretty but some girl woman that I knew nothing about that sort of made my heart well up in a really silly way uh, and so it happens. It happens. I guess it's all love is, I guess. Sort of silly. It's all what? But all love oh, is. Oh, that's true. It's that's just true. sort of at its base. It's like just me, I don't know, falling. Have you ever had a romance or even like a close friendship like with a woman whose language you didn't speak? No. You have? Yeah, one time. How do you yeah. do that? I never understood that. How you... Well, I had a group of friends. I had a group of friends because um, I was in Cuba and I had my Cuban wow. friends. And the woman in question spoke Spanish, and so she, we were always out together. Yeah. And it was actually, you know, I think we both acknowledged that it wasn't going to, that it was going to, that it was just sort of a short love affair type thing. But um, it turned me into a really sweet guy, you know, really? that I would learn phrases of Spanish, very simple. I was sweeter to her than a lot of, like I'm a Midwestern guy, we're pretty stoical, not effusive verbally. But suddenly I was, I was very sweet and romantic because those are the words I was learning. You know, I was learning the words to negotiate a relationship. Uh, and I would call, yeah, it was, it was interesting. It was interesting. Um, Nietzsche says verbalizing almost anything can affect your feelings about that thing. Interesting. Yeah, if you let it out loud, I don't like that guy. Once you say it out loud, now there's nothing he can do that's not going to piss you off. Huh. 
And I bet if you're learning just romantic words, it just makes you yeah. feel like, yeah, I guess I love her. Romantic words or where are you? When can I see you again? Mm-hmm. You know? And in a way, God, I could maybe I should have written a love manual. Because it's, it's the sort of things that we forget to say to our actual girlfriends in, in America. Like, where are you? I, I just want to see you. I don't want to know anything else. When am I going to see you again? You know? Yeah. You, you look so good. Um, you know? Yeah. Like the way you smell. All this dumb <laughs> Spanish stuff one. I learned. You know? Yeah. Um, that, that somehow there's a lot of chatter in in relationships and we forget j- just this, those, those simple phrases of desire maybe sometimes are what we've forgotten to do with people around here so. yeah do you um, you're a writer a travel writer yeah how would you describe your living yeah. I mean I've, I've I've done some teaching yeah. I've uh, done some non-travel writing and stuff but travel travel is my brand for lack of a better word it's okay. what people associate me with and it's obviously what I love to talk about so do you ever feel separate issue what I was going to talk about do you ever feel that need to fulfill that by doing more traveling instead of like having this like I don't really feel like it anymore yeah I, I, I come up against that huh. and I actually there was a point it's been almost 10 years ago that I said I there's, there's diminishing returns I'm going to be a boring travel writer if I keep doing what I'm doing so I got a midlife master's degree I taught university for a while um, I've done some more cultural criticism Typewriting. I've done some more historical typewriting. I've written some screenplays. Um, you really? Just to avoid that. I, it's also tied in with guilt, though, because I'm the travel writer guy who isn't writing about travel as much anymore. Um, and so you can't be expected to fulfill what they want of you. Well, yeah, you don't want to be the, the the dancing monkey of your own persona. Mm-hmm. You know, you you want to keep things real, as they said in the '90s. Um, and so. And, and also, I don't want to be... Like, a lot of my early travel writing I, uh, that I was writing in my late 20s, right now I think, oh, yeah, I wrote that in my 20s. I go back and I read it. It's really charming. It's well-researched. There's a lot of personality in it. But I, I'm i not that person anymore. You know, I, I can't write about being the awkward, goofy guy who's having misadventures in Russia because I'm a more seasoned traveler. I'm an older guy. You wouldn't do it that way anymore. Yeah. If you had to go there for the first time now. Yeah. And so... Um, so I. As a travel writer, I could write and make money from destination stories, but there's sort of a formula to destination stories. I don't know if there's any corollaries in comedy, but you don't want to be the guy who presumably has the same template of, of jokes or... Early on in stand-up, almost every male who's doing it talks about not being able to get laid. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that's because you're 24 to 27 yeah. and you're unsure of yourself. And then in your 30s, you're like, it'd be so fake. Like, you know, I know how to get laid. Right, yeah. I'm a fucking adult. You just take a girl out and then you yeah. get laid. It's not, yeah. it's not that difficult. Everyone is, has value. I was, in, I was traveling in Australia once and I was hanging out with this snake catcher in, in, in Darwin, Australia. They don't have a dog problem. They have a, it's in the jungle so somebody sees a snake in their toilet. There's a lot of poisonous snakes in Australia so they call oh, the yeah. snake catcher. And he's talking about his snake catcher friends impressing girls it's like yeah I had a fr- friend and basically he's talking about impressing girls because he's a snake catcher he's like 24 and I'm thinking dude just just tell her she's pretty you know ask her a question yeah. I, I guarantee <laughs> you that being able to handle snakes will have diminishing returns but that's that's who you that's the brain space you occupy at a certain time of male life and I think those travel stories which again were well researched and funny had a little bit of that longing um um for female attention or whatever that you know again and, and maybe even certain longings for certain types of travel that are no longer novel to me anymore mm-hmm. and so I just have to find ways uh, moving forward I'll probably write more books like my travel 
Um, writing fiction? will be book oriented. No, but oh. just like a book length project. You know that that uh, I take an idea and I write about it at book length, just because I can dig in further and I don't have to just dash off a more formulaic article about it. You have a collection of your stuff. What's that? You have a collection of all your uh, Marco Polo didn't go there as a collection okay. of, of my of the first ten years of my career. Okay, and then. I have a ton of stuff on my website. I just updated my website, and I thought, to hell with it. You know, anything that I'm not completely ashamed of, I'll just put online. Yeah, so. what is it? Rolf Potts? RolfPotts.com, yeah. Two Ts? Two Ts, yeah. One F, two Ts? Yeah. Um, so here's what I was going to ask you. You go to these places. Uh-huh. Your job is to tell people about these places. Yeah. But is there any level, especially places like Myanmar, where it's like, I'm going to ruin this if I get the word out too much? Yeah. What's your responsibility there? <laughs> like, that's how a, do you that's see a it? question all travel writers ask, I guess. Um, a lot of my travel writing, especially my early travel writing, was so it wasn't really a, a this is where you should go type writing. It was more uh-huh. this is what happened to me type writing. Um, but that doesn't pay as well as the, this is where you should go type writing. And actually, there's yeah. you can distinguish yourself by actually conveying expertise and insight about places where other people aren't going, and that you could p- potentially ruin. Um, I think at the end of the day, very few places have been ruined by travel writing. If somebody disagrees, I'd like to see the data, you know, on how exactly well, travel like writing ruined, ruined, ruined a place. They Bagan, said right. there was a German um, TV station that did a little mm. piece on Bagan, and mm-hmm. now all Germans go there. Oh. And now it's like overrun with Germans. Interesting. The Germans are weird that way. I'm, I'm, I'm losing the... Um, I can't remember exactly where it is. It feels like it's in Latin America someplace, but it feels like Germans are very um, stereotypically inside the box when it comes to taking advice because there are scenes that have become very German-based upon really? those kinds of advice. But, I mean, there's movies that will uh, transform. Mm-hmm. You know, um, Actually, I'm going Bruce, to Iceland Bruce. later this year, and there's all these um, Game of Thrones tours in Iceland. Yeah. So My friend took me... He lives there. He took me. He's like, oh, here's the one in Game of Thrones. But let's, I have some sacred ones we used to go with my friends. Let's go with those. Yeah. Like, let's hot springs. I'm like, yeah, for sure. Let's do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, everyone taking pictures of like, this is what I saw in a place. <laughs> right. I heard that right. movie in Bruges about wherever that is, whatever city that is in Brussels, maybe. Bre- now, Belgium. like, everyone goes there. Really? Because of that movie. And it was like, huh. oh, because now they've heard of it. Right. Interesting. In- interesting how that works. Yeah. Uh, certainly there's other examples. Um, but maybe not travel writing. Yeah, you know, I, I think so people have said that, like, Joe Cummings is, has been a friend of mine for a long time. He did the Lonely Planet Thailand. Mm-hmm. People have tried to accuse his, the success of his book for Ruining making Thailand, Thailand too pop- popular. Right? It's also Prince Philip or King Philip, whatever. Mm-hmm. Okay. Who really wanted to reach out and say, like, let's make this friendly for tourism. Oh, okay. And he took okay. Thailand now that people aren't nearly yeah, as poor as our yeah. neighboring countries. And actually, I think we could probably deconstruct the word ruin too, you know? Okay. It's like who's, well, who's, who's winning and who's losing, yeah. you know? Because there's, it's actually economically good. It's not super stable economically. Um, I think as Paris is learning that even small acts of terrorism can, can up, upend things a little bit. But um, I think we project fake standards of cultural isolation and purity on cultures that actually wouldn't mind making some hard currency mm-hmm. and being exposed to gangster rap or whatever What's else wrong with having there. a t-shirt? Yeah. What's wrong with having... You guys have your smartphones. Why can't I have mine yeah. if I'm in, stuck in Cambodia somewhere, some small town? Yeah. Or motorcycles or internet yeah. connection or, um, or, or whatever. So, so I think that when we say a place is ruined, it's usually ruined because we're being surrounded by other people like us. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually... 
tourist scholars have noticed uh, a cycle for this is that there's like the, really? the early pioneers who are usually like a guy who's dropped out of society he, he knows the local language he's sort of a hippie he'll go and live with the family on a beach for a while and then he'll run into a backpacker in the market and a few years later it becomes a backpacker scene the locals will build some guest houses and then it it cycles all the way through the big commercial hotels yeah and that's Bali guys, that's the, the history named, of Bali yeah and of, of Kosmui and uh-huh, places yeah. like that the scholar's name is Eric Cohen he's actually university of some Israeli university he's a he's For a sure um, Jew. What's that? For sure, Jew. For, For sure, Jew. Yeah. yeah, but also, I mean, that's a big traveling culture. You see Israelis, uh, you know, everywhere where they're, Thailand, where they're welcome. Some cities where they have street signs in Hebrew and in Thai because yeah. yeah. there's so many that come there. When I one of the first people when I first went to Bangkok, one of the first people I talked to was an Israeli guy, yeah. and he was coming out of there was like a, a club, like an Israeli club, or maybe it's an Israeli hostel mm-hmm. in on Kalsan Road, and. Uh, so yeah, it's it's a very deep travel culture, and Eric Cohen just happens to be an expert, and so he studied this cycle. Um, yeah. and, and Bali is a case study. There's there's places in in Guatemala and in Greece um, where it cycles through, and in in in, in uh, Mexico. And where does the cycle go then after that? Then after well, when it goes sometimes there. they stop. I mean, sometimes you have a backpacker town that's a backpacker town forever, but then sometimes you'll have. This probably isn't the best example, but. Is it Sharm El Sheikh on in, on the on the uh, Sinai Peninsula? You have Dahab, which is a backpacker town, and once it became popular, it wasn't taken over by big international hotels. But Sharm El Sheikh became such a five star hotel place that Bill Clinton flew there to negotiate stuff oh, really? back in the nineties. Yeah, um, and so so it literally goes from a local person person giving you an orange, and then thirty years later, the local person is a janitor, and there are these giant hotels that are owned wow. by people from Houston. Um, That's how gentrification works too. You yeah, get an artist that goes in because, yeah. like, I can't afford to live anywhere else. But like, let me make my neighborhood a little cooler. Yeah. And a few more artists come, and then somebody who's like got artistic sensibilities but couldn't be a pioneer goes in, yeah. and then Wall Street people go like, "Oh, you guys have all made it cool. Okay, now I'll go in." And then it yeah. becomes a whole different part of yeah. town. Yeah. I was trying to my sister's Mexican friend. I was trying to explain where CBGB's was, uh-huh. um, and it's you know same John same Barbados. cycle. Yeah. It's John Barbados now. Is it? Yeah, it's a John Barbados yeah. story. If you go down there, that's yeah. the one it was. But you hear people, it's sort of funny, people, um, veterans of those original artistic scenes mm-hmm. will complain about the gentrification. Um, but I, when it, whenever they say, oh, this place is ruined, I wonder, well, where is the new Lower East Side? You know, where, yeah. where are the artists going now? Because yeah, they got to go somewhere. The artist who was 20 and hungry, um, you know, in Tribeca or wherever years ago, now they're in their 60s. And they don't have the same hungers. And so, sure, of course, your scene is, is ruined and there's a sadness to that. But where are, where's the hungry 20-year-old now? You know? East Bushwick. Is it East Bushwick? Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's getting further away from Manhattan. It, it is. It's, I remember when, yeah. when Williamsburg um, was sort of untouched. Too expensive it, now. You can't live yeah. there. Crazy, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. You can't afford Williamsburg anymore. Yeah. I yeah, know. it's nuts. Well, actually, and then it's uh, there's a whole PhD thesis on the socioeconomic ramifications. We were talking about gangster rap. Bushwick Bill is Bushwick Bill for a reason. Yeah. Because if you were poor and a Jamaican immigrant um, in the 80s or the 70s, you lived in Bushwick. Oh. Um, and so yeah. now um, previously poor neighborhoods are being gentrified. I remember watching Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing in 1989. Bed-Stuy, oh, wow. right? That's where it was? It's yeah. Bed-Stuy? That's yeah. the spot now. It's and, too late. And, and Bed-Stuy, almost like and in Bed-Stuy, because I was a Spike Lee fan when I was young, that was this iconic place. It's, it's Bed-Stuy. And now it's the same thing. Bed-Stuy is like Bushwick. Right? Yeah. Brooklyn no longer means hard. Brooklyn means hip. Yeah. Yeah. But you know what I mean when I say ruined. 
when you when, when say I what? say ruined, it means okay. this. It means the 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 foreign, the real word foreign. Mm-hmm. That experience is now lost. It's not so foreign yeah. anymore. Yeah. There's a Burger King. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. We don't like to see our own reflection, I guess. Yeah. So do you worry about travel writing doing that at all or no? That it will lead to that. Well, whether or not I worry about it, it will lead to that. Right, there's and, that too. And travel writing is so diffuse now that a lot of like like Instagram and other very simple blog type platforms are doing so much more work. I mean, it used mm. to be you know, if you, if you wanted to de- destroy a sleepy town in Mexico, write about it for National Geographic. Or actually, they don't really do tourist-oriented. Write about it for Connie Nast Travel. Because it was the place to go for travel. Well, and because it's so centralized is that you had all these subscribers. You didn't have no. the internet. Well, now you have all of these different people will Google search their, their destinations. There's all these really s- low nutritional content top ten list exhortations of where to go online. But it's, all, it's more spread out, you know? Yeah. Um, I'm a little bit fixated with Instagram recently because I use Instagram a lot, and I'm as guilty as anyone of completely filtering or of taking little slices that aren't necessarily documentary, documentary representations of what's there. It makes but, it seem like, oh, how amazing this is. Yeah it's, yeah. it's what the newspaper editors used to call neutron bomb photographs. Beautiful scenery and no people, you know? Uh-huh. The bomb that kill, that leaves the building standing but kills the people. Um, yeah, you see pictures of Halong Bay, and it's like, this is gorgeous. It, it, like, it, oh, no, you can't get that picture. Yeah. Like, those, yeah. it's mobbed with people. There's no way you yeah. can get that picture with no one there. Anywhere. The, yeah, the, the, the Machu Picchu, the Louvre, anywhere, yeah. there's anywhere any, any place that's popular. So I think that travel writers, for better or for worse, don't have that power like they used to. And so I could write... I could write, um, you know, an article really um, praising Pococo, Myanmar, as as an awesome place, but it's not going to compete against a bunch of brainless BuzzFeed, you know, listicles that talk about the next hot place to be. Yeah, um, and it's all, it, all of it has that potential, and it, yeah, I just I just feel like it's. It's always been a concern for travel writers, but it feels like we don't even have the power that we used to have to ruin a place because because um, it's so spread out. Yeah, there's there's so many sources of information. Yeah, what's um, there's this feeling I got when I go when it's been a couple years or or at least like a year, and you step on a new like foreign soil. Asia's so like the the, the lettering is different, so it's yeah. really like you can't get by at all. I'm sure probably the Middle East is somewhat similar. Mm. That feeling of like it's to me it's like it feels dangerous even when it's not. It feels like fuck, am I gonna get robbed here? And then if you go from there to another country nearby, it's like a little less foreign. What is that feeling? What like how do you what, how do you deal with that? And do you ever get that? Yeah, I'm, even in Europe, you know, I, yeah. I I fly to Paris every summer, and then there's this feeling when I'm I'm in the RER train going into the city, um, and there's I guess there's equivalents. You can take a train into the city from the Portland airport, but it's just I'm in I'm in Paris now, and then I get out, and it's summertime, but it's not humid like it is in in comparative places in the United States and there's just there's the beautiful light I, I think that there's that feeling of joy when you first get to a place you go to a place like Asia or even the Middle East and the smells are different you mm-hmm. know tropical place um, there's going to be a little bit of that tropical rot and tropical foods and, and stuff um, I hope I never lose that sense of excitement that comes with it um, one doesn't want to become jaded um, but yeah what, what, what was the question exactly? Just that feeling of getting onto a new, new soil yeah. for the first time. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah, I hope it, I would never get jaded either, but I could see it happening. Yeah. Like taking it for granted. 
Well, I went. I went to Namibia for the first time. I rented a car. How was that? It was good. I it was. I really like Namibia. Northern uh, Africa. Uh, southwestern Africa. Okay. North of South Africa on the western coast. Okay. Uh, very very desert like. In fact, Namibia is too easy because it's like an Indiana Jones fantasy of desert. Really? Um, and so I was driving my car. I went up this place called the Skeleton Coast, and it's just desolate. And you can, it's, just, it's like you're being six years old again, and you're in a wow. pirate movie or something. Wow. Um, and then also, I, I, I talked to a lot of souvenir vendors there. The, there's the, the Tamara tribe, which is, um, they sell polished rocks, but they're also really cool, and they have great English, and they invited, invited me to their village. Um, Actually, this is when I was listening to your podcast. Really? When you were interviewing Henry Rollins, yeah. <laughs> That's um, so weird. And, and uh, well, it was weird. And in a way, should I have been listening to a podcast while I was driving across Namibia? Instead of putting, taking your earphones out and just watching and listening? <sighs> yeah, or like listening to a Namibian radio station, which mm-hmm. I did a little bit. But what I loved about it is, like, it was the, it was the Windhoek radio station, and it was radio jocks complaining about millennials in Namibia, you know? And so it's like the, the vernacular now is so international. And of course, they were, it wasn't the, a tribal language radio station. It was an English radio station. So by nature, it was global. But it was just so funny to just how familiar the radio chatter was. When were you, in the, when were you there? I, I would think it'd be hilarious if we were actually like watching each other's stuff at the same right. exact time. I think I beat you to... To the punch. I, I was early February. Okay, it was late February. Oh, no, yeah, because I spent the last. I was in Cape Town the last half of that month, so it was like the first week or two of February. Yeah. Uh, uh, and I listened to, you know, I'd listened to, to Henry Rollins' music before, and then he was actually interviewed by a travel magazine I wrote for. And the guy's really insightful about travel, you know. And so for whatever reason, I listened to the Joe Rogan one. It's like I need to hear some more of Henry Rollins talking about travel. So I so I found yours. Yeah. And, and so it's funny, yeah. So, so somehow <laughs> the the creativity beam went across the Indian Ocean, and then a week and a half later, you read Vagabonding. So yeah. it's funny how that works. Um, you talk about in there. You talk about like pretty much get thee to a beach to start with. Yeah. Um, why? What is that supposed to do? Just let yourself go into a new time? Um, um, a beach or even a, like a backpacker's ghetto or just a familiar place. It just lets you transition, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, uh, as I say in the beginning of the book, or not, you know, right. the, the Bruce Lee idea of, you know, uh, take what works and abandon what doesn't, you know. So if, you're, if the beach thing doesn't work for you, you don't have to. But I've noticed that beach thing, it, it allows travelers to cross that off their list. It feels foreign. It feels nice. They can relax center themselves and then go into the wilds from also, there. Also, I found when I did finally get to a beach of like, oh, uh, there's no time anymore. I can relax. Because beach is very like, do nothing, read all day. Who cares? You're not supposed to be yeah. doing anything. Yeah. You're supposed to be sitting there. And that lets you get like that idea of like, you don't have to be anywhere. If you're supposed to go left, go right. If everyone's going yeah. right, why yeah. not? Yeah. Um, what I found is um, since I live in New York City in Manhattan, that actually big cities as a first jumping off ground helped me like kind of like surf that like oh this is foreign but also some stuff I recognize mm-hmm. you know there's buses there's like streets I get this right and now I can go into small towns get used to the currency yeah get used to the currency exactly there's there's some safety mechanisms there in case mm-hmm. you in case you need that McDonald's ice cream cone yeah, or some whatever. people will speak English in big cities mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then I can be like now but I found people that in small cities that are like you know, Yangon was too big or Bangkok is too big. I can't handle it. Huh. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I was never, I never lived in a big city, I guess until Pusan. Mm-hmm. So, um, but I love, I love seeing big, big cities in, in my travels. Um, 
So I'm, I'm with you on that, a place to start. An advantage of backpacking scenes is that sometimes you show up and you're a newbie and you talk to somebody at the dive shop and it's like, oh yeah, you know, I'm from Virginia and I started traveling three years ago and then I got this job and, and pretty soon you have this narrative of possibility, you know. It's, what do you mean? Uh, we're, when, and you're, when you're in a place where a lot of travelers are coming and going, you might have someone who's been there for two days and someone who's been traveling for two years and then suddenly the two-day person can talk to the two-year pe- person and get a ton of ideas, yeah. right? Um, That's how it was my first hostel, which I never stayed in before, but then it's like, yeah. give me ideas of what to do and how to do it. Which is another reason why it can't hurt to go to a, a backpacker ghetto or a beach or, or, or a city and just find the version, find somebody who was you three years ago uh-huh. and they're, they have a darker tan now and um, a, a girlfriend in Estonia and... Um, you know, it allows you a glimpse into a possible future and makes you feel less alone in a way because I think loneliness is a real feeling when you get to a place you feel freaked out. Yeah, let's out. talk about that a little bit. Yeah. It is this thing of like, I don't know anyone, no one knows me. Yeah. Fuck, what am I supposed to do? Yeah. And, it, and it's, it's, it's a kind of pain. It's like, it's, it's like an anxiety. Uh, and it can be hard to deal with and you feel, you have the temptation to just sit in your hotel room, you yeah. know, and, and to not go out and... and somehow defeat it with your mind I think you have to defeat it with your feet you have to get out and walk around um, I still defeat it with your feet yeah. yeah that's a good way to handle it yeah I think so yeah I, I still come into that problem sometimes and, and again I'm a little solitary I'm a writer I like to process my thoughts sometimes it's like god damn it just get out there what, what's going you know you're missing things yeah um, so it's real and I think I would even be suspicious if there's a traveler out there who arrives at a place and doesn't feel lonely, they need to try harder. They're probably <laughs> surrounded by too much familiarity. <laughs> yeah, you know? maybe. Um, they're, they're traveling with their, with their buddies from school or they're, they're hanging out only at air-conditioned restaurants that serve Western food um, and they, they, they aren't pushing the envelope a, a little bit. Yeah. Uh, I found this is the first time I've ever traveled alone. and it. Me, this meaning your last trip? Yeah, my last trip. To Myanmar? It started in Myanmar. It was okay. all over Southeast Asia. Okay. But, like, this is my first long-term travel. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that word means long-term, but three months, three or four months. Okay. But, like, the people who were traveling alone were talking about it, and many were doing it for the first time, and they were mm-hmm. saying how much, I don't want to say better, it's a fucking comparative word, but, like, how much more things you can get out of traveling alone than being with someone. Yeah. How, like, you can, at the drop of a hat, like, nah, fuck that restaurant, I'm going to this restaurant. It looks cool. Yeah. As opposed to having to please other people, and then, like... And the uncomfortable and the or, loneliness. Or, or the weird person comes up and starts talking to you. If yeah. you have your friends, you're sort of side-eyeing each other thinking, do we really want to talk to this guy? You know? uh-huh. Whereas if you're alone, you, you give him a chance, I think, more. Yeah. You know, that you're less likely to retreat into your little psych- circle of familiarity and, and say, oh, so your uncle does have a ceramic shop just around the corner. You know? um, no, I'm a big fan of traveling alone. You know? My first vagabonding trip, I didn't. I traveled with various friends, but... Um, yeah, it just you're open to everything, and then you're forced to assuage your loneliness. You're forced to, um, or you'll uh, mentally die if you don't. Mm. So you do. You just you you'll, you'll mentally die, or you'll sit playing games on your phone. Uh, yeah. You know, like a dork. You know, like a twenty-something stoner or something, killing off yeah. hours of his life. Um, no, it's I, I think putting yourself in a situation where you're forced to confront that is is a great gift to give yourself as a traveler. 
And, and again, if you're traveling yeah. for two months or two years or something, as opposed to a one-week vacation, who cares about optimizing the efficiency of your trip? You know, right, there is no. You, you don't need to tick things off the list. You can wander around. You can get lost. That's that's the great thing about traveling long term. God, it felt great to where yeah. the wind takes you. Yeah, yeah. To be like, and and, the, and to also have enough money where you can tell a host like, I'm leaving a day early. Like, we don't do refunds. Like, it's, keep the eight bucks. It's okay. Yeah, yeah. I understand. But yeah. it's time for me to move on. That's a good. That's a good way of putting it. I like that. So, so, you, so you feel like your most recent trip, you really. You God, really it was hit great. a new level, yeah. Because you were traveling alone, because you were leaving yourself open to to. Well, the long term helped me in 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 the idea of like I don't have to hit this, then that, then that. Uh-huh. I will just go. I had two things that I had heard of was okay. Halong Bay okay. and Bagan. Gotcha. I didn't even get to Halong Bay. Okay, good. But that's good. the kind of thing where it's like I don't know it didn't take me there. It took me east. Love it. And then I went to. I spent way more time in Indonesia than I thought I would. Mm-hmm. Spent way more time in Myanmar than I thought I would. And it's just like you find out about new stuff. Everyone's well, talks about a trip. Oh, I guess I'll do that. Well, best one of the best decisions I ever made when I first started vagabonding in Asia. This is after Korea. Indonesia was on my list. I still haven't been there. Really? Yeah. I got yeah. so I was so besotted by Thailand and Laos that I spent God, I miss Laos. M- most of the six months there. You yeah. know, I, I went to Myanmar later, and I went to Cambodia on that trip, and I went to Vietnam. That and- Loklak is so good in Cambodia. What's that? Loklak. Loklak. This is chopped up stuff. They oh yeah. Rice. yeah. 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 Um, no, and so so that, and I was writing about it, and so so yeah, literally, I have an itinerary that still needs to be fulfilled from 1999. <laughs> That's crazy because I was having in in six months, I was doing so much just in the mainland Southeast Asia. Yeah, that I that I without regret, just I just let I let Malaysia and, and Indonesia go. Yeah, I was in Bali going, okay, I'm going to go from here to the Philippines, and somebody's like, oh, why don't you just why don't you go further east and go see uh, the Komodo dragons? I was like, That's here. Yeah, some guy from the the capital there. What's the capital of Indonesia? Jakarta. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. And he's like, "Yeah, you just gotta take a couple ferries and you get there." I'm like, "Oh, well, for sure, I'm gonna do that now." What island is that? In between Sambawa and Flores. Okay, Flores. Komodo Island. Komodo Island. Yeah. No, Flores yeah. is. Uh, yeah, that was on my itinerary. That was yeah, one of the places. Two weeks I in Flores. I never heard of it until I got yeah. there. Yeah. Now, that's like an old Portuguese mm-hmm. possession, right? So you start seeing the, the influence of Portugal. Yeah. And See, there's the Christians. It starts real Christian there. Yeah. Less Muslim, less Hindu. And is it the spy, Sulawesi? Or there's another Christian part Sulawesi of... Sulawesi is more north, where yeah. they have those headhunters, which I wanted to meet. Okay. I forgot yeah. their name or their tribe. They were headhunting as of 1999. They were really? still killing really? Midoris. Interesting. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking about going to Bali this winter. I try to winter in places that don't make me depressed. Yeah. Um, and if I yeah. do, I might have to get out. Oh, the, the Gili Islands? Did you, do you Gili know? Islands yeah. I missed, but that's for sure okay. something you should go yeah. to. No, it's funny. I, like, I, I researched all this stuff 18 years ago. Yeah. Uh, and I still remember it. I should, I should get there. There's some more. I, this, I don't think there's a word, but all the Germans use this word. I love touristic. Okay. Um, okay. There's some more touristic parts and there's uh-huh. less touristic parts. Uh-huh. Yeah. Bali is overrun now. You got to get away from the two parts. Like Ubud and Kuta and all those places? Kuta forget. Right. Well, that, they were saying that in 1999. That's yeah. Tijuana, they said. Yeah, that's what it yeah. is. So Ubud is a little bit getting overrun now. Uh-huh. With, like people yelling at you for like cab rides. Like, can I just walk for 10 minutes without getting yelled at? In Ubud? It's a little more now, but, okay. but okay. definitely um, Semenyak and, and uh, Kuta is like, for, just forget it. Get out of there. I've heard yeah. the other parts of Bali are great, but Lombok is what Bali was, okay. I think, 20 years ago. Okay, interesting. Um, that's less- a common phrase, by the way. What something blank was. is what, what blank was twenty years ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But then every island there has its own. They shouldn't be a country. They're all unique. Yeah, 
you know, individual things, yeah, which yeah. is I couldn't find a fridge magnet that had Indonesia. Really? Everyone had Bali or okay. Lombok or whatever. Cool. Or Komodo. Yeah. But no, man, hunting those dragons is great. Did you see some? Yeah. Okay. If you get a guide that's like into it enough. How big uh, are they? They're, um. Like big as an alligator, big as a yeah, dog? Yeah, big as an alligator. From okay. like here to like the end of that next, the bench you're on. Okay. So that's a, like a, a, a good sized alligator. 10 feet, 12 yeah. feet, yeah. And you just go through the grass and try to find them. That's cool. How, how long was your trip total? 105 days. Okay. That's a, that's a good... Yeah. Good. Ended in Timor-Leste, which might have been my favorite because it was unmapped. Right. Yeah. See, that was not yet a country when I started 15 years traveling. ago yeah. it was a country. They just yeah. had their independence. Yeah. That's interesting. Did you get up to Sumatra or anything? Nope. Okay. Eventually, it's just like this weird thing. It's like choose your own adventure and you can't go back. Yeah. You've gone further east. Yeah. So now you can't double back unless you want to get on a plane, which is like lame. I asked because Sumatra is like, it's the size of California. It's this giant California-sized mm-hmm. island. Yeah. I need to go there. I mean, yeah. it's just, you, you, you forget how much is there. You know? Yeah, I got to go back. I got, yeah. There's way more to explore. Now, how Papua. did you balance professional things? Did you just, were you... Took off. Writing? You were completely off. Yeah. Okay. I, I would, I went to a show in Phnom Penh. Mm-hmm. Um, they recognized me, asked me to go up, and I said oh. no. Okay. Because I didn't want to fucking... I don't want to bomb and have a bomb on my shoulders for the next two months. Okay. You know, yeah. <laughs> have people go, what do you do? I go, I don't even know anymore, man. You know? Um, also, I like the idea of a break. I've never had, in 17 years, I've never taken a, no more kidding. than eight days off. More than eight days? Yeah. Okay. Eight days of performing or? Performing. Okay, wow. Yeah. Wow. So when I went to Thailand, I somebody's like, you're coming, you want to do a show in Bangkok? I'm like, absolutely, I want to do a show in Bangkok. Um, but this was just like, what do they call it when when teachers get every seven years, ten years? Jubilee? No, no, oh, that's no. Slaves being professors. Freed. Professors, yeah, yeah. <laughs> sabbatical. <laughs> sabbatical, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not jubilee at all. <laughs> sort of. Um, it was hard because that's sort of how I define myself as a comedian. So yeah. not being one is like. Well, yeah, and comedians work hard, from what I can tell. Yeah. You know. So it was more thinking, less thinking about bits, and more thinking about my art form in general. Okay. There's tons of times to think. When you're traveling. Oh, yeah. That's what I found. Yeah. Just ponder life and your existence. And even rest the professional part of your brain in a good way. Mm -hmm. You know, let it go fallow for a while. Yeah. And then you can replant in more fertile fields. With with all these exotic new seeds. Yeah. Um, Yeah, when I came back, like, do you have tons of bits? I'm like, not yet. But over the next two years, that'll all be mined out for sure. And I think those experiences will make sense in new ways. As they, as you process them, as you continue to process them, you know, just. So I like what Rollins said. He was like, "I don't want to talk about it or write about it right away. Like I need time to internalize it, right? And then let it out." Yeah, yeah. I need to read some of his travel-specific yeah, writing. You know. Yeah, he gets dirty. Does he? Yeah, okay. yeah. I think so. Now, I was, I was, uh, you know, one can be cynical about. You know, if someone who's famous for something else, mm-hmm. sort of visibly traveling, but he's a really smart. Oh, I was with him. Oh, were you? Oh, for sure. Okay. I like shit on him constantly. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. I was like, he's this, whatever, and yeah. then never have read it. I mean, I shit on Ayn Rand for the longest time, and and the Fountainhead is probably the biggest book influence in my career. Really? Yeah. Once uh-huh. I finally said, why am I shitting on something I've yeah. never taken in? Yeah. 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 I should read his stuff because he really intrigued me. I don't know. I wonder if I wonder if there's one to start with. Not to make this whole uh, tangent about Henry Rollins, but That's right. uh, 
it's almost like he publishes his own stuff. So I, I would be interested to see, um, like a best of Henry Rollins travel compilation or yeah. something. Just because well, he, he speaks, he's he obviously travels in the way that you and I like to travel. Yeah, know, close to the ground and slow and interactive. I like the way you sum up the difference between a tourist and a traveler. Just the difference. How did I sum it up? I mean, through the quotes you use also. Oh, yeah, yeah. But my favorite one was, wasn't you, it was someone you, you quoted, but uh, a, a tr- let me say it right, a, a tourist sees what he has come to see, a traveler sees what he sees, yeah. something like, along yeah. those lines. There's also a, a, a traveler doesn't know where he's going, a tourist doesn't know where he's been. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is harsh, but it, it can be true, you know. There's one that you wrote. I put all these quotes down that I, that I liked, the ones I liked, but then this was just your writing. And so, let's see if I can find it. Which I liked. About seeing new things or about... Um, uh, the point of travel, then, is not to evaluate the rightness or wrongness of other cultures. Mm-hmm. After all, you can stay at home and do that, but rather to better understand them. Yeah, Which yeah. Which that's kind of just... I, I just like that. What are you guys into and why? Yeah. And I think it's so important because... Um, even people in the United States who fancy themselves multiculturally aware can be really judgmental, mm-hmm. you know? In a, in a way, and people who think that they're being anti-Western are just sort of being anti-Western in a very Western way. And so I think there's an open-mindedness to travel that gets you past the rhetoric of perception, you know? And you can internalize things. I'm thinking about a lot of the politicized ways that we talk about um, questioning our western perspective and things like that yeah um and i think travel allows you it's, it's a much more humble way of engaging it you know that you're basically what do you mean um what's that what do you mean more humble way of engaging it? um i think like in academic settings you know there's entire departments of post-colonial studies that that rhetorically look at the sins of the west and try and look at sort of the embedded prejudices which with which we evaluate other cultures and i think that that is valid but there's a point at which that that, and we'll use post-colonialism as an example, it becomes so um, caught up in its own nomenclature and abstractions that yeah. it actually carries its own arrogance. You know, it's, it's not, it, it, it's just sort of a prescription against a certain way of thinking without investigating that way of thinking. It's like, in a way this is wrong, now prove why. Instead of going, just yeah. look and decide right yeah. or wrong. Yeah, or, you know, there's a lot of... I don't want to pick on post-colonial scholars, but, like, people will say, well, this is a victim of tourism. Well, like, how do you know? Is it because of the theory, or is there any empirical... Right, proof um, of that. ...data to that, you know? And, and I, I think sometimes there's this assumption that, again, that people in other countries will be happier if they're being traditional, air quotes, yeah. traditional, when, in fact, you go to a place and you realize you see the monk with the Air Jordans. You see, you uh-huh. know, um, a, you know the, the, the guy in Nepal who knows more about Biggie Smalls than you do. And, and, <laughs> and just all this stuff, you just realize, um, you, you just have a personalized understanding of the world, good and bad, you know. I, went to, I understood this, the, the rightness or wrongness, and there's better understanding when I went to yeah. um, some cockfights in Delhi. Okay. And um, they told me, like, oh, yeah, there's cockfights. So I'm like, really? And they're like, yeah, it's every pretty much every day at 6 p.m. behind this okay. mall. And I was like, what? And I was like, yeah, I'm going to check that out. And if you ignore the, like, is this right or wrong, uh-huh. just completely, like, let's not even talk about that. Yeah. Let's just see how people are doing here. Yeah. And you just start seeing they sell food, and they the people, like, are friendly with each other. And, like, just, I don't know, it's just, like, you can experience just how it is instead of should it be. Is that Christian influenced or, or Latin influenced? Uh, 
I, I ask because I've seen cockfighting in for the sure. Philippines and in Latin mm-hmm. America, but not as much in Asia. So yeah. I'm just wondering. Uh, I don't know. I had an awkward experience where I saw a kid who had a fighting rooster, yeah. and I, I wanted him I wanted him to show me the claws, yeah. but I, all I could think of was to call it was a cock, and I didn't want him to, to I like, wanted him to say, show me your cock, you know, I, want, <laughs> I want a closer look at your cock, but I couldn't remember the word rooster. Anyway, yeah. I don't have a lot of experience, but it, this sounds like an equivalent of like the dog meat thing. Like I, yeah. I, I withheld judgment yeah. on dog meat in Korea, and I was humbled in my own way. I realized that, that you know, there was some self-consciousness among the Koreans who ate dog me but then they they were gently pushing back and saying that if you're going to if you're going to be passing judgment maybe you know we have things that uh, we perceive things about your culture that seem really weird to us that actually involve human beings yeah you know? when I, so I was there and a couple of english speakers were like talking to me it's like oh who's the white guy betting on you know it was okay. fun okay. but then uh, at some point they're like you don't want to take pictures i'm like oh i don't want to get you guys in trouble they're like why would it get us in trouble <laughs> what do you mean and i was like oh this is highly illegal where i'm from okay yeah. And they're like, why? And I'm like, I can't explain it to you. I don't know. Interesting. Yeah. I'm like, I, said, I think I said it was wasteful. And they're like, you know, we eat the, the roosters that get killed that night. And I was like, I didn't know that. Yeah. Just yeah, a different way of killing them, I guess. That's good stuff. I guess, when did it become illegal and why? You know, and, and was it, was it, is it illegal in the United States because it's associated with Latin immigrant people? I don't Maybe. know. I don't know. Maybe it's brutality or something like that. I, I've, I've never actually seen a, a cockfight, so it, was it brutal to see? No. Really? Okay. They tie a razor on, so the claws are like this, they tie a razor on the back one, on one. Futumano is what it's called there. It's literally called the bound feet. Okay. And um, the, co- the rooster's going to move to a shade. No, I just hit my funny bone on the, oh, okay. on the arm here. So they jump up and kind of slice it. You don't see it. And then at some point, one of them just kind of like gets weak and then just kind of like takes a knee. Huh. And somebody's like, it's over. Interesting. And he's dead. Is, you it, don't... is it entertaining? Yeah. Betting? You should bet like 50 cents. Okay. You should right. bet something. So Put some stake stakes on it. Yeah. That's what I find having no money when you're traveling does. It puts stakes on things. If okay. we don't get to this place by this time, I don't know where I'm going to be able to fucking sleep. I don't know where I'm going to be able to do. Right. I might have to sleep on the beach. With no with money, I don't know, the stakes are gone. Yeah. No, it, 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 it buys access to the comforts of home, in a way. Yeah. Uh, are there essentials for travel that you are now, uh, when you go, you're now like, I have to have it? Those wet naps for me are like, oh, you got to take wet naps and some zithromycin or something. Well, in part because of what I kind of proved to myself about um, no baggage travel, you know, I've always been a travel minimalist. When I when I traveled around the world for six weeks with no baggage at all, and realized how easy it be, how soon it became easy, how yeah. quickly it became easy. Um, yeah, I'm pretty hard on myself. Plus, you know, I like books, but I have I have Kindle on my iPhone, and and so um, maybe I should. Given what Barry Sonnenfeld said about the the tux pads, maybe I should travel with those more. But I don't. I I, I don't have an essential thing except some sort of. Um, data device, be it a laptop or a, it. or a phone or something. I mean, that's tied into my writing to a certain extent. You write where you're gone? Sometimes, yeah. I mean, it depends on how long I'm gone and what the circumstances are. And like when I was in South Africa this winter, part of I was revising one of my screenplays, and and uh, basically I I was sort of traveling, but really I was just moving my office to a place that where the sun shone for all day instead of went, went down at four sort of thing. Yeah, I, I get seasonally uh, depressed and just didn't really? want to be here. Yeah, it sucks. I, in, not in America. It sucks in the cold. It sucks to be cold. Yeah, 
Yeah, no, I, I um, it, it's not medically diagnosed, but I just know I, I taught, I did some university teaching on the East Coast a couple of winters, and it just, I was just bummed. You know, I just wasn't good. I was just a less happy person. So I've been trying to get someplace warm and southern in yeah. the winters. Um, yeah, so so in those situations, I'll definitely bring a laptop. Um, sometimes I don't. Usually Weighs I do. Weighs down, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I have a, I have a fairly light laptop. Um, I've been doing some... I've, I've been in a non... Like, it's been years since I carried a checkable piece of luggage. You know, I, I travel for months with what goes in the overhead bin. Yeah, that's um, a big... Big key. A big... Key. Yeah. So, like, you yeah. don't want to wait for your bags or have them get lost? And it's actually a good discipline. You really don't... Unless you have, like, medical equipment or something that is going to keep you alive, you don't need more stuff than fits in a bag that fits in the overhead, you know? Yeah. Keep a small rotation of clothes. Make sure they're clean. Um, it's just not... It's not that big of a deal. I got to the point when I... As I was, like, getting ready to leave... And I'm putting stuff in. I just like stop and talk. I'm like, do I need this? Do I not? I just stop and be like, you can throw anything you want away. You can throw it out. Yeah. You're not married to any of this. Don't bring anything that you have to bring home. And then it was like, oh, that's so freeing. And then I got to a point when I was done with like the mountains and it got to be warmer and warmer. And I'm like, I don't need the sweatshirt anymore or the second pair of jeans or these sweatpants. And it's just like, give them away. You leave them. And it's like, oh, I'm a little lighter now. Yeah. This feels yeah. great. Yeah, I um, given to someone who's about to go to the mountains. It's like take my sweatshirt. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, and especially if you don't really care about fashion. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, um, for sure. <laughs> I remember I had some khaki pants when I was riding. When I bought that bicycle in Myanmar, it was like a one speed, and like the the crotch blew out of my khaki pants that I'd had forever. Yeah. So I got a lungy, um, which is oh, like really? a skirt. Yeah. And so I had to learn how to mount the bicycle with this Burmese the, skirt, huh? but it worked. <laughs> but then I got back to Thailand and I had the skirt and then I, I had this fanny pack to snap it on and like this dry wick skirt. I just looked like an idiot because I didn't, I hadn't gone full hippie that I'd basically bought the, the ethnic clothing for functional reasons. Yeah. And, 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 and it, it's, it's a dress, you know, it's not a dress, it's a skirt, but, um, uh, anyway, it's there. If, if you, especially if you don't mind, I think you can travel with almost nothing buy as you go and be fashionable I just didn't happen to be um, but it's really I think people worry so much about what they can and can't find but I think anything that you can't find you don't need yeah. you know well because so. the people of the country don't need it so why yeah. would you need yeah. it there yeah and if you're going to a place where it's cold then they probably sell some warm clothing whenever we saw people, white people in lungies we're like what are you doing yeah <laughs> so I feel like the elephant pants is the most of like stop it you better leave those here and not take them back to America yeah and be the guy like, oh, no, I spent some time in Thailand. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. No, I think that ties into why sometimes people don't want to hear your stories. Because yeah. they don't want to hear the, oh, when I was in Thailand, everything yeah. was better. And, <laughs> yeah. and I, I didn't really know jeans are so confining. I wear my lunch now. And it's, my life is so much better than yours. Yeah. I mean, that's an old travel attitude. You, know? uh-huh. you, you see those pretensions coming up. Um, yeah, no, I didn't really... You can't wear a lungy here. You can't yeah. be like, it's a hot day, I want to wear it. I wore it when I was riding Vagabond and I wrote it just in my apartment. You know, really? it, was, it was comfortable. Let, yeah. Let your okay. balls dry They'll out. double up as sweatpants. Yeah. But that's yeah. about it. Yeah. Um, but I wasn't... Again, I'm from the Midwest and it's just like, I just think of my relatives... It, well, they would look and, at you and, and be like, they would just say no. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. they, they, and they would understand how I had to re- repair a, a, play, a pair, uh, replace a pair of pants, you know. 
Uh, but at the end of the day, I just don't think that they would see the necessity in ostentatiously yeah, probably my, not. my lungy. Uh, a couple more things I want to talk to you about. This is really interesting, though. Yeah, no. Thank you for meeting me. Yeah, you bet. It's cool outside, right? Yeah, it's a totally good day. fine. Yeah. It's good. Actually, I was I was walking with a friend the other day, and she said, "Is there a fucking saxophone every mile, every one mile <laughs> in New York?" For some Getting reason, she hates saxophone music. <laughs> I just now realized we have a saxophone guy that started yeah. up, and I I sort of made that observation to my sister the other day in Washington Square, and sure enough, a saxophone started up. So I don't know if it's the summer of sax here in New York, but that's just a, a random thought. Yeah. Um, do you ever get robbed while you're doing these stuff? I have. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a story in Marco Polo didn't go there about getting roofied basically in Istanbul, getting drugged and robbed. Really? Um, yeah, I wrote it sort of as, as a whodunit. I realized after it had happened that it's a scam on page 90 of the Lonely Planet. You know, if I just paid attention to the scams, I'd know that they they focus on solo male travelers. Um, to not no not for sex, just to rob their stuff. Not oh, come sorry, out. sorry. Yeah, no, I got I, I didn't get roofied by some. Um, exotic yeah. woman or man I was talking to at a bar I was it, it sort of fell into almost like the, the impulse that you and I have been talking about of wanting to talk to local people and wanting to be open to experiences so I met these guys uh, who, were, who said they were Moroccan and they were traveling and they were really friendly this was in Turkey I, and I should have guessed by their dentistry they, they sort of had janky teeth you know mm-hmm. and I, I think someone who is a diplomatic class in a country like Morocco would probably have better, you know, have better dentistry sort of thing Anyway, it was a scam, and so they, 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 they just befriended me in the way that a solo backpacker likes to get befriended, and sure. I hadn't hung out with Moroccan guys before, I hadn't been to Morocco yet at that time, and it was just a scam. They offered me a beer, and I refused it just because I wasn't thirsty for a beer, but then they got me with a cookie, they the little sandwich cookie they had put really? some sort of drug in, and I don't uh-huh. know what happened because you get complete amnesia, but they must have walked me around, they took me back up to exactly where they found wow. me. So I think it's an organized crime thing. If, if a Westerner dies, then the police will crack down. If a Westerner wakes up in front of his hostel with no money and no passport, then, no big deal. then they're not going to work that hard. Um, and so, so yeah, that was... Um, I, I wrote the story as a whodunit because I'd met a lot of <laughs> seemingly sketchy people and maybe some people who people would have judged as being sketchier. In like a list of I, suspects? Yeah, <laughs> you no, crossed totally. them off? Yeah, it's in Marco Polo didn't go there. That you're... That, um, I, I the first paragraph of the story I say look I was drugged and robbed and then the, the story just shows you who I met that day and the reader is left to guess and I knew that it was a successful story because I wrote it for a salon years ago and I got people who emailed me and called me a dumbass because they knew I was going to get robbed and it's like dude I, I said I got robbed in the first line of the story you just got so caught up in the whodunit aspect you forgot I told you that, that I got robbed um, and so that's one thing and that's hopefully the most spectacular robbery will, that will ever happen to me but I was in Chile not that long ago and I got scammed, some airport guys. Mm-hmm. I, was, I was tired. I'd, it had been an international flight. I'd forgotten the exchange rate. And just in casual conversations, they had convinced me that the decimal point was one decimal point over. Yeah. Um, and they, they help arrange like some transportation. I didn't lose that. I probably lost $30 or something. Oh, and in Cuba. When I was in Cuba, the same. Uh, I fell in with a guy. It was sort of a money exchange scam. So it happens. Um, and I think there's an extent... I don't know if I say this in vagabonding, but every once in a while you'll be made a fool of. And if you're not mm-hmm. a fool every once in a while in some respect, then maybe you're not trying hard enough. You know, that it, it, it's the idea that nobody's an expert traveler because you're always in new places. You're, you're, you're an outsider and you can, be, you can be the hot shot who brags the most at the hostel. At the end of the day, if you're not being vulnerable, if you're not allowing yourself to at least court mistakes and, yeah. and failure and getting lost, then, um, then you know, maybe you should 
try harder to be uncomfortable and be vulnerable yeah. and stuff. So, so, so it still happens to me. Every I thought so there's way more people willing to scam you than there are to rob you. Yeah, and that's you what know? happened to me in, yeah. in, in Chile and Cuba, um, and they're good. Yeah, and it, it's sort of a confidence game too. You know, they're they have convinced you that they're your friend and your best your best interests. And, and you should always be careful if you're in a high tourist zone. And I talk about this in the book. Is that um, offers of friendships in tourist zones should be viewed with skepticism? Yeah. Because if not a scam, then it might be you just might be frog marched to somebody's souvenir shop. You know. There's definitely a lot of that. Or I found uh, gay sex. Oh, okay. Yeah, How about that? Come hang out with me. It's like, oh, cool. And then it's like. And then they're like, you want to fuck? And I'm like, no, Ooh. wait. Oh, of course. <laughs> of course. I have nothing to offer. Of right. course. Right. Well, see, for them, it's probably a numbers game, too. You oh, know, absolutely. That, that every 10th Westerner might say, well, sure. Yeah, okay. Report down. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure how that breaks down in, in real life. <laughs> Women are obviously too smart to, to fall into that. Yeah, they're used to looking, like, skeptically at people. Yeah. Whereas men are just like, all right, this seems cool. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. right. <laughs> Um, you don't they don't let it stop you though do you the robberies no huh yeah um, that's not, most not of my friends all. like aren't you afraid of this or that or that and it's right. like slightly yeah yeah yeah. no I would rather be robbed than than you know die at age 90 in Kansas nothing against Kansas but you know um, I think you can put off a lot of your life for a lot of fear reasons and uh, people who sometimes respond with anger to vagabonding or the idea of travel are people who are really caught up in the fear aspect mm-hmm. um, and they are pissed off I don't know it, it's weird there's a weird psychology to they're pissed off that you don't have the fear what's that they're pissed off that you don't have the fear well they're what's I mean it's, it's not a rational thing it's they're afraid of travel and they don't like it that you're traveling mm-hmm. and so they want to like maybe pass you off as a snob or they want to have be justified in them not traveling i mean it's this is sort of you can go to any right-wing blog and and find a lot of like well i would never sentiments in the comments that say i would never go to france you obviously instantly get killed when you go to france which is a, a dumb idea yeah but there's versions of that at, at, at all kinds of levels where people are basically they don't want to think too seriously about how possible it is to travel uh, and so they use fear as that first line excuse, you know. And then it also, they're afraid do that with mushroom use too. What's that? Mushrooms and uh, psychedelics. Oh yeah. People do that. Uh, it's too, I'm too scared. This is gonna. Okay. And it's like just do the research. You'll be fine. Okay. Interesting. But people use that as their first line of defense. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, there's probably several um, categories in which that could be the first line of offense. Uh-huh. You know, just sort of the that, that fear will preempt you. And so yeah, I've had some. I've been scanned countless times. I've been drugged and robbed. I've had malaria twice. Once cerebral malaria. I've had <laughs> cholera. I've, there's been places where I could have died. And it's like there's. I'm not even. No, that's part of my life story. You know, that's not even. It was miserable in real time in some of those situations. When I got robbed, I, you get amnesia when you get roofied, and so I don't remember anything about uh-huh. the actual crime. I just remember sort of having to deal with it the next day. And the violation feeling, probably. Yeah, and, you know, um, just trying to figure out what happened, you know, uh, and then just trying to, to piece your life back together, find, get a new passport, get some more money, all that stuff. Which is another adventure, really. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What's, the, what's the embassy like in, you know, wherever? Yeah. yeah, the consulate. Actually, a lot of, they were used to American males coming in in the same situation as me. Oh, was that Laos? No. When I got drugged and robbed, it was in uh, Turkey, Turkey, in Istanbul. Oh, man. Although I got... Uh, my first malaria was in Laos. Really? Um, and then my second was Myanmar. Uh, and cholera was in Laos as well. Laos, Laos. 
And yeah, what's you, the difference? Well, it's it's sort of a backpacker snob thing. I mean, it's Laos, um, mm-hmm. but the Lao people say Lao, and so backpackers will say, "Oh, it's 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 not Laos, it's Lao." And it's like, well, actually, it's Mexico, but you don't say that. Well, well that's it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Where, where do you draw a line? It's sort of a, it's one of those cheap superiority things. I, I think the reason it's called Laos is, I mean, there's the Lao. It's like Burma versus Myanmar. The Burmese are the main ethnic group. Mm-hmm. Myanmar is a more historical world that also encompasses the Karen and the Shan and everybody else. You know, there's there's Hmong people. There's there's different sorts of ethnic minorities. So instead of just saying Lao, Republic of Lao, Laos, it's a plural. Actually, that might be a French transliteration, but. Oh. Laos is actually an all-encompassing word. You can say Lao, but not everybody is ethnic Lao. So I think when you talk to Rollins, not to fixate on him, he called it Lao. But every once in a while, you'll find a snotty backpacker who will correct you for saying Laos, who would never say Mexico, yeah. or, or they would never <laughs> use still... Suomo instead of Finland, you know. And the beer is beer Lao. Beer Lao. That's true. So yeah. maybe. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, we got to the point where we started arguing about it with a bunch of travelers, and we realized, like, none of us know. Yeah. yeah. We've all heard both ways. And the Lao don't care. I mean, it's, 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 it's like yeah. the tourist traveler uh, distinction that you see that like 20 feet away, a bunch of locals are watching two, this is a hypothetical, of course, but backpackers arguing about who's a tourist and who's a traveler. And they look exactly like tourists to the local person. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the local person isn't, it's not a contest that's meant to be for local yeah. people. My friend said he didn't want to take a camera with him because he was afraid of looking like a, a tourist. Uh-huh. And then his friend had to be like, you're a white person in <laughs> Cambodia. Right. What do you think you look like without the camera? <laughs> exactly. Like, what? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I remember telling somebody they were worried about like robberies or, or danger. And I said uh, to some, about some country, I think even maybe about Timor-Leste, like, is it dangerous? I was like, well, last year there were 547 murders there. And they're like, Jesus, really? I'm like, oh, no, no, I'm sorry, that's Chicago. <laughs> right, yeah. And yeah. he was like, oh, yeah. I'm like, but you think that's fine? You'll go to Chicago without thinking twice. Well, that was another thing. Like, I was in Paris last year. There was the terrorist incident in Nice. Yeah. And all these people are emailing, hope you're okay, prayers, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, it's Nice, you know, Paris. Yeah. It's, it's like, you live you live in Kansas City, but I didn't, when, when there was a shooting in Dallas, I didn't call and ask if you were okay. Right. You know? My mom called uh, me because Times Square happened maybe a month ago okay somebody ran through some people oh, okay yeah it was either an old man who lost control of his car or a terrorist I don't know yeah yeah. but uh I was like no mom there's 10 million people here and also I don't go to Times Square yeah I'm a fucking New Yorker now. Right. Like, why would I ever go to Times Square well that's it somebody emailed me really recently and, and said I'm it, it was framed really weirdly it's like my mom and dad or my mom and my and my sister are going to London and I'm worried about them and you're a travel expert and I need you to help either explain it to me or, or explain to them why they shouldn't go. Really? And you're <laughs> like, I'm not going to take your stance. That's one of those things. Statistically, I mean, terrorism isn't even a blip on the danger radar. More tourists get hurt drinking three beers on the beach and driving their rental moped mm-hmm. too fast. Yeah, getting sun, sun, the, sun damage or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Or they get, or they... Or they swim. I think tourists, people who swim in a riptide type stuff, you know, it's the same kind of thing that can happen at a beach at home. Or they wander in the wrong neighborhood and they're mugged by the same sort of um, local crime types that you would find in any city of, of, of equal size, right. you know. But terrorism gets the, the press. Yeah, because terrorism, and this is what I told them in the email, that terrorism is a publicity act, period. Oh, yeah, good point. Um, that that um, 
it is used, mm-hmm. it has always been used by weaker parties who don't have any ability to implement a military or, you know, the operational skills to actually kill people who might kill them. Yeah. It's, it's this publicity act that makes people scared. And that's the only product of, of terrorism is fear. And it works really well. I mean... I mean, that's, that's what we get for living in a, in a media-saturated environment in, in clickbait world, you know. Mm-hmm. And I've, actually, I've, it's, it's disgusting sometimes because I don't watch a lot of mainstream media. So I end up watching, and by mainstream media, I mean like television news, right? Not At some point, you know they're lying to you. So the, like, why would I trust them for the few times <laughs> they're not lying to you? For what? For the f- they're used. They lie a lot. They lie a lot or mislead a well, lot. They're, they're full of pundits who lie a lot, yeah. and then they they take one thing and hammer about it. And so, so like I was in a bus station. I was on the East Coast. I was taking like a Peter Pan bus to show my nephew some colleges a few years ago, and some fairly minor ter- terrorist incident or threat had happened. And CNN spent like all ninety minutes I was there talking about it. They brought in experts, and it's like this isn't even news. This is sort of this is a don't t- change the channel event. And so that 24-hour news is about keeping people's attention. And so it actually is profitable for news to, of course, to be... I mean, it's always been man bites dog, but now it's even man bites dog. Oh, my God, a a man will bite you. Right. You know, I mean, that's... Are men biting dogs now? Do you have to care about your dog and keep away from men? Yeah. It's... I mean, it's like... It's... It really is that thing where you, you watch the news and something bad happened, fine. Report it, get on to some other news that's relevant. We have no understanding of the economy of these countries, of the culture of these other countries. We just know when something blows up in other countries. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it's like, this blew up. Here's an expert who talks about, could it happen here? Here's another expert who talks about, gives you a two-minute background of the entire history of Syria. You know, And, then, and right. it's just, it, it's... Um, and also they don't break it down to regions where yeah. like the Afghan border of... of, uh, of um, Maybe it's the border in Afghanistan. Or maybe I'm thinking of Iran-Afghanistan border. Are they borders? Yeah. Yeah, so that border is, like, careful. But anyway, yeah. the other side is, like, totally safe. Interesting. You know? Yeah. And we just put it in as, like, Iran. Dangerous. Yeah. And like, it's massive, though. Arkansas and, and you know, well, well, yeah. Bushwick are completely different. <laughs> like, why would you assume that's dangerous the same? And, and even in a big city where something dicey is happening, the odds are... Um, that you, you're, you know, the odds that you're going to be at, at Bataclan Theater uh-huh. that night in in Paris are odd. Not not to diminish what happened in Paris. Even if I was in Times Square while it was happening yeah. Yeah. and could see it happen, I stop. I still would probably be un, like it wouldn't hit me at all. Yeah, yeah, and that's and that's why it's it's good to think about the actual, you know, real crime statistics in America as a point of comparison. Yeah. and just think of your odds of your odds of getting scammed, of losing your passport, of getting a sunburn that hurts really bad. Yeah pretty good right um your odds of getting blown up by some political terrorist are way 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 lower than than again renting a a, a, getting a rental car and not driving it very well or swimming in in some place where you shouldn't be swimming you know well if you look at the death stats for america all of america per day in 2001 9-11 was pretty much the same interesting yeah it wasn't a huge spike at all but yet as a publicity act you know and I asked my British friend about this. I was like, how much do you guys talk about 9-11? Like, in terms of, like, how much does it come up? And he goes, zero. Not at all. Never. Hmm. Yeah. That we've had ten things here since then. Yeah. Why did we talk about your thing from that long ago? Well, it's interesting. You know, Britain had a terrorist problem mm-hmm. long before we talked about it. France did, too. I mean, they in, in the 90s, there were, there were some... In the 90s? 
Yeah, like there were Algerian uh, terrorists who were taking over airplanes and stuff. Oh, um, yeah. And back when American politicians were complaining about freedom fries, they should have showed them the videos of the French commandos storming the planes and taking out the terrorists with handguns. Wow. It was, it was uh, if you're into that G.I. Joe stuff, it was pretty remarkable that they were taking care of business. Actually, it's why, it's why there's no um, trash cans like we have here. We're in Tompkins Park. There's basically an oil barrel trash can. Um, so many bombs were being put in trash cans in the 90s. That Ireland they, took that, them away. That they just make a ring and a plastic bag hangs underneath in Paris. And, um, so and of course, that was never there. on our radar. So, mm-hmm. you, so you flip that and, and um, yeah, it, these other countries have their own concerns and their own ways of dealing with the concerns. And unfortunately, I mean, I think it's good to be vigilant, but we've really hammered the terrorism thing in the United States in a ridiculous way. It's too much. And, and in a way... Like, the email from this woman was, like, with ISIS pushing everybody around, and, and it's just like, you're projecting really, really inaccurate things on like ISIS. who? Who she pushed around? How has your life changed yeah. at all because yeah. of ISIS? Right. B- besides... Like zero. Besides, you know, fevered, fevered uh, yeah. daydreams, you know? Yeah, but I, I can go down the same streets. No, they're, not, they're not touching me. Yeah. And, and there is a statistical chance that you'll be walking across London Bridge and a terrorist will wipe you out. But it's probably less than a guy who's had too many pints will drive onto the... Exactly. Yeah. And, and so it's or just... heart failure. I, I guess th- there's, there's a lot of big umbrella ideas that come under fear and terrorism mm-hmm. is the most obvious one. But it doesn't take terrorism... People are afraid of all... People use much smaller fears to not travel, you know. There won't be any toothpaste. Right. Um, who was yeah, yeah. I talking to? I was talking to a, a friend. She's my I, age. She started yeah. traveling later in life and... She wants to go to Thailand, but she was worried about the hotels because she got a great deal on ho- hotels in, in Budapest. And I'm thinking, the hotel will take care of itself. You know, you're overthinking. What do you you're, mean? You're overthinking things. What do you mean take care of itself? Um, you'll find a place oh, to sleep. Oh, you'll find a place. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, some the, people... The Airbnbs in Budapest yeah. were great, and, and you stayed at a Hyatt Rewards or whatever. And, but you'll find a place, in, and it'll be fine. And, and it, her, she may have been a little bit hyperbolic when she was saying that. But people will do that. They'll micromanage too, too much fear. what could happen. There's all these travels I found when they would go to a new city. They'd be like, oh, we got to go online, get a hostel, get a reservation. And it's other people, it was split. Other people like, oh, I'll just figure it out when I get there. Like, what if it's sold out? Like, then the next place won't be. I don't know. You'll ask that hostel, like, is there another one around here? And they'll tell you. That's something that's really changed in the last 15 years. Is because in my first days of backpacking, Nobody would reserve places in advance unless they were a really dorky person who had the let's go and called mm-hmm. everybody. You would go to the next place, and if a hotel or a hostel was full, you went to the next one. And the hostels, I remember being in Prague and went to a, you know, the hostel that was in the book, and they're like, oh, yeah, we're full. But go to this place. It's new. And it was this boutique hostel. It cost the same. It was like staying at this brushed steel modern ho- hotel yeah. or something. And it's, those problems solve themselves. Oh, yeah. But now even young people um, you can see are more given to... They're, they're, they go online and plan their next hostel. Yeah. And I guess if it works, it works, but you don't need to. I mean, it, it's a weird, that, that's a weird sort of fear. Unless it's festival season, there's always going to be a place to sleep. Yeah. And it might not be the best place, but I don't know. I know a lot of people, my friends, are like, well, I can never stay in hostels. I'm like, what do you mean you could never? What is that? What are you yeah. talking about? Yeah. My dad was in the Holocaust. <laughs> what, what couldn't you do? Right. Yeah. <laughs> sleep yeah. on a shitty bed, the, not the cleanest sheets. Yeah. I mean, they're probably also watching Orange is the New Black and thinking, I wonder if I could stay a night in a jail. Well, yeah. there's your trainer kit, a hostel. <laughs> it sure is. It sure is. <laughs> Eight people to a room and no bars. Give God. it a shot. Some of them are so shitty. I didn't see any um, uh, bed bugs, though, or anything like that. Yeah. With the review system that's out there now, it's just like, I don't know. You'll die as a hostel if you have bed bugs. 
Yeah. Everyone will know about it and you'll be done. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think, um, yeah, backpackers are willing to forego a lot of excuses, but the really gross shit, I think, yeah. you can, they can kill a reputation. Yeah. You know? If you're on the hostile circuit, you can, if a place has bed bugs or gross, disgusting bathrooms or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Or like, I saw one place and I left for like five days, came back to that same hostel and I'm like, this is my stain. From oh, this, oh really? yeah i got the same bed i, I fucking Ooh. shaved i had a little bit of blood and uh-huh. it's still in the same pillowcase you haven't changed any of this oh uh, yeah. yeah um in terms of like danger how how much like how much do you wait to go to a country that's like newly peaceful not at all you just go yeah, no, yeah i was in Cam- i was in Cambodia in 99 the peace was 97 i think wow really um and but that was even a little late i'm trying to think of another example i mean i was in I don't know if I have, I don't know if, one, I'm, I'm a little cynical. Like when I was in Cambodia, it was still sort of a war tourism jaunt. And I was with all these, invari- they invariably have a hooker girlfriend or something. You know, yeah. These sort of war, yeah. war tourist junkies. And I sort of lost respect for their worldview because it's like, it's the world. Like you, you, you've, you've acquired a hobby where you feel dangerous because you're going to places where there is or recently was a war. When yeah. in fact, the reason you go to a country is because it's a country and it's an awesome place and there's food and people and everything else. War-wise, I don't know. I was in, I was in Lebanon when there was stuff happening in southern Lebanon. I was really? in southern Lebanon when I, I talked during to the war, not during like the two thousand six Israeli war, but it was when, you know, UN there was a UN buffer zone. There was some Hezbollah activity, stuff like that. And I went down and talked to some Fijian peace uh, peacekeepers and talked to some local people. And um, those places are invariably the friendly places in the world and it sounds weird but people aren't used aren't, they're not jaded to tourists they're not trying to sell you a bust of Nefertiti oh, yeah um, and so that's why Syria was one of my I wouldn't go to Syria now but back when it was just a um, when the elder Assad was still alive and it was just probably before axis of evil uh, but tourists never went there so it had the same like Arab hospitality of Egypt but Egypt Egyptians are so tired they've been seeing tourists for 5,000 years and they just can't get as excited about you uh, yeah the as to a just, new place we're just so cool like I said we talked about the Utah Jazz we we um, I don't know I, I just I just love that place because I was able to be in a place where hospitality was a virtue yet there were no other people to be hospitable to yeah um, so it's that thing where you sort of get the place to yourself um, you know hospitality you know, during an all-out war, but I've been to some place, even Mozambique, where I went this winter, there hasn't been hot fighting there for a while, at least not any place urban, but it still hasn't recovered from its civil war. And gosh, what a chill, beautiful place. Really? Yeah. Oh, my God. You feel yeah, like I'm going beaches? to Liberia. Oh, that's interesting. my friend who's fled, his family fled from he, Charles he, Taylor. He's Liberian. Yeah. And he's like, come with me. It's totally fine now. Yeah, yeah. Timor Leste, actually, that's still travel advisories. Don't go. True. Yeah. But then you find out why, and it's like, oh, that stopped in 2006. Yeah. Which is still pretty recent, but like, you talk to them, like, it's all done. Yeah. The two factions have made complete peace. It's done. Yeah. And then just don't go to where the battles are happening. Right. You know. Yeah. I mean, yeah. uh, there's, there's a, even you know, there's student protests or whatever in the city. Well, stay the fuck away from stay that. Stay away from the yeah. protests. You know. Yeah. Actually, I know people who would seek them out, but um, if in doubt, avoid mobs of people. That's yeah. one. That's one good safety <laughs> yeah. standby. There's something exciting about mobs of people. Like when I was mm-hmm. living in Korea, they had protest culture is so embedded there that I taught near a university, and the students would have 
demonstrations in the spring once a week that required tear gas. And I was excited. I was running around and checking things out. Wow. And that was, that, was, that was such a ritualized thing that it was fine. But if I was in an unfamiliar city and there was crazy stuff going on, I just don't trust mobs, basically. Yeah, they get out of hand. They get out of hand, yeah. 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 Um, and, but there's some common sense thing. Mobs, drunk people late at night, sketchy areas, um, people who seem too friendly. Uh, but other than that, sometimes advisories... Tony Wheeler, the guy who founded Lonely Planet, when the Axis of Evil came out, he went to all those countries and wrote a book about it. Really? Yeah. Uh, Iran, Iran, I'm sure would be a wonderful place to go. I've heard great things about it, even though it's sort of a... Yeah, I met a friend who went there right after I met her. Oh, man, the pictures, the wilderness, the, the beautiful like countryside. Oh, yeah. And you think, even like, even like Kurdistan and places, there's places that like, look like they would be great for snowboarding. Uh-huh. This beautiful... It looks like you could be in New Zealand or Switzerland type places. And in fact, actually, there's a lot of snowboarders in, in Tehran. Um, really? I had some, like, California Persian friends who talk about going back sometimes and Damn. snowboarding and party scenes and stuff like that. That's half of why Bali got going. That's what? Half of why Bali got really going. There's a surf there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's like, and the people there were like, I don't know, we don't do that. And the, 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 the Australians were like, what the hell? This looks awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, I wonder if, like, um, Endless Summer... Uh-huh. Movie. I wonder if that, how that that would be an inter- interesting was that? to revisit. It went around. It surfed around the world. Oh, oh yeah. Um, yeah. That's 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 how it happens. I haven't been to Bali. But, yeah. um, All right. Last two questions. Okay. Thank you for doing this, by the way. Yeah. No. Um, where can people find you online if they want to? Rolfpost.com. Uh, Rolfpost.com. Do you have a Twitter or anything or Instagram? We take yeah. Pictures? Um, I'm. I have a tortured relationship with social media. I yeah, go through man. phases of it. thinking I should post. I'm. I'm cold on Twitter and warmer on Instagram right now, but I'm sure I'll drop off at some point. So, um, at Rolf Potts, both Instagram and Twitter, the RolfPotts.com links to those sites. Okay. And it's just, it links to all my books. It links to a lot of my essays, a lot of my travel resources, and it's just a good place to start. Okay. All right. Uh, Here's the last two questions. One, has this kind of long-term travel, vagabonding, has it ruined the one-week vacation for you? Only insofar as it makes me long for the, the long trip. You know, I'll go... Like, vagabonding is really popular in Italy for some reason. The like, book is? Yeah, like, uh-huh. I need to tip my translator. For, it's been translated yeah. into several languages. It's the same book, but the Italians love it. So somehow, oh. that translator did something right. So I'll go to Italy for a short trip, speak at some schools and stuff, and um, have just, get just enough of a taste to want to travel for a year, you know. Or I'll... And I've, I've done some shorter, you know, with friends trips or family members where I'll travel for a while and just get the bug. It doesn't ruin the trip, but it just makes that, that itch worse. You and where do you go? I got to get back here and really do this. Yeah. And I've been saying it like I haven't done, I haven't done a proper dirt bag vagabonding trip for a long time yeah. you know, where I'm like just taking the cheapest option. I'm, I'm just going super slow. Um, and like I had some great adventures in Southern Africa this year, but I, I usually had, I rented a four wheel drive for a while that got me some places I wouldn't otherwise, but I wasn't doing that super slow dirt bag, no itinerary type trip. So, um, Oh God, it's so much fucking fun, man. Yeah. Yeah. It's so much fun. Just like, I don't know. I'm going to do this now. I'm going to rent a bike and do that for 10 days. Yeah. And so I want to, I want to go back to that. Even after I was in Africa for more than two months, yeah. and, but I still miss the do it for a year thing. You know? Yeah. So you were there for how long? 10 uh, months? More what than two months. One, two months. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, and, and so I, and, but even professionally, like I, I actually have some writing stuff that really interests me now, but then I'm at my desk and thinking, Jesus, I could, for less than I'm paying, you know, to keep my electricity on in my house, I could be in Flores. I could be in Indonesia. Yeah. And so it's, it, it, it it's, it's satisfying in a yeah. sense, but it, it all, it gives you that tickle that'll never go away. Like you'll, you'll always be thinking about other places you could be it's not in a torturous way but it you know it, it just it makes you realize how many amazing things you might be missing so i almost see it now as like bird watching where those bird watchers cross stuff off there like okay i saw that cockatoo or whatever mm-hmm. but it's almost like oh, i still haven't been to that country or i haven't been to that place or seen yeah. that thing where it's like yeah. i just want to cross it off yeah and then those there's those things it's where too it's too much the world's too big it's yeah. like i remember that 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 river ferry in in, in myanmar and just how the, the light was on the water and how yeah. alive I felt and how simple that moment was. And I wonder what it's like now. Yeah. And so those places where you want to go back to and, mm-hmm. and, and reconnect and see how they've changed. And I think you have to come to terms with the fact that you'll never, there's this memento more existential thing that you'll die before you can visit or revisit every place. And you just have to enable the adventure in so far as you can. I sometimes feel like you shouldn't go back because you're going to ruin hmm. some of the memory yeah. of like this special, special thing where it's like, oh, this food wasn't that good or it wasn't like I remembered it. Yeah. And I think we sanitize our memories sometimes mm-hmm. too. We yeah. heighten them. Last thing. What's the your version of what Henry said of, uh, of uh, I'm here to meet you? You said you got a version of that. When I'm traveling? Yeah. Actually, I don't. Well, actually, I, I've had versions of it but they they aren't quite so as artfully perfect as that <laughs> yeah. you know, that I mean because that's 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 funny uh-huh. you know, it communicates the point while being sort of ironic and funny and and, and, ca- and catching people and gets off the conversation guard. going yeah yeah so um, I, I'm I, I shamefully it's usually something like oh well I'm traveling around and hoping to meet people which is a similar and less charming way of saying I'm here to meet you so. yeah is there anything you'd like to say to the people who were like kind of wondering if I can do it or if, or, about, or about to go or thinking they can't. I don't know. People who haven't really done vagabonding before. Just that when they do do it, they'll be so grateful. Yeah. There's all these expense charts and fears and, and uh, uncertainties, but there'll be a moment when you're sitting in a place and the air smells different yeah. and people look different and the food tastes different and you're on day one and it's like, holy <laughs> shit, I did it and I'm so grateful that I did, you know? And I think that that's talk to any traveler who's done it in earnest and they'll 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 relate to that gratefulness and and if you allow it to that can spool out through the whole trip where you just stop and it's like i'm in a place that i never heard of um a year ago you know uh, having an eating food i never knew existed a week ago and i can see every star in the sky and there's a breeze on my face and and this is wonderful you know and it's those kind of moments it's not checking machu picchu off your your list though i highly recommend going to machu picchu but it's those little moments where it's like oh my god i'm so grateful that i did this you know yeah the smells there's an alternate version where i'm netflixing you know and that's (laughs) fine but i would rather see all these stars and taste this food you know so god yeah Dude, I told you, I read that book on a, on, a, on a beach on an island in Cambodia, and some of the stuff I was just reading it, I'd already been gone for about a month plus. Some of it was like, oh, cool, I did that, I did that. And other parts were like, I put it into play later. They'll always say yes. Yeah. When people are like, come eat with us. And you're like, oh, no, but fuck that. Yeah, just do it. Yeah. Uh, it just really helped me on my trip. Good, I yeah. appreciate it. No, I'm glad to hear it. Yeah. And what, what a funny way to, to finally meet after we were sort oh, yeah. of consuming yeah. each other's yeah. Yeah. It's really media cool. for a while. So, <laughs> yeah. On cool. a beautiful day in Thompson, Tompkins yeah. Square this Park. This is great. I'm yeah. glad we did outside. 
Now the time has come to leave you one more time. Let me kiss you, then close your eyes. I'll be on my way. Dream about the days to come when I won't have to leave alone. About the time I won't have to say. Kiss me and smile for me. Tell me that you'll wait for me. Hold me like you'll never let me go. What a long episode. No one's going to be listening to the outro now, are they? No one's going to be listening to it at this point. Fucking four and a half, five hours into this podcast already? (laughs) What are the odds anyone's still listening? I have a good retention rate, I think, according to the Laughable app. I do have a good retention rate. Plus, no fucking sponsors on this episode, right? So, got to like that. Um, Okay, so here's here's where we go. First of all, I'll I'll tell you the first story. Did you like that? How fucking cool is that guy? Traveling around with fucking nothing, with no backpack, washing his stuff and going. I know it seems weird and hard, you guys. I know people go like, well, I couldn't do that. You can do it. You could do it. You could quite easily do it. I did it. I'm a priss. It dates back to my this episode I did with the Holocaust survivors. And I was like, how did you live like that? How did you live in a concentration camp? And their answer was like, that was just how you had to live. That's it. There was no choice, and that just became your reality. You could live in a shitty hostel. All you can. You ain't that good. You ain't that above it. You wouldn't like it, and then you get used to it in no time. Let me tell you about some stuff I think you should bring with you on these trips. I had a lot of time to think. Here's a good quote from his book. Traveler, there is no path. Paths are made by walking. Oh, that's a good one. Antonio Machado, Contreras. Oh, that's a good one. Okay, let me tell you. Oh, man, these are so fucking good. These are so fucking good. The traveler sees what he sees. The tourist sees what he's come to see. Oh, God, these are making me cry. Okay, let me tell you what you should bring with you. From, from This is what I wrote down. As I went, I just wrote stuff down. Travel tips, here we go. Here we go. Less research, I'll put this in my fucking book. I'm gonna write a book. But you know what it's gonna be? This is what the, she says, the, the, the protagonist in, in How to Set a Fire and Why says. She had some woman she met was writing a book on uh, um, hypnotism. And she goes, all she did was write fucking, read 11 other books and tag the best of. So maybe I got to do something where I'm not that. Here's my travel tips. Less research means fewer predispositions. It means having fewer expectations and it allows for a more real observation experience. 
in foreign lands. Less research. That means for me, I don't know for everybody, but for me, I went to Southeast Asia with two things to see. Ha Long Bay in northern Vietnam and Bagan in Myanmar. I did one of those two things in four months. I was also going to go to Laos. I was going to go to the Philippines to learn scuba diving in the Philippines. Never made it to the Philippines. Never made it to Laos. I got to a country. You talk to people. What's going on? What is there to do? What should I be seeing? Oh, there's some cool jazz bar in Chiang Mai. That's awesome. I'll check that out. Went twice. Three times? Maybe three times. Anyway, you just find out. You let the wind take you. Everybody's going on a, on a three-day hike in Myanmar? Sure. Okay, that sounds great. Yeah, I'll do it. Must bring. I have a few must brings. And this, keeping in mind, is from a guy and probably an experience that most people are going to have where all you're with is the backpack on your back. 45 kilos. That's all you get. Every time you buy something, you got to dump something. Like the Goldfinch hardcover. Idiot. Idiot. What was I thinking? You've got to dump something. It's on your back. It hurts. It's painful. I mean, it's heavy as shit. My Osprey bag is fucking glorious. But after a while, it's 45 kilos. It's a fucking lot. So I have some must-brings. And these are mostly small. Earplugs and a backup set. They take up no room and they will save your sleep. You put it in your little toiletries bag. The, the hostels, they don't invest in heavy walls. Other people snore in there. You need to sleep. You got to be up. Earplugs. They're the best. And honestly, zero space, zero weight. Must bring walking shoes slash hiking shoes. Less so in Southeast Asia, but even there. Okay, this is a splurge item. This is one of those where it's like you got to spend some money before you go. 100 bucks. I got the Merrill that I really loved. The um, M-E-R-R-I-L-L. M-E-R-R-I-L. Merrill Grasbo, I think. Found out later, not waterproof. When I'm hiking through fucking caves up to my chest in water in, in, uh, in Sapong. <laughs> not waterproof. But they're great. Less so in Southeast Asia because generally... You wear flip-flops. I wore a fucking pair of Air Jordan flip-flops that I got uh, at, the, at the Nike outlet store in, in outside Portland, I think, or Seattle for fucking $15, whatever it was. I wore them until they stunk so bad. I had to dump them in Phnom Penh. I had to dump them. I think I'm on my way back to Phnom Penh after, Vietnam, what is it? It, was, it was Myanmar, Thailand, Cambodia, Vietnam, Cambodia. Yeah, I dumped them there. They started really stinking. And I got another pair of Hollister shoes that felt immediately started breaking. Um, but you're going to need some walking shoes and some hiking shoes. When you do go on a hike, you're going to need those shoes. You tie them to the outside of your backpack, not the inside. You just hook them on. You look like a fucking badass traveler that way. You look like a fucking backpacker. You need those. Must bring. A great backpack. You gotta. That's, that's maybe the number one thing. Another splurge item. Look for pockets. Detachable ba- day packs. My, my, uh, my Osprey bag. Oh, man, I forgot which one it's called. It has a detachable day pack, so you can just unzip it and go, and it's like a small backpack. Uh, uh, a laundry or shoes area separated. Some I've seen those. Outside water pockets. 
uh, which a detachable part has, where you can put water bottles on either side, on the outside, so you can just reach for them as you're hiking. That Osprey bag is fucking great. Comfort on your back. Again, this is a splurge item. It's a must. You could get one used also from a friend. You got to have it. By the way, have you guys tweeted about my goddamn special yet? Please, everybody. That's the only thing I'm asking for you. For this podcast alone. But just in general, can you hear my voice when I do bits that have to yell in it? It goes away. My voice goes. This nasty show is going to fucking be tough. Anyway. Um, it's going to be great, though. I just mean it's going to be tough in my voice. By the way, nasty show. Also, uh, Ari Shafir's renamed storytelling show. This is all Montreal. Nasty show every day. This Wednesday, it starts the 19th through the, through the 29th. Ari Shafir's storytelling show on the 25th at midnight at the Mainline Theater. Live Skeptic Tank on that Saturday. What is that? Like the 29th. And uh, I think I got most of the camping equipment we need. Maybe some mats. Maybe some mats. I don't know if that's, if we have those or not. Mats would be good for under the sleeping bags. Um, okay. So now this is not a must bring. This is a fucking tip, travel tip. Build up instead of building down. Bring only essentials and then gain belongings instead of having to downsize because of weight or space. I knew a, a lady who, who's living in Ireland now and she just said she goes with fucking two t-shirts, a pair of jeans and two pairs of underwear. And then she's like, I'll buy shit when I get there. <laughs> and that's what you need. Whatever you need, you just get it. It's all cheaper out there. It might break, but it's cheaper. But, you know, you want some good stuff too. It depends where you're going. If you're going to Nepal, honestly, don't know. I was going to say buy stuff here. You can buy stuff in Nepal, I guarantee you, before you climb Kilimanjaro. Is that there? Um, you'll have places to buy fucking hiking equipment. Eh, not so much in Myanmar, though. You really? No, you could. You could. I just wasn't looking that much. There was warm stuff I bought. Absolutely. Thrift stuff. Bought a hoodie, sweatpants, and sweatshorts for three dollars total. Um, oh, so I didn't tell you about okay this thing. Let me break for a second from this outro and tell you. So I'm, so I asked him like, hey, would you like to do this podcast as Rolf? Have you reached out to Rolf? Tell him what how good he was in that podcast and how you'd like him to, to be back. Tell him more travel stories. At Rolf Potts on Twitter. Um, I reached out to him. Get the book too, you guys. It's fucking great. If you're at all inclined to read anything or you have a thought of going on this travel stuff, get that book, Vagabonding. I mean, I, can't, I was going to say I can't recommend it enough, but I'm not recommending it enough. I just keep recommending it. Oh, did I tell you my special double negative is out now? Yeah, that's right. It's out now on Netflix. So anyway, I was like, hey, man. Um, and he was like, Oh yeah, I'll do your podcast. So I was like, okay, cool. He goes, what's what's it entail? I'm like, you know, just anywhere. It, mine is pretty mobile. Uh, if it's a nice day, I'd really love to do it outside. And that's what we did. Went to Tompkins Square Park and did this. Uh, and I was like, have you ever done a podcast before? Because, you know, the non-comics, I don't know. And he goes, yeah, yeah, I've done a bunch. He's done Tim Ferriss's. If you want to hear more from him, Tim Ferriss. Um, I don't know, a bunch of other ones. I want to get Tim Ferriss on here too. Have him talk about travel. That'd be a fun one. He's done some shit. Um the point of having a four-hour work week if you can't fucking do fun shit with it let me hear about that fun shit not the work week let me hear about the rest of it let me hear about the other 36 hours um 
Anyway, I was like, yeah, man, I, re- I read your book on this island in Cambodia. Oh, no, 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 no. Let me back up. So that's what I did. I already told you I read the book there. And I was like, yeah, I don't know if you've ever done a podcast. It's just talking to a mic. It's just really a conversation more than an interview. And he goes, yeah, yeah, I'm familiar. I've heard your podcast before. I'm like, what? Yeah. He said he was in Namibia riding around on a fucking motorbike. And he heard my podcast with Henry Rollins in February. The same month that I'm listening to his, that I'm reading his book. This man who I've never met and hadn't heard of before was listening to my fucking Henry Rollins podcast. He heard Rollins on Rogan's podcast. They talked about me, I guess. They did it while I was gone. And then he's like, let me hear more. And he went and heard mine. On opposite, opposite fucking continents. Not opposite, other continents. Unknowns to each other. And then we met up for a podcast. How fucking cool is that? After we did this podcast, we went and had some beers and talked more. That guy, Rolf, is a cool guy. He's just a fucking cool dude. I got to get him back on again. Not interrupt. Uh, Here's one I got from Sam, one of the fucking first two wheels in my third wheel situation. Bluetooth speakers, he said. Small ones. Great way to make friends at hostels, but you only get one item like this. It's a splurge item in terms of space. I wouldn't say take it. I wouldn't take it. But if you're looking to make friends at a hostel, Bluetooth speakers would be a good way to do that. How long are these trips? Oh, another two pages. It's okay. Stay in dorms. Anywhere you're going to be more than one night. Private rooms are unsocial. You'll get stuck in there for an extra 30 minutes to two hours in your private room. Stay in the dorm. Not just in a hostel. In the dorm in the hostel. You have a private room. You will stay in there. You will be on your internet. You will stay in there. Have a dorm where you got to get up and get out. You'll meet people there. You'll just meet people. It's way more social. You'll stay in bed. You'll stay in your place. You'll be like, let me just sit down for a second. And you just stay by yourself. You Maybe you'll read. You'll do nothing. Get the fucking dorm. This is when you should be in the common room or out walking the streets. So it's 30 minutes to two hours. You're spending by yourself in your, in your, in your private room. Even a private room in a hostel. You should be out walking the streets. Seeing the place that you'll never go back to. The 30 minutes is between the difference between meeting someone who will tell you important information about something you're about to do, or more importantly, tell you about a place or experience that will alter, literally alter the direction of your travel. And while that should be going on, you're in your private room, on your phone, or reading a book. Get a dorm, get outside. Okay. I got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten of these. Ten more of these. Oh, this is fun. It's taking me back. I'm going to write a book, right? I'm going to. Yeah. Right? I should. I'm going to. I'm going to start in Montreal. I'm going to start writing it in Montreal. But I'll finish off for you guys. Whoever's listened to fucking five hours of this podcast, you should have a reward. Here's, a, here's a, a preview of the book. Also, did you know my special uh, double negative is out right now on Netflix, Children and Adulthood? You should tweet about it if you like it or even before. Everybody watch Ari Shafir's special. Oh, I can't wait. Oh, Ari Shafir's special is finally here on, on Netflix, double negative. Hashtag that if you want. I don't know. Don't hashtag. Do whatever you want for hashtags. Drugs. Pretty much any Rasta or weed leaf decorated place, especially on any beach, 
does sell weed. I'll repeat that for you. Pretty much any Rasta bar or any weed leaf decorated place, weed leaf decorated, does sell weed. Pre-rolled sometimes or half tobacco, so be careful. But learn how to roll your own. Learn how to roll on joints. Uh, uh, there's tons of YouTube videos on how to roll your own joints. Use a dollar bill. That's what I do. Some people say it's cheating. Some people are idiots. It's not a fucking game. S- serious. I'm from it. Um, learn how to roll your own. That way you can just buy straight uh, weed from them. They might have uh, rolling papers. They might even have a grinder. This place in Cambodia had a grinder and papers. Can I have a paper? Yeah, sure. And you can use while you talk to them about what there is to do or where they're from. You can meet somebody while you're rolling your joint. How'd you get here, man? That's one of my favorite questions. You see somebody working a fucking bar, some white person or black person working a bar in Asia? How'd you get here, dude? What do you mean, they say? You know what I mean. Where where are you from? You're from New Zealand and you work in a bar in Cambodia selling weed? How'd you get here? And if not, if they don't have weed, they can point you to a bar that does. Don't get loud about it. Don't get loud about it. Places that sell it, pretty much, when they sell it openly, they have paid off the cops. It is a safe spot to smoke. It's a safe spot to buy. I know there's horror stories. My advice is those places are okay. They have paid off the cops. The cops now have a vested interest in leaving them the fuck alone. So that's my advice. Take it if you want. Be scared if you want. But occasionally you're going to want to smoke pot, and that's how you do it. To bring one book, one, finish one, then let the fates decide. Oh, that's what did I write. Finish one, then let the fates bring you another book. Even trade. If you don't like anything, wait one city and swap out. Or seek out other hostels. For fun and just leave it and, and buy one somewhere else if you want. But those, I love the fact that you go to a hostel like, I want a book. I want another book. And you got 25 of them there and that's your choice. Which one catches your eye? That Ansan Keith book caught my eye. This fucking How to Set a Fire and Why book, that caught my eye. Let the fates decide. If you don't like anything, wait one city to swap or seek out other hostels for fun and just leave it. And buy one somewhere else. The one other book you are going to bring is not the only book that's right for you. Plus, there's not that much time to read. Here's a big, big tip. Get a group. I don't mean bring a group with you. I mean get a group. I don't know how to make it happen. A group is just like you meet a a dude at a hostel. You like him. He, He met somebody else. You like him. A couple other people. You just become a group. On my travels, on my on my on my three day trek, that was that was a good group, and that continued down to the fuck through Thailand. The last two guys I, I met in Thailand, I just kept a group. Get a group. I don't know how to make it happen, but once you get a group, it's so much nicer and more fun. You don't have any history when you're with a group. You don't have who you were. You just have who you are, a good traveler. Here's another one. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven more. The backpacker trail gets old and seems after a while 
unadventurous. It's good for getting your feet wet or for maybe curing loneliness after time. But you'll see it. I'm not telling you to get off it on your own. But be ready when it's time, when you get sick of white people, to get the fuck off that backpacker trail. Start making your own trail. To bring a tight pack joint holder. These tight pack, you guys, uh, you can go online and find them on Amazon. They're pretty cheap. Four to six dollars. You can find them at some head shops too. It's just a little J holder. Uh, you can find a single J holder, a double J holder, or like one that holds like four or five. And keeps the smell in. And that way you can put the joints in your pocket and they don't break. Uh, it's like dube tube, really. That's what it really is. Um, it's indispensable when you find weed and you want to bring two joints in your pocket. It weighs nothing. It'll smell in. And you can also use it to hold malaria pills and Advil for when you go on like a two to four day treks with only a small bag if you're not bringing weed with you. Tight packs work for that too. And then those pills don't get lost. Must bring one, two, three, four, five more. Must bring wet naps and travel tissue packs, especially for Asia and other parts of the world. No, especially for Asia and other parts of the bad toilet world. Turkey, I've heard. Research the toilets. If they're bad, you bring those fucking packs of tissue paper. I like the fold-over kind of pack, so you can keep money in there. It folds over so you can get half and then use the other half or whatever. Uh, bring Barocca. It is a UK staple. It's kind of like those emergency packs, but these are pills. Not pills, but like uh, tablets you drop in like Alka-Seltzer. Uh, I don't know what they got in them, but my friend, one of the guys from the um, from the Running of the Bulls podcast, which you should all hear. The episodes you missed, I'm telling you right now, in the last year, Running of the Bulls, very low numbers, and two weeks ago uh, with Aaron Berg called um, Brandon Goldberg, uh, Stripper at Law. Tremendous podcast. Also, no one listened to my podcast on cigars with Barbara Kelly. What the fuck? Um, Baroka. It hit, oh, so he told me, like, just take one of these every morning after you drink and don't get a lot of sleep. You're fine. And I did it all through Edinburgh. Didn't get sick. Whenever I was getting sick or felt it coming on, you drop some Baroka, one a day, keeps you going. Bring two or three packs of those. You can also find more in Thailand, in, in pharmacies in Thailand. So you can re-up there, which I did. Also cures hangovers and when you feel a cold coming on. Uh, here's a must-bring. A must-bring. A Z-Pack. Zithromycin. It's a drug you can get from your travel doctor. You can also buy it at many pharmacies in the world if you run out. You already, okay, it's for the barfs and the shits. When you get food sickness, let's call it geographical sickness, and you just start barfing and shitting and barfing and sitting, which I did in a fucking rebel-controlled area in Myanmar, and you can't stop. You, you drink water and you throw that up. You time it, so as soon as you barf, you swallow a pill. You try to keep it down as long as you can because you're going to barf and hopefully it doesn't come up. Within five hours, no more barfing, no more shitting. Cured everything. And then you take another one the next day and another one the day after that. It's a three-day thing. Also takes up basically no space. You must have one with you. For when that, when that stuff comes and it hits 70% of the people in Burma, of all the people I know, I'm guessing about 60 to 70%. 
Forget about also Thailand. Forget it. You'll fuck up. You'll drink the tap water one day. You won't think about it. You'll just do it. You'll eat the ice, whatever it is. Z-Pack, ask your doctor. It's the term is zithromycin. You can also get it when you're out there. So I used one. I went and got a fucking second one at a pharmacy in Thailand. Never used a second one, but I had it. Must bring antihistamine cream for mosquito bites. Uh, here's one that my mom gave me that I love. That I, oh, This is actually the, the one I used out there. The actual bottle. Kirkland Signature. Maximum strength. Hydrocortisone. 1% plus. Anti-itch cream. When you get a fucking mosquito bite, spider bite, whatever bites, rub that shit on there. goes away. Um, last time. Last tip. Motorcycle rentals. You're going to probably rent a scooter. Or a motorcycle at some point if you're in Southeast Asia or many other places, like Rolf did in Namibia. Tire and tread and checking for scratches, that's great, I guess. But always, my tip, always check for trunk space. There's a range on trunk space, anywhere from like tons of space to like nothing. The range is massive. I mean, one where you get like an iPad in there and that's it to one where you have like your whole day pack and shove it in there. Look for that. If it's a, if it's a narrow one, say like, no, 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 I want a different one. Don't go for the pretty colors. Go for the trunk space. Also, again, look for tire tread and shit like that and scratches to make sure they don't bill you later. But like, I'm telling you, that trunk space, keeping a fucking poncho in there, anything you might buy, souvenir-wise or something, trunk. Also, bottles of water in there, whatever. Um... It really helps have room for your stuff. And check rear view mirrors. Sometimes they don't include rear view mirrors, and you really do need them. So, that's it. Those are my tips. Also for uh, motorcycles, uh, what was I going to say? Uh, I forgot. I didn't write it down. It something I was going to say. I just remembered, then I forgot. Uh, anyway, guys, I'll see you at the Nasty Show. Uh, I hope you're coming. Check all my dates if you want to buy tickets for that. Or any of my dates in New York. The uh, apartment show, uh, August 1st. Uh, my next storytelling show at the Village Underground, August 25th, I think, or 21st. Um, get those tickets at AriTheGreat.com, right there on the side. And everything from Montreal is on there, too. What a long podcast, huh? What did I want to say about motorcycles? Oh, I know. So there's no GPS or anything. Take your phone, load up if you have Maps.me. It's the best app out there. It takes up basically no space, and it follows you. So you have the map of your country or your region anyway, and, uh, and then it follows you. So you need directions, it gives them to you. Scotch tape. Get some scotch tape, wrap it around the fucking handlebar, and then you can have a fucking GPS you can look at. For, only for long distance. If you know where you're going, get, get it off. Put it in your pocket, but... Also use up all your battery. But like, yeah, it's a great way to travel and get where you're going. Anyway, you guys, that's the episode. Did you enjoy it? Did you have a good time? My friend Pete came up with that, by the way. That's not, I can't take credit for that. The fucking handlebar wrap with the, with the scotch tape. Pete C came up with that. Um, yeah, great fucking episode. Guys, I'm so happy that you finally get to see my special. Those of you who have already seen it, thank you for watching. I know you enjoyed it. Um, that's it. I'm really happy it's finally here. Don't forget to get that, also that, uh, 
Bennington Unmasked. Go to Laughable to see all the podcasts I'm in. Tiger Belly Unmasked. Burt Kreischer with Big J and, and Tony Hinchcliffe. Uh, Joe Rogan's. Uh, Keith and the Girl. Fucking, uh, uh, what's it called? It's coming up. Skanks. I don't know what else. Just a bunch. Just a bunch. Anyway, thanks for tuning in, you guys. Until next week, for Rolf Potts, I'm already, I've already messed it up. I'm already sure I'm going for episode 297. No. For episode two now. All right, you guys. No, how the fuck do I do it? All right, you guys. This has been Ari. This has been Ari Shapiro's Captain Tank episode two ninety seven. Wait, I think I might have it. This has been Ari Shapiro's Captain Tank episode two ninety seven. Vagabonding for Rolf Potts. I'm Ari Shapiro saying so long. Whoa,